Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dan Drefwitellis. This is being recorded live and broadcasted live on August 21st, 2021. The time right now is 10.42 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It is Saturday night. The show is starting pretty late in the evening. I have to imagine there won't be that many people listening live, but that's why we have the archives that are always available to be listened to after the show for years and years following. We have a free roll right now on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It's a $50 free roll. $50 was given to us by Online Veteran, a very nice guy. I met him in Vegas in June. We went out to dinner. I've talked to him a long time via text, and he's a regular listener. In fact, we even played against each other on True Poker 20 years ago. But I hadn't met him in person until June. But a very nice guy. Enjoyed meeting him. He donated $50 to this free roll. He has donated in the past as well. $25 for first, $15 for second, $10 for third. $25 for first, $15 for second, and $10 for third are the three prizes we are giving away this week. It takes place, as always, on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find it near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. Make sure you understand the rules of the free roll because there's... Not very tough rules, but there are very stringent rules that you must follow in order to qualify for the free money. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. Exactly as it sounds, all lowercase. And make sure you understand that you need a separate account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It's a separate account from the forum, and you need to wait for it to be validated or verified by either myself or the Poker Room Manager, Belly Buster. If you're having trouble getting verified, you can text me at 775-372-8355 and I can try to help you. So this free roll started at 1040 Pacific Time, which is four minutes ago. You still have till 1105 Pacific Time to get in there under late registration with a full stack. So you still have plenty of time. Still have over 20 minutes to get in there. 25, 15, and 10 are the prizes which I can send to you by Zelle, by Cash App, by Bank Transfer, by Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash, or even some other methods you might be able to think of. I might even be able to pay you in Ethereum. I might. But other methods that are not cryptocurrency, I can pay you. Just uh, message me, preferably on the forum, Dan Space Druff. But uh, if not, email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com or text me 775-372-8355, which, yes, is our text number, 775-372-8355. You can text before, after, or during the show. You can text 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I will never think you're rude because you're texting me late or early. It's totally fine. If you text me during the show, I may read your text on the air unless you ask me at the beginning of the text not to. That is also our main phone number to the show, 775-FRAUD55, which breaks out to 775-372-8355. We have a separate line into the show known as the Mount Charleston line. It is an old 70s rotary phone which sits on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin there. It forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. You can't text it, but you can call it during the show. Something else you can call, but it won't interact with you, but you can use it to listen. That's the call to listen line. It's a phone number you can just call up and listen to the show, whether it's the live show or when we're not live, you can listen to whatever streaming rerun it's playing. It picks our more than 
one of our more than 400 shows that we've done in the past, dating back almost nine and a half years, and just plays one randomly until it's done, and then picks another and another and another, till we come back live on the air. That is the call to listen line. The phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. Then there's the alternate call to listen line, which works the same way, 641-741-1095. It does not require a smartphone, does not require a computer, does not require a data plan, does not require the internet, and will not use up any of your data. No, 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 no. And it will never, ever, I promise you, never buffer. It will never buffer or freeze because I hate buffering and I hate freezing when I listen to streams on the internet. So I made sure to build one that does not do that. It has a no buffer guarantee, the call to listen line. It is free to call from anywhere that can call the U.S. for free, except T-Mobile will charge you one cent per minute to call that number because they consider it a high volume number, which in a way is a compliment to the show, but in a way is very annoying because T-Mobile just keeps that money and I don't get anything. Those are some various ways that you can reach me or listen to the show by phone. You can listen to the archives in various ways. We have iTunes. We have Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartMedia. These are all apps on your phone. The TuneIn app, which can be used to listen both live and in the archives. You'll see we have two different entries there. The Stitcher app, the Bullhorn app, which actually has its own call to listen line if you want to listen to the archives using Call to Listen. You can do that through the Bullhorn app. So I recommend that if you like the Call to Listen line. And then also there's an MP3 of the show you can download or just click on to play from any device, any modern or semi-modern or even pretty old device, to be honest. I mean, this will even work with iPhones made in the 2000s. You can just click on the MP3. It'll just play. You don't need any kind of external player or anything special. You just click on the MP3 and it plays. Or you can download it and keep it if you'd like. The MP3 is always available in the Radio Archives forum of Poker Fraud Alert, or just click on the MP3 button on the radio tab and you will find it. So if you forgot these different methods to listen, just go to the Radio radio tab and scroll down to the Archives section. You'll see them all listed there. You just click on the little graphic for each one. It'll take you to the right place. Remember, also, Amazon Alexa can be used to listen to the Archives. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Say exactly like that and make sure you say it slowly enough to where it understands. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast and it will play the last episode. If you want to go to the previous episode, you say next, which is a bit backwards, but that's how it works. So we're on there as well. If there's another way you want to listen that I currently don't carry, let me know. I'll see if I can add it. If it does not cost me too much money, I will do it. I want to give you every option you can to listen to the show because the more options, the better. We have a chat room. You can go in during the live show. It works on any device. It does not require Flash anymore. It does require that you have a Poker Fraud Alert form account in good standing. So if you don't have one yet, I suggest you go register for one. And the chat room can be used to chat mainly with other listeners who listen live during the non-live show, meaning if you're listening in the archives, you will not find anyone to talk to there. It's not a chat room that is active normally, but during the show. There are people in there talking, and I check it every so often. We'll sometimes address comments in there. And that's a chat room that now works without Flash since November of 2020 when I changed it. So I'm going to give you the agenda, and then we're going to get going. 
Matt Marafiati's suicide has been confirmed. We were the first site to report the death of poker pro Matt Marafiati, also known as ADZ or Adzizzy. But it was not confirmed when we did last week's show on Sunday night and early Monday morning. Poker Fraud Alert broke the story. And if you Google the story, you'll see that it's mentioned pretty much all over the place that we were the first ones to break it. I felt confident enough that it was true based upon the information I presented and some other information I had in the background that I was not able to publicly present that it was very likely true. And while I did not have confirmation yet, I felt comfortable to present this story to everybody. And I did. I felt it was something everybody needed to know. So we were the ones who broke that. Always make sure to check Poker Fraud Alert because we tend to break stories early. And when we're not early, we tend to cover them the best and the most extensively and have the fewest mistakes. And I'm not just saying that because it's my site. It's a very good quality place to check for uh, stories in poker and gambling. And whenever I decide to cover something, I make sure to do it thoroughly and accurately, or at least to the best of my ability. But anyway, that's been confirmed. We'll talk a bit more about that. I have an update on the Mike Possel situation between myself and him. As you know, he sued me almost a year ago now. It was on October 1st. He filed a lawsuit against me and uh, a number of other defendants, and he was asking for $330 million. We fought back. I retained attorney Eric Benzamokin. He did a great job. And Veronica Brill, she was also sued, and she also fought back with First Amendment specialist Mark Randazza, who's also had his share of controversy, but she chose him, and uh, he did a good job fighting back as well. And now Postle is on the hook for about 27 k to each of us for attorney's fees. So we're in collection mode, and I have some news about that. So I will give you that news. Pretty interesting situation, actually, which more involves Randazza than me, but I'm still going to explain what's going on, and I'll read you some things. Kristen Bicknell and Party Poker have parted ways. They are no longer associated. She was a Party Poker pro for four years. And you may say, well, why is that a big story? Poker rooms fire representatives all the time, or they just split off because they can't come to an agreement. Well, because it might be because of her recent vocal anti-vax positions regarding the COVID vaccine. So we're going to discuss that, and we're going to speculate whether or not this had to do with her anti-vax positions as expressed frequently on Twitter. Mason Malmuth stupidly posted some never-before-seen emails from 2008 between him and Poker News involving his attempt to get them to cover up the David Skolansky and Brandy Hawbaker story at the time. We discussed this last week. We discussed this the week before, but this is an update, and I was very fascinated to read these emails, not only because they had to do with me, but because it gave me a little glimpse into some behind-the-scenes stuff at Poker News when they were the owners of Never Win Poker that I hadn't seen or known before. I actually learned some new things about the situation that I had not known for all these years, for 13 and a half years. Furthermore, Haley Hintz showed up when I posted these emails 
and she gave her own perspective, and she was part of the story, which I never knew. So I'm going to tell you about all that. I'll also tell you why this was posted by Mason, because these were emails between him and Poker News at the time, and how his forum reacted to this, or shall I say his former forum, because he doesn't own 2 plus 2 anymore. Resorts World might be a fail, and if it ends up being a fail, I will admit that I predicted incorrectly. I'm usually pretty good at predicting these things. When I see a new casino's opening, I'm pretty good at saying if it's going to be a success or failure. So when Bellagio opened, I knew it was going to be a success. When the Wynn opened, I knew it was going to be a success. When the Aria opened, I knew it was going to be a success. So a lot of these new casinos, I was pretty good at being able to tell if they're going to be a success or in the cases of things like uh, Lucky Dragons, I knew were going to be a failure. SLS, I knew it was going to be a failure. So I'm pretty good at having a feel for that because I just know Las Vegas and the casino market very well. But if Resorts World ends up being a failure, I will admit I didn't see this coming. I thought that was going to be a major, major addition to Vegas that was going to change everything. And they may be in trouble, or at least they may be on the wrong track. They are letting rooms go, especially during the week, for surprising little money. So we're going to talk about that and what it means. I have started doing something new on this show recently, and you've probably noticed it, and that is I've been covering one topic each week which has nothing to do with poker or gambling, but just interesting stories I find, usually on the web somewhere, sometimes brought to me by a listener, that I think would be interesting for this show. We're going to have another one of these this week. It is a scam story, so I guess it kind of fits into our theme. But it has nothing to do with gambling, again. Nothing to do with poker. Nothing to do with anyone you guys know or would have heard of. But it's a very interesting story. It's about a complex Ukraine romance scam that robbed a UK man of over $250,000. So I'll tell you about this very interesting scam, which goes way beyond the usual romance scam, which is usually just online when they get some suckers to send money to fake girls with fake pictures. That happens every day. But this was a very complex scam where the guy went to the Ukraine, had a wedding that wasn't real. I mean, it was, it was an insane story. So I'm going to tell you guys about it. I think you're going to enjoy the story. And then uh, related to that, I'm actually going to – I'm considering it. I haven't decided for sure. But I've been asked by a lot of people to start a second podcast that is more general interest. There's a lot of people who – have believed over the years, and especially recently for some reason, I'm getting a number of people messaging me about this recently, that they think that if I were to branch out from the niche topic of poker and gambling and did a podcast about just general stuff happening in the world, that this could get huge and a lot of people would really enjoy it. And I think talk has ramped up again about that because I've been doing some general interest stories and people listen to this thinking, wow, I bet a lot of people would like this who are not into poker and gambling because these are stories that have nothing to do with that topic, and I think this would be very appealing to people. Now, I appreciate the votes of confidence, but I have not really wanted to do this because it's an additional time commitment that I just don't want to take the time to do. It's just too much. So I've been resisting doing this. However, what I'm considering doing is I'm considering actually starting a second show but 
it's one that's probably not going to interest most of you because I'm just going to take portions of this show that have nothing to do with poker and gambling and repackage it as a second show. So that's probably not very exciting to you. But the reason I would be doing that is this way I could get a second show going and I could see if there's interest in it from people other than existing Poker Fraud Alert radio listeners. Because there's no point to start a second show if it's all the same people listening to this show. But if I can bring in some new people by having a show that is shorter, a lot shorter, and that is of general interest topics, and if the thing can grow, then maybe at that point I'll consider doing some more uh, content just for that show or even doing a live show of that. But uh, at, the, at the moment, I don't want to put a commitment to doing all new content for a completely different show. But if you do see a second show pop up that I'm promoting, at the beginning, it will just be stuff I cut out of this show. And when I say cut, I don't mean cut it out. I mean actually just copy from this show and move over to that show and see if it catches on. So that's a plan I have. I'm not 100% sure I'm going to do it, but that's a plan I have to maybe kind of test the waters with that. As much as I'd like doing this show, I would also like a bigger audience. So we have a decent audience here, but we don't have a huge audience. It would be great if I had a huge audience. If I had like 100,000 people listening every week, that would be awesome. Or what if I got more than that? What if I got 500,000? Now that's not easy to do, but maybe there would be interest. Maybe the word would get around that it's a good show. So this is a way I can kind of dip my foot in that water and see. But I don't have any plans to stop this show. I know a lot of you enjoy this show. A lot of you listen to this show to get your news about the world of poker and gambling. And I don't want to let the loyal listeners down that have been here for nine and a half years and even those before that that listened to other shows I was involved with. So I don't want to abandon this, even if the other one gets popular or gets more popular than this show. I'll let you guys know what's going on with that. And maybe I'll not even do it. Maybe I'll try it and no one will really be interested in it. We'll see. It's kind of hard to get people's attention, get it promoted. See, the good thing about this show is that a lot of listeners followed me from previous shows I was part of, and just people find it because they're fans of poker and gambling and kind of just find their way there. And that's what's good about having kind of an established audience that when I started Poker Fraud Alert Radio, there were already a lot of people that wanted to listen to it before I even started. Whereas a brand new show, it's a lot harder to get people into listening to it. So that's possibly coming up. And if it is, then like the topic of the Ukraine romance scan, that that would be copied from this show and moved over there. The WSOP Pennsylvania botched their online bracelet events pretty badly, especially one of them. So I'll tell you about some issues they had. Pretty embarrassing for the brand. And as usual, nobody's home. Nobody's there to answer. And they're really screwing this up. And people are getting real frustrated. So I'll explain what's going on there. Poker After Dark, they're really uh, scoring some pretty interesting names. They got Senator Ted Cruz and top YouTube star Mr. Beast, who you may or may not have heard of, but he's huge in the world of YouTube. They both played on stream at the same table. This star-studded table also included Phil Helmuth and Doyle Brunson. Wow. Ted Cruz, of all people. So we'll talk about that. And finally, coronavirus news. What will a third shot do for you? Should you get it when it's your turn to get it? Is it something that is highly likely to make you more resistant to Delta and other variants? 
Or is it a waste of time? So we'll discuss the third shot and what it can or can't do for you. We're talking about the third shot of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. So that is our agenda tonight. Next week, I should have an interesting story for you about something from a long time ago that has nothing to do with Mason Malmuth, by the way, in case you think it's more of that, but uh, about a, a woman who said she had a major story about a major scandal at Full Tilt before Black Friday happened. And I met with her at a restaurant in the L.A. area to talk about it with her. This was a long time ago, of course, but I've never told this story in full. And in fact, most of you have never heard it. So next week, I plan to tell that full story. So let's jump to our first story here, and that is about Matt Marafiati. As I mentioned in the opening, Matt Marafiati has been confirmed to have passed away as a result of suicide. And I was pretty sure about that when I said it last week, but I wasn't 100% certain, and that's how I presented it to you guys. I broke this story on Poker Fraud Alert at 2.45 p.m., on August 14th. The following day, on August 15th, the following evening, we did a show. So it had been about a day and a half old by the time I started the show last week, but I still did not have confirmation. If you want to hear the whole story and some things about Matt Marafiati's history, including his pretty obvious mental illness, you can go back to last week's episode. I'm not going to rehash all that here. But I did not have confirmation then, and I said I would give you further information as it came, and I assumed probably fairly soon I would get confirmation that he uh, was dead and that he had committed suicide. So it was one of these things I presented to you guys that I think it's true, but can't say with 100% certainty. Every other media outlet, and when I say every other, I mean every other would not report that Matt Marafiati had committed suicide or even that he was dead until it was independently confirmed by dailyvoice.com that had originally reported that an unidentified man, who they said was 32, turned out to be, he was 33, had uh, jumped off of a high floor of a building in northern New Jersey. So I was the only one putting this out there. I put it on Twitter. I put it on Poker Fraud Alert. I came forward and I said, this isn't confirmed, but all the pieces fit together. Look at Matt Marafiati's last Instagram post. Look at where he says he is. Look at what floor he says he's on, in which building. And then right after that, a man who was said to be one year younger than he is, it said a 32-year-old man jumped to his death. Matt was 33 jumped from a floor that was very close to that floor, like 28th versus 29th, in that exact same building, just a very short time after Matt made his post that looked like he was conceding he was going to die. He was kind of saying goodbye to his young son. So it looked very, very likely it was him. And then shortly after that, I received something else that I, I can't explain now or ever probably, but I received something else that also made it look like that my assumption was correct. So I posted it. I mean, there's a very small chance I was wrong. Now it's a zero chance because I know for sure. But back then, there was a very small chance I was wrong a week ago. But 
I was certain enough to where this was worth reporting with the caveat that it could be incorrect. But everywhere else wouldn't touch it. Go take a look at the date and time of the articles were posted last week. Nobody would post it. And I don't think that's good. I think it is the duty of sites that present news in poker and gambling to report stories that they think are highly likely to be true, even if it's not 100% confirmed, as long as they note that there's a chance this is not true, it's a chance it's a coincidence. And that's what I did. I handled it very responsibly. I handled it very respectfully. But at the same time, I felt you guys needed to know, because he was a big figure in poker, especially in late 2000s, early 2010s poker. But yes, it was confirmed by the same reporter who posted about the unidentified man who jumped from a high floor of that building. That reporter actually signed up to Poker Fraud Alert. He didn't post anything, but he messaged me and said that uh, he saw I was the only one reporting on this, but I was the only one uh, stating who it is, that he also thought it might be Marifiati, but he couldn't get confirmation. And he was... uh, saying he, was gonna, he wasn't going to name Marifiati until he was confirmed, which I understand for him because he is not a poker or gambling reporter. So Matt Marifiati is just like a regular dude to him, and I can see not wanting to name him until he was more certain. It has been verified by this same reporter, Jerry DeMarco in New Jersey, that Matt did jump from the 28th floor balcony at the Winston Towers and that uh, it's a a Bergen County high-rise that is in Cliffside Park, which is right by the Hudson River separating New York and New Jersey. It is in the greater New York City area, even though it is in the state of New Jersey. If you know the geography of New York City, you will know that a lot of the greater New York City area is not in the state of New York, that a lot of people live across the Hudson. And... That was the case with uh, Matt Marifiati, apparently. And that's also where he died, though he was not living in that building. He was there in someone else's apartment, and he posted a picture of the guy whose apartment he was in and claimed that that guy was in on a conspiracy to, quote, make him go missing if he attempts to leave. Now, while that is disturbing to read, and a lot of people thought, hey, you know, maybe he was actually murdered— Maybe he was murdered and the murderers counted on the fact that he had a lot of mental health issues and a lot of paranoia issues and that nobody would take seriously if they murdered him. You know, the old saying, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not out to get you. But I believe in this case that there was not anyone out to get Matt Marifiati, that unfortunately what got Matt Marifiati was his own mind. We've seen evidence over the years, especially in the past five years, that Matt Marifiati, despite being a very talented poker player, was mentally ill. And he was very mentally ill. And a lot of that seemed to manifest in paranoia, extreme paranoia, that there were these complicated conspiracies of people who were looking to kill him. And he believed even at one point that his parents were in on it. He really believed he could trust no one. I would occasionally have dreams as a kid that I could trust no one. 
and it didn't affect me when I was awake, by the way. I didn't ever think this way when I was conscious. But I had dreams as a kid where there would be some sort of bad guy trying to attack me and kill me. And that uh, sometimes I'd run to my parents and they would attempt to help and they'd get either hurt or killed, which would be very disturbing to see. Or sometimes I couldn't find them. Or sometimes I'd run to them and they would be in on it and they would help the bad guy get me. That was really, really disturbing. I don't know what was worse, seeing them try to help and get harmed or killed or, or finding out that they're in on the whole thing to help the bad guy kill me. Now, again, I didn't ever think this of my parents. And in, when I was conscious, I never suspected that uh, they ever wanted anything for me but the best. But, uh, you know, how dreams are, this can happen. But imagine that you're in that state where everything seems so real. Like when I was having these dreams, in the dream, it seemed very real. I was kind of sitting there in shock, but I was seeing in front of my face what appeared to be my parents helping the bad guy try to kill me. So in the dream, I believe that all this time trusting my parents is a mistake and they're actually evil and trying to kill me. So imagine if that's your conscious state. When Matt Marafiati kept having these feelings for years and years, it really was only a matter of time before he felt that this was really the only way out. Now, I don't know what caused him to jump over the balcony this time as opposed to other times because we have him in a video five years ago saying that there's a bunch of people trying to kill him and even blaming his parents at one point. So why five and a half years later did he actually go through with killing himself when he's had these same beliefs all this time? But I think maybe his mental illness just got worse than it was back then or that the situation that he was in and imagined himself in, really, made him believe that that was the lesser of two evils. Of It kind of seemed to me, from what he wrote on his Instagram, that he felt that these bad guys who are waiting for him in this other person's apartment were going to, quote, make him go missing and torture him. So he probably felt either he's just going to disappear and they're going to be torturing him or he just ends it all now so they can't do that. Now, I'll never know for sure. Nobody will know for sure because uh, Matt Marafiati is no longer with us. But that's what it looks like to me. That's why it looks like that he would have jumped there. Not so much to end the pain, but because he really thought he was going to get away. He, the way he wrote at the end of his Instagram post was very telling because he was saying he was calling it a catch-22 that if he stays in that apartment, that they're going to cast him as insane, that he won't leave, and they're going to use that against him. And if he does try to leave, then they're going to grab him and make him go missing and torture him. So he's either stuck in that apartment forever, or the second he steps out, they're going to make him disappear and torture him. So if you were really in that spot, you might want to jump off the balcony. Now, he wasn't really in that spot. It seems pretty certain that the guy whose picture he posted and named is just an innocent person who was trying to help. He acknowledged that the man whose picture he posted was the man who drove his baby home from the hospital when the baby was born. Uh, This person is a limo driver, we found. So this is probably a family friend who is a limo driver who drove Matt's son home from the hospital and probably drove Matt to his apartment to get some stuff that was there. Matt was indicating he was getting some stuff from his previous apartment in this apartment. 
Matt didn't live in this apartment. Maybe he stored some stuff there. But that this driver drove him there. And then once that got up there, it looks like Matt believed that this guy was in on a conspiracy to have other guys grab him. He said, they're, quote, they're waiting for me. So he didn't say this dude's going to grab him. He was saying that they're, they're waiting for him outside, outside this apartment. The second he steps out, these bad guys are going to grab him, which I don't believe there are any other guys out there. I think it was just him and this dude. I think Matt imagined that dudes were outside the apartment on the 28th floor to grab him if he steps out and make him disappear and torture him. So I think that Matt decided that this is it that he has no way out of this other than uh, jumping off the balcony and just ending it. And it's, it's very sad. It's very sad that he was not able to get the help he needed and somehow get treated to live a normal life. And this was someone with a lot of poker talent and someone that a lot of people found likable when he wasn't acting insane. But he, we, and we saw nine years ago with all the different stories of him on social media where he was acting erratic, but it was nothing like what we saw in subsequent years, kind of starting around 2016. He was just really off the rails. And some people remembering his early 2000s, early 2010s behavior thought maybe he's just doing it for attention, but it started to appear more and more that it was real, that this guy was just going insane. And it was sad. So unfortunately... Matt Marafiati is gone. He actually dove headfirst off the balcony, according to witnesses. It happened shortly after 11 a.m. Eastern time. Someone who was a witness saw him going over and said that he was screaming out as he was going over. They couldn't hear, but he was kind of screaming. Now, some people who are more conspiracy-minded said, ah, He's, go- he's going over the balcony headfirst, and he's screaming. Wouldn't that be what would be the case if someone were to throw you over the balcony? So how do you jump headfirst? And you'd be screaming if someone just threw you over, whereas if you voluntarily went over, you wouldn't be screaming. Well, that neither of these is necessarily true. He may have actually like dove headfirst, like he's jumping off a diving board. He may have stood on top of the balcony and jumped headfirst. And he also might have screamed either because he knew his end was going to be seconds away or because he had changed his mind. A lot of people who survived suicide attempts where they jumped from something high, like they interviewed people who jumped from the San Francisco Bay Bridge, which is uh, – or the Golden Gate Bridge or the, or the, or the Bay Bridge. You know, both of them have jumpers. I think the Golden Gate has more. But the – Golden Gate Bridge jumpers have been interviewed and they've been asked, these are the ones, of course, who survived. What were you thinking on the way down? And they were being asked this not uh, just for morbid curiosity, but in order to get a better look into the minds of those who are attempting suicide to maybe help others before they actually do it. And a fairly high percentage of them said that they changed their mind in the air. And I guess some of them got lucky that they didn't die. So it's possible Matt jumped and then thought better of it or maybe even had a moment of clarity where he realized that he shouldn't have done this, that that no one's really out to get him, or maybe he was wrong. 
that's what was seen. There were two people at the pool. I think employees, not actual, not residents. There were two people at the pool. Yeah, lifeguards, and they saw this. I believe they're the ones who reported this. These were young guys, two young lifeguards, and they were offered counseling. I don't know if they took it, but that's pretty disturbing to see some dude head first off of a tall building screaming on the way down and then slamming into the ground. I've never seen anything like that, but I don't know if I need counseling after seeing it, but it, it would stick with me. And I might have some nightmares about it. Like uh, That's something that's not easy to see, even if it's someone you don't know. If you know anybody in or out of poker that seems to be having major mental health issues and you think that they're capable of something like this, you should really encourage them or their family to get them help. Because otherwise it does end this way. It's frequently not from jumping from a tall building. It's often something like uh, using a gun or... uh, Taking pills is a very popular one or slitting the wrist, but a lot of people attempt suicide. Some suicide attempts are just for attention and committed by people who are really not looking to die, but the majority of them are actual attempts that people are making to kill themselves. And if you are hearing if you're hearing somebody talking about it frequently, if someone seems very uh, paranoid or extremely depressed, you may want to see what you can do. Now, there's only so much you can do. Like, let's say I could have seen the future, what Matt was going to do. I couldn't have stopped it because I could not have forced him to get committed. I probably could not have convinced his family to do anything further. And it can be hard getting someone committed who is an adult. So sometimes there's not much you can do, but you can try your best. And if you do that, you might save the person's life. And if you're feeling this way, then definitely go get help. And if you do feel this way sometimes, I want you to know that most of it is in your head. Now, there may be things going on in your life that are depressing or disturbing. But most of the desire to harm yourself is in your head. And sometimes this can be fixed through medication. In fact, a lot of times it can. And you should never take that option. And you will affect those around you, even when you wouldn't expect you would affect when you do this. So no matter how bad things seem to get, and no matter how depressed you are, know that there's ways to get yourself help. If you're ever feeling like this and you even want to text me, I will talk to you. You can text me 775-372-8355. But it's sad when I see this happen. When I was in high school, a guy sitting next to me, very nice guy, he had a very disturbing incident happen involving his best friend. Now, the best friend I knew, but I was not... It wasn't someone I knew very well. I, it was like a peer at school that I never got to know very well, the best friend. So the best friend 
suffered from depression, and then he kind of got pushed over the edge because his girlfriend dumped him. And so he told the guy who sat next to me in English class, and this is his, his best friend, he said that he's so depressed and he thinks he's going to drive off a cliff. So his friend thought it was a joke and did not report this to anybody and didn't really try to talk him out of it. And what happened? That night the kid dro- drove off a cliff and killed himself. So you can imagine how guilty that this guy felt that his best friend told him he's going to drive off a cliff and he didn't take it seriously and then the guy actually drives off a cliff. And I'm sure to this day he thinks about it. You don't want that to be you. Either the guy who drives off the cliff or the person who knows the guy who drives off the cliff that's told he's going to and you don't take it seriously. Now, there are unfortunately people out there who manipulate the concern about suicide to their advantage. So, for example, if somebody scams you, and then when you try to collect the money, they start saying, oh, I've been so depressed lately. I think I'm just going to end it all, man. If you, if you just, I just can't stand this. All these people coming to you for money. You know what? I, I think I'm just going to go to a tall building and jump off. Like, at that point, you don't back, up, back off because you're being manipulated. At that point, uh, someone is using the threat of suicide to get away with committing crimes against you, financial crimes. So it, when I hear people use suicide in that way, it just gets me angrier. That should never be used as an out to not have to face the consequence of bad behavior. But if you you just have somebody you know who's having problems, even if it's problems they're imagining, like Matt Marifiati, do your best to try to help them and encourage them to get help. And if necessary, go to their family, because their family has more power to get them committed than you do, if you're not a family member. All right, let's move on to the next topic. Just wanted to give you an update on that. Let's talk about Mike Possel. Mike Possel currently owes me $27,000 approximately for attorney's fees and court costs. He owes a very similar amount to Veronica Brill, who was the whistleblower in the entire situation. If you remember, he sued Brill, me, and uh, a bunch of others, including some companies like ESPN, for defamation and won a $330 million simply for reporting on what was suspected of him in these Stones live-streaming games. All of the defendants, except for me and Veronica Brill, just ignored it. Why? Because they were never served. He sued everybody, he filed it, but he did not serve them. So everybody else figured, hey, we're not being served. Out of sight, out of mind. But two of us did not think that. Two of us wanted it to be done as soon as possible. We weren't going to let Possible jerk us around whether he was going to serve us or not. So the first one to do it was me. The second one was Veronica. And we retained attorneys who then accepted service on our behalf, even without it being formally served. They can do that. And we stated our intention to file an anti-slap defense, to file a motion to have the case dismissed, basically based upon our belief that this lawsuit was for the purpose of chilling free speech. And this is a statute they have in California and Nevada to prevent frivolous lawsuits such as these, basically to shut people up or punish people for saying bad things about you that is their right to say. So... We threatened that we were going to do this, that we're going to file an anti-slap motion, and that Possible would be on the hook for the attorney's fees if that motion is granted. So we said to him, it's not a good idea. 
you don't want to go forward with this because it's a frivolous suit. The court's going to see that. They're going to grant our motion, and you're going to owe us attorney's fees. You're going to owe a lot of money. So I don't know what Veronica was asking for in her response, but our response was drop me out of it. Not drop the whole case, but drop me out of it and do it with prejudice so you can't refile against me. And we will eat our attorney's fees up till now and ask you for nothing. And we'll agree to this in writing. But only if you drop me out right now with prejudice. Otherwise, you're going to face the anti-slap. You're going to lose. You're going to owe money. So we laid it all out for him. This is what we are going to do if you don't do this. And he basically gave the middle finger. So we went forward and did exactly what we said we were going to do. And it went exactly the way we thought it would. We didn't exactly expect him to drop the case, but he did. And that helped us win, but we would have won anyway, most likely. So when it's all said and done, as I've explained before many times in the show, Mike Postle owes me $27,000 for attorney's fees and court costs. The problem is that he's not paying, which, to be honest, is what I expected. As soon as we were given this judgment... I had all these people saying, yeah, but how are you going to collect from him? He's never going to give you a dime. Good luck seeing a penny. You think my apostle is going to cut you a track for 27 k And I said to these people, eh, probably not. I hope he does. That would be the right thing to do. He owes the money legally. He owes the money morally. Because remember, we gave him a chance to get out. This was a frivolous suit. I should have not been part of it. In fact, by the time I got involved with reporting on him, it was already a huge story, so I didn't even contribute to it being a huge story. It was already a huge story before I typed the first word about it. I got involved a little bit into the whole thing, so it had already blown up big in poker before I had anything to say about it. This is one of the few stories I did not jump on early. So why was I being sued? And we told him that, but he didn't care. So we did exactly what we said. We won, and now he owes the money. I didn't want this. I wanted to be out of it back in October. He would not let me out of it. So we had to do what we had to do. How do we get the money? Mike Postle, to my knowledge, does not have a regular job. We can't just garnish his wages. So how do we get the money out of him since he is not paying us? He's not sending any money to me or to Veronica to satisfy this judgment. So what we have done through our attorneys is try to put Postle into involuntary bankruptcy. And some people don't quite understand that. Some people say, wait a minute, why would you put him into involuntary bankruptcy? Wouldn't that do him a favor? Wouldn't that allow him to avoid paying you? Aren't you just speeding along a process that he might go through anyway? Well, this is what Eric Benzamokin wrote in the Mike Postle thread on Poker Fraud Alert that might explain it. Keep in mind, Eric is a bankruptcy specialist. So when he tells you something about bankruptcy, you believe it. He does a lot of bankruptcy cases. In fact, if you need to go through bankruptcy in California, you may want to contact him, eric at eblawfirm.us. But this is what he wrote. The bankruptcy court actually has given him until the 17th, that is August 17th, to respond. As far as Chapter 7 goes, because we're trying to put him into involuntary Chapter 7 bankruptcy, there are a few, for, a few important points to consider. Namely, anti-slap awards are generally considered to be non-dischargeable in bankruptcy, which means that all other debts can be wiped out, but not the judgments for Todd and Veronica. This is also a very good way to find out what, if any, assets Mr. Postle has or had. 
what he may have done with his income assets, if he got paid anything to participate in the documentary, etc. A Chapter 7 trustee will investigate. So as you see, while this may speed up his discharging of other debts, because there are other creditors, from what we can see, that have nothing to do with uh, poker or this case, but this could speed up his discharging of those debts, but in general, anti-slap awards, which is what I have and what Veronica has, can't be discharged in bankruptcy. So this would actually move us up on the priority list to the top. And then also the trustee would be investigating what assets he really has, including any assets he might be trying to hide. So this gives us much more visibility into what he really has and raises our priority level to get paid. So this is a smart move, of course, because if we don't take this move from everything we can see, I'm probably just never going to get paid. I don't see Postle whipping out a checkbook and writing a $27,000 check to myself and one to Veronica. We are going forth with our collection efforts. And again, he didn't have to do this. He could have dropped me out. Could have been done. I don't know what uh, Veronica would have done if we hadn't done this. I don't know if she would have taken the same tactic or not. We did it first, but I know I would not be part of it, nor would Eric. Postle would not drop me out when we asked him. And we told him the reasons why he should drop me out. We even told him Todd had nothing to do with this. Todd did not call you out for anything. Todd did not blow up the story. Todd was reporting on what the whole internet was already talking about, the whole internet about the poker internet I'm talking about. By the time he talk, got into the, discussing this, everyone knew already. So why is he part of it? Plus, you're a public figure in poker. You're at the very least a limited purpose public figure in poker, and you volunteered to be one. And you basically have no standing here. We've discussed this before in this show. It was a terrible case. I, I was scratching my head going, is there something we're missing here? How could he have an attorney that isn't advising him that this is a horrible case with no chance? I couldn't understand it. I asked Eric, is there something we're missing? And he said, I don't think so. <laughs> this, this looks like a terrible case. He really, really looked like a limited purpose public figure in poker. That's really what he looked like. It looked damn obvious. And then that really, really, really makes it tough to win any kind of defamation case, especially one like this. So yeah, it, it went kind of like what we expected. I mean, there were a few weird twists along the way, but it ended up with the same result I was expecting. But I mentioned August 17th. Well, this is August 21st right now, so wait a minute. We're four days past the deadline. So did Postle miss the deadline? And the answer is no. He did respond. And I'm going to read to you some things that he wrote. So this was filed on August 13th, 2021, or at least dated August 13th, 2021. I don't know when it was received, but it was received on time. And it was from Postle to U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Sacramento. And he wrote this. Your Honor, I respectfully request an extension in order to appropriately respond to the involuntary bankruptcy filing, which I believe is punitive, made in bad faith, and filed out of spite because Mr. Randazza, remember that's Veronica's attorney, is currently being investigated for threatening me and witness tampering in a different court case. Now you may say, okay, but one, what does it have to do with anything? And two, why is he not talking about Todd and Eric? 
And answer, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not mentioned anywhere here, nor is Eric. It's a very weird response because it's just ignoring that we're part of this. It's all focused on Rendaza and a tiny bit focused on Veronica, but none of it on us. It's very bizarre. Number one, I only received notification a few days ago that I was being sued for involuntary bankruptcy. Mr. Rendaza, an attorney with whom I have an incredibly adversarial relationship, has publicly stated that I do not live full time at the address to which he mailed the notice. He also has my email address, which he has used to communicate with me and serve me copies of legal papers for a prior case where I was the plaintiff and he was the lawyer for the defendant. He also has the address of my parents. He did not send the petition via certified mail, did not send a copy via email, nor to my parents' home where he knows that I can always receive mail. Two, the debt that he claims are legal fees, which were awarded to him on June 15, 2021, just a few weeks before he filed this involuntary bankruptcy petition. The amount is not in dispute, but the fact that he has already been paid these fees is in dispute, as he took over 27000 in donations for the same legal fees he's claiming that I owe. Okay, let me stop here. First of all, I don't understand why he's complaining about the uh, date he received notification, because either Randazza sent him the notification somewhere he could receive mail or he didn't. So Apostle's acknowledging he got the notification. So uh, he's claiming he just got it a few days ago. I don't know if that's true, but it's not really relevant. Uh, It wasn't like it wasn't sent to him. He's admitting it was sent to him. He just doesn't like the address it was sent to. Uh, Second, I don't get Apostle's obsession with that GoFundMe that was run for Veronica, which raised money for her legal defense. That does not prevent the defendant in a defamation lawsuit where anti-slap fees are awarded, where the attorney's fees are awarded, the court fees are awarded. That does not prevent them from getting back their money, even if the case was paid for by others. It does not have to be money out of their pocket. It's just money spent and actually spent on attorney's fees. In fact, it doesn't even have to be already paid. An attorney is allowed to take an anti-slap case on contingency. I don't know if Randazza did that or not, but uh, they are allowed to do that. An attorney is allowed to say, hey, you know what? This is a really, really frivolous case, and I think I have a decent chance to collect. So I'm not going to charge you up front. I'll do all the work to uh, defend this, and then uh, I'll get it on the back end from the plaintiff because I'm, I'm pretty certain this is going to be ruled in your favor. That's completely fine and ethical for an attorney to do. So it's not up to the former plaintiff whose case is dismissed and then owes attorney's fees due to anti-slap. It's not up to them to say, hey, wait a minute, you didn't pay that money yourself. Somebody else paid it for you, or you ran a GoFundMe, or someone in the attorney's office ran a GoFundMe. It doesn't matter. All that matters has to do with the award that the court gives, and uh, that award is based upon actual work done by a licensed attorney to defend this lawsuit, which is determined to be a SLAP lawsuit, which is why it's called anti-SLAP. SLAP stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. So if it's considered a SLAP lawsuit, and it is dismissed for that reason, and the attorney's fees are awarded, as long as the court determines that the attorneys did the work they said they did, and that it's reasonable, and that their fees are reasonable, then that's it. Then the plaintiff, the former plaintiff, owes the money. How the money was previously paid, or if it was paid at all, 
is not material. It doesn't matter. So I don't know why Puzzle's stuck on this GoFundMe thing. I think he doesn't understand. He's trying to make it sound like this is some big scam to double collect, where first they run a GoFundMe to raise legal fees, and then they want him to also pay the legal fees. So basically, Randazza gets paid double, or Veronica gets pocketed, or whatever. But that is not Puzzle's business. Now, possibly people who paid for the legal fees, like people who donated to the GoFundMe, could say, hey, can you give us the money back now because uh, you got it from Possible? And that would be a whole separate matter. But Veronica actually stated in the GoFundMe that any excess would be used to help uh, disabled poker player K.L. Cleeton get a special van to be able to be driven around. This is a, a very uh, disabled poker player. I think he's like a quadriplegic. And uh, this was to get a special expensive van that he needs for transportation. So she put there that anything that is not used for her defense will go to that. So she kind of covered that, that she's not going to pocket the excess that it's going to go to what seems like a good cause. And by the way, uh, K.L. Cleeton did get his van. Anyway, none of this is Postle's business. Number three, he writes, Mr. Rendaza is aware that I have no assets. I was a professional poker player, unable to work for the past year and a half after his client defamed me and claimed that I was a poker cheat. His client brought a case against me, which was dismissed. That's referring to the civil case that was before this that did get dismissed, but kind of like on a technicality. But his client continued and continues to defame and harass me. I filed a defamation case against his client, but ultimately had to withdraw the case when I lost my legal counsel. These fees are the result of his client's anti-slap, which was dismissed but incurred fees. Okay, so but like, what's the point of that? It's This has been litigated already. It's done. The court has determined that as a result of this defamation suit, that number one, the case is dismissed because he dismissed it. And number two, he owes money for the anti-slap. This was determined by the court. So he can't go back and relitigate that and say that uh, he, like, I, I don't know why he's even trying to explain there why he shouldn't owe this money and shouldn't be put in bankruptcy because uh, he thinks Veronica is still be defaming him. That's, uh, that, that's not relevant here. The court already ruled on that. The court ruled that he owes the money for a slap lawsuit that was dismissed with an anti-slap motion. Well, he dismissed it, but then they determined that the anti-slap motion would have likely prevailed. Number four, I need some time to put together my creditors list, which I believe amount to more than 12 creditors. So this is Postle himself saying in a court filing on August 13th that he has more than 12 creditors. Wow. I think that's probably true, by the way. Number five, perhaps more importantly, I believe this filing is completely punitive and filed in bad faith. Mr. Randazza is currently under review in another court for threatening me with, type of, with this type of behavior if I don't lie in court for him. Please see attached. That's a pretty serious allegation. We'll get to that shortly. I do not believe that it is appropriate for Mr. Randazza to file an involuntary bankruptcy petition against me, which is clearly designed to harass, intimidate, and further harm me. If the court feels otherwise, I respectfully request an extension, as I will need some time to find an attorney to answer this petition formally. And then it, he signed Michael Postle, 81321. Then he put a different address there than uh, I've seen before for him, which I, I won't read on the air. Anyway, this was an official court filing, so I'm not reading you secret documents or anything. This has been filed with U.S. Bankruptcy Court. He's basically asking for an extension. I don't understand all this other rambling, but it's basically asking for an ex extension while also claiming the whole bankruptcy filing is 
Randazza trying to torture him. Well, I can tell you, regardless of what's going on between him and Randazza, which we're going to talk about in a second, this filing's not in bad faith. I know this because Eric and Mark Randazza have uh, been in communication since uh, we're both basically doing the same thing. And the purpose for this involuntary bankruptcy filing is very straightforward and obvious and honest. And that purpose is to get us paid because Mike is refusing to pay us. And that's it. He owes us money. He's refusing to pay. Now, if Mike believes I'm incorrect about that, he can cut me a check tomorrow and then I'll come out on the show and say Mike did the right thing and paid. Otherwise, he's refusing to pay. He legally owes me $27,000. He legally owes Veronica $27,000. He is not paying $27,000. We've made it very clear to him we want him to pay. He's refusing to pay. So he is choosing not to pay or even set up any kind of payment plan or anything. He's just not addressing the fact that he owes us this money other than complaining about how he feels he's been wronged. So this filing is not punitive. It's simply a way to get him to pay money that he legally and morally owes. And that's it. And I really don't care about his wrangling with Randazza. I mean, it's kind of interesting to read about, and I'll tell you about it in a second, but I don't care that much about it. This, this is not my business. Yeah, he and Randazza don't get along, and they're in a whole side battle that has nothing to do with us, and they can hash this out in court or wherever, and that's not really my business, and it's uh, not anything I want to really get involved with. But what I do want to get involved with is getting the money that he rightfully owes me. And that's the purpose of this filing. And whatever he thinks of Randazza, that is the reason Randazza is filing the same thing. That's the reason it's like a a joint uh, filing here by the attorneys of both former defendants who are owed $27,000 to get that money. That's all this is. The rest, well, that's between the two of them. So then after this was like a five-page, actually more than five-page. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's about uh, seven pages. And it's something that was prepared by an attorney. And it was an attorney, I believe, is associated with the Honor Network. It's This is actually uh, submitted by attorneys uh, Mark Bankston and William Ogden of... Houston, Texas, part of the firm Caster, Lynch, Farrar, and Ball, LLP. So they attached this, uh, to this uh, response, this whole thing about Postle making various complaints about Mark Randazza. In this long thing they filed with seven pages, it doesn't say a word about Eric Benzamokin or me. It's really about his issues with Randazza, most of which don't have anything to do with this case. So I'll read you little parts of this. It says, uh, Plaintiff's brief opposing Mr. Randazza's appearance included declarations from March 2021 by Alexandra Merrill and Mike Postle discussing an astonishingly abusive phone call they had with Mr. Randazza. The events transpired as follows. On July 29, 2021, Mr. Randazza emailed Mr. Postle and threatened a civil lawsuit. Remember, this is being written by some attorneys 
helping Possible with this, though they are not officially representing him. It's very bizarre. Mr. Randazza stated, It is my intention to file a lawsuit against you for the violation of California Penal Code 637.2. Mr. Randazza threatened this lawsuit due to Mr. Postle allegedly recording Mr. Randazza's calls. Mr. Randazza stated, I'm willing to grant you 24 hours in which to try to resolve this without filing suit against you. Mr. Postle responded by denying that he had recorded any calls and asked Mr. Randazza to leave him alone, stating he, quote, didn't see a reason for you to contact me. Mr. Randazza continued to email Mr. Postle, and his next email, Mr. Randazza stated, well, you both lied in claiming I called her a cunt, referring to Alexandra Merrill, who is like an assistant working with the Honor Network. Uh, Mr. Randazza told Mr. Postle, so how do you want to handle your perjury? Mr. Postle responded again, clearly upset by Mr. Randazza's accusation and his threat. Mr. Postle then asked Mr. Randazza to cease contact. Mr. Postle also stated, I didn't lie. You did say that. Mr. Postle expressed his dismay that Mr. Randazza was, quote, coming, out of, coming at me out of personal anger with a clear vendetta. Mr. Randazza refused to honor Mr. Postle's second demand to cease communicating with him about his declaration. Instead, Mr. Randazza again wrote to Mr. Postle demanding that Mr. Postle, quote, send a letter to the court recanting his testimony. Otherwise, Mr. Randazza planned to, pledged to take action and stated that he was not going to let that rest. Mr. Randazza also added, Indeed, I did say fucking liar. I never deny that. But I certainly did not call her a fucking bitch nor a fucking cunt. And then he put in parentheses, There is a non-zero chance that I thought those things, but they never came out of my mouth. <laughs> That's referring to what he was thinking of Alexandra Merrill. So th- this whole brouhaha is about uh, what Postle wrote in one of his filings. He wrote that Mark Randazza, on a call with him and this Alexandra Merrill of the Honor Network, that, uh, that he called her a, quote, fucking cunt. So what Randazza is apparently saying to Postle is, number one, you're not allowed by California state law to record the phone call. And number two, you committed perjury by saying that I called her a fucking cunt because I did say she was a fucking liar, but I did not say she was a bitch or a cunt. And since you put this in a court filing, this is perjury. So how do you want to handle your perjury? So basically, he may have been asking Postle to further settle with him and not be sued over that perjury. Now, I don't know the legality of this. I don't know if uh, Randazza really could sue him for what he wrote in this filing or if uh, this would be covered under what's known as litigants privilege where certain forms of uh, speech related to court filings or responses to court filings or statements about court filings are protected and it's very hard to ever sue anyone hard or impossible to sue someone for defamation for something like that and otherwise the problem would be when when people are going back and forth in court filings or discussing their court filings uh, there could constantly be defamation claims. So it's basically the court saying that within the confines of the case or even talking about the case, there's certain leeway about what you can say without getting yourself into further trouble. So I don't know if this would be covered by that litigant's privilege and not being an attorney, I can't give you expert commentary on that. So I'm not going to say whether or not uh, Randazza could possibly have any kind of uh, serious case against Postle here, but uh, Randazza was very unhappy when he saw this and was demanding that uh, Postle address this. Attached was an email that was 
allegedly from Randazza to Postle, which probably is the real email. It says, Mr. Postle, I was reviewing this email and note that you admit to recording phone calls without prior knowledge of the other party. Under California's eavesdropping and wiretap laws, any such recording is illegal. Under California law, any party who's aggrieved by your violation can recover civil damages of $5,000 or three times the actual damage, whichever is greater. Uh, so he says, uh, my intention is to file a lawsuit against you for violation of California Penal Code 637.2. However, I'm willing to grant you 24 hours in which to try resolve this without filing suit against you. You may, you may feel free to call me to discuss. I do not consent to recording the call unless we discuss that before the recording begins. Uh, Mike Postle wrote back, My email to you is a bit of hyperbole. I assume you're referring to this section. Quote, I don't think the, your correspondence has been very professional. It's clearly not your style to be professional based on re-listening to the two calls. This is him quoting a previous email back to Rendaza. We've had thus far, so I won't personally hold it against you. I forgot you mentioned to me in our first call that you didn't want to be made in, into a clown, th- thanks to Brill, and I'm still in awe over how you treated Ms. Merrill in the second call. So unless this is court business or you'd actually like to talk about mutual respect, I don't see it as a reason for you to contact me. Uh, my goal was to discover if you would admit to speaking to me and Ms. Merrill so terribly, since in your filed court response you included a statement that your staff confirmed that you had... Uh, not disparaged, and I can't see the rest of it. There's, it's not a very good copy. But no one recorded you. And just just something about he took notes any time he's talking to anyone who's capable of lying or threatens him. So I, it's hard to read all the words here because it's, it's a poor copy of the email. But basically, Apostle's saying, I didn't really record you. I just said I recorded you, uh, going back and re-listening to the call. In reality, I just wrote notes, but I wanted to see if you'd admit to it. So then Mark Randazza supposedly wrote back, well, you lied in claiming that I called her a cunt. I had a third party in the room who could hear my end of the conversation. So how do you want to handle your perjury? And uh, then Mike Postle wrote this rambling email back to him that I won't read you. That's kind of hard to see anyway. And then Randazza wrote back, I absolutely said fucking liar, uh, bitch or cunt. No, not a chance. It is court business when you lie in a sworn statement. If you find no functional difference between calling someone a, quote, fucking liar and fucking bitch or fucking cunt, you're entitled to that opinion. What you're entitled to is perjure yourself and lie about which of the three I did say. What I am entitled to do is take action when someone submits a false statement under the penalty of perjury. Now, that is true, but whether this would be a viable case, I'm not sure. He said, I'm not going to let that rest. However, I will let it rest on one condition, that you admit that it was not true, and I won't use that against you. You need to do nothing more than send a letter to the court stating you made an error, that indeed I did say say fucking liar. I will never deny that, but I did not call her a, quote, fucking bitch nor a fucking cunt. That's where he wrote the line. There is a non-zero chance I thought those things, but they never came out of my mouth. I'm not even sure what you thought you had to gain lying about that, but I will not tolerate the lie, and I will not let this go. So you're moved. You can end it by telling the truth, or you can dig in and enjoy the effect, as you put it. So you see what's going on here. These two really don't like each other. And uh, Rendez is especially angry that Postle filed previous motions just bashing him personally, which he, which he did. And one of the things was the statement about that he called this uh, Alexandra Merrill a, quote, fucking cunt. So Rendez is saying, I never did that. I have witnesses that heard the conversation. And if you don't take this back immediately, I'm suing you for perjury. Now, I think what Randaz is trying to accomplish here is that he doesn't want this to be quoted later by 
enemies of his, either present enemies or future enemies, of something he did, because it's in a court filing claiming he did it. So he wants to be able to show anyone who accuses him of this in the future that Postle retracted it. Now, it is very possible that Postle got it wrong. Maybe Postle misheard. Maybe Postle embellished. I don't know. I never heard this conversation. I know nothing about it other than what I read about in these court filings and Randaz's response. So I, I have no idea what was actually said. But it is possible Randaz didn't really say this, and he's fuming that he's being wrongly accused. He also wrote, allegedly, in this uh, attachment submitted by Postle, My issue with honor, its involvement in this case, has nothing to do with you, but has to do with a collateral attempt to influence another case. And Ms. Merrill most certainly was trying to play lawyer for you, and that's not permitted. So let me stop here. This is a good point that Randazza has. The Honor Network, it was founded in 2014, and it began as an advocate for survivors of and the victims of highly publicized violent incidents that are uh, then online. There are conspiracy theorists that are uh, attempting to make it look like the whole thing wasn't real. So it's basically an organization meant to fight conspiracy theorists who are kind of torturing the families of victims by making it look like the families were in on some conspiracy when they're sitting here trying to grieve for their loved ones. And I admit it's really crappy for people to try to bring out these conspiracy theories when these sort of mass shootings occur, especially if it involves kids, as the Sandy Hook shooting did. So I understand why the Honor Network was formed. And uh, eventually, the Honor Network then started to attempt to uh, prevent anyone from being victimized by online hate and harassment, even if it's not about uh, a mass shooting. So the Honor Network's helping Postle because he is claiming to be a victim of online bullying, which is pretty insane because nobody's bullying him. They're just uh, very critical of him and critical of him because of uh, publicly streamed poker games he was playing in. And people are very suspicious about things that went on there. So that's not bullying. Bullying is hassling someone online because uh, they're, they're fat or they're gay or or, you, or they're ugly. That's, that's what bullying is, is taking a characteristic of someone and uh, making fun of them when they've really done nothing to deserve it. Not when uh, people perceive has someone has done something wrong or some, they perceive someone has committed a crime and they're calling them out for it. That's not online bullying. It may be unpleasant for the person receiving that criticism, but it's not bullying. But anyway, the Honor Network has been helping Postle and Randaza is accusing the Honor Network of helping Postle only because he is an opposing attorney because they tangled with Randaza before because Randaza was representing Alex Jones, who was being sued over being involved in the conspiracy theories about Sandy Hook. So the Honor Network and Randaza had a very bitter, contentious relationship before. And Randaz is basically saying they're interfering in this case, which otherwise they wouldn't bother with, simply because I'm one of the attorneys involved. And, you know, it, it does kind of look like that. It does kind of have that appearance. So I understand why 
Randazza is upset about this and is upset with their involvement. And that's why he's claiming that he called this uh, Alexandra Merrill a, quote, fucking liar when they were on the phone. So that's his defense as to why he used that language, that he was mad at them and mad at Possle for their involvement, which he feels is just a way to punish him for his uh, previous cases with them. So it's, it's a weird side story to this whole thing. Now, if you notice what's absent from all of this would be myself and Eric, because I don't want to get involved with any of that. I privately have my opinions about a lot of this stuff, and much of it I haven't said on this show and won't say, but we're not involved. We just want to get paid what we are owed and to be done. And of course, Eric had no involvement with uh, the Sandy Hook matter, nor did I. I've never once expressed any conspiratorial belief about Sandy Hook, nor is anyone alleging that I ever said that. I've never believed such things. I think it's a tragedy, and I think it's uh, what it appeared to have been. And I'm sure Eric thinks that as well. And Eric has never represented anyone involved with those conspiracies or Alex Jones or anything like that. I understand why there's bad blood between Randazza and the Honor Network. But this has kind of started up a side drama because now they're involved in this, which, in my opinion, I don't think they should be. I think the Honor Network should stay out of this matter. They can do what they wish regarding Randazza with his previous involvement with with that other case, with Alex Jones. And if they uh, want to take action against him or criticize him for uh, his role in all of that, that's up to them. It has nothing to do with me. But I don't know why, why they're involved in this case. It really doesn't make any sense to me. I do see why Randazza is irritated by that, more than irritated. So this is a whole side drama between the two of them, and somehow it made its way into this uh, bankruptcy filing. Very weird. I would never have imagined that when this tragic Sandy Hook shooting took place that I would have some peripheral involvement in subsequent litigation that tied back to Sandy Hook. There is no actual litigation I'm involved with that has to do with Sandy Hook, but the, that there is an effect from the previous litigation that is now affecting my case. <laughs> At least it very much looked like it is. I would be pretty shocked if it didn't have to do with that. He was granted an extension. The extension was given until September 10th, which looks like a little less than four weeks. He originally had to give a full answer by August 17th. The extension was granted to September 10th. Now, does that mean the court was convinced by Apostle's arguments and that the court may have thought that uh, Randazza had done wrong here? No, it does not mean that at all. It means that Mike Apostle has no attorney and that he's claiming he just got notice for it which I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what he's claiming. And he's saying he has 12 creditors and needs to get it all together, needs a bit more time. And it was dated four days before it was due. So the court tends to be very lenient towards those without attorneys when it comes to deadlines, that if someone who has no attorney says, I need additional time to get an attorney and to get things together and to prepare my answer, the court tends to have some mercy 
upon those who don't have attorneys representing them yet and will give extra time. They won't give unlimited time. They'll eventually say, okay, you're out of time, tough luck. But usually if you ask for a first extension, they will grant it. So that's all that really happened here is they're like, uh, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. Here's a few more weeks. That's basically what the court said. They, they, they were not interested in all this other nonsense that was attached there from what I can see. They just like, okay, representing yourself, need more time, first extension request. Okay, bang, granted. So September 10th will be the magic date. He may ask for another extension, but that'll be tougher to get. Not saying he won't get it, but it'll be tougher than the first one. But we'll see if on September 10th we get any kind of filing from him. I'm sure there'll be something filed, but whether it's coherent or not and whether it's actually prepared by an attorney, we shall see. And we shall see if he actually has an attorney or if he just gets one to help him. But there will be some sort of uh, response that is given and then the court will rule on it. And I will let you know what happens. Everything I have read to you was filed in uh, U.S. bankruptcy court during the week of August 13th by Mike Possel. So these are all publicly available documents, and the emails I was reading were attached at the end of the filing. So again, I'm not reading you any secret stuff. This is all public record now. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. We got some texts here from Desert Runner. The witness to the jump will never forget what they saw. It stays with you forever. That's probably true. From the 805, just anecdotally, my 81-year-old mom with MS and recovered from a stroke had a breakthrough Pfizer case of COVID wasn't hospitalized or even treated and has recovered. The vaccine is very important to increase your survival rate. Yeah, probably right. From the 774, please put aside your West Coast bias, which he's right, I have. I do have a West Coast bias. And pray for the people in Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. What is he talking about? That would be Hurricane Henri, H-E-N-R-I. Some people say Henry, but it's actually Henri. And it is expected to have landfall very soon in southern New England and also uh, Long Island of New York. So, yeah, that's going to be pretty tough. It's supposedly going to be the worst hurricane hitting the New York City and New England area since 1985. So hopefully people have... uh, smartly evacuated where they've been told to leave. There's always those holdouts that stay back and some of them unfortunately end up dying. Okay, so moving on here, I want to talk about Kristen Bicknell. Kristen Bicknell really didn't have much controversy up until now. She had a little bit of controversy a little while back when she and Alex Foxen, now her fiancé and then her boyfriend, were at the same final table and were down to the final three, and there were some allegations regarding the way they played. It was nothing that was super blatant or that wrongdoing could be proven. It was There's some soft-playing allegations by the third person at the table. This was back in uh, 2018. But it uh, it never really went anywhere. We discussed it on this show 
Well, that, there was a little bit of controversy, but aside from that, uh, Kristen Bicknell has been basically drama-free up until now. Kristen Bicknell has a lot going for her. She is a Canadian poker pro. She has been successful on the tournament scene for years. She played on Poker Stars as a Chrissy B24. She is 34 years old. Some believe that she's presently the best female tournament player in poker, and that's a reasonable assertion. She has over $5 million in caches. She holds three WSOP bracelets, one being a regular live open bracelet, meaning anyone can enter. Just a regular bracelet like what I have. She has a ladies' event bracelet at the WSOP ladies' event, and she has an online bracelet that she won last year at a WSOP online event. So that makes three actual WSOP bracelets. She is engaged to another top tournament pro, Alex Foxton. Kristen is known to be soft-spoken and pleasant at the table. She pretty much bears down and plays, kind of like the guys at the table do. She's not someone who tends to uh, flaunt the fact that she's female or or tries to flaunt her sexuality for attention. Nothing nothing like that. She's just a, a female who happens to be a very good tournament player that is successful and is engaged to another successful tournament pro. That's pretty much it. She also doesn't tend to get involved in posting uh, controversial or provocative content. And she doesn't really exploit social media to bring attention to herself. So she's no Kate Hall, for example. She's a pretty low-key person. I don't know her personally. I've never met her. But I generally thought highly of her from everything I'd heard and from everything I'd observed. Four years ago, Party Poker must have also been impressed with her as they signed her as a site ambassador. This occurred sometime in later 2017, it appears. However, now she is involved in some uncharacteristic social media drama And unlike the situation where she was at a final table and one of the other three finalists was uh, her boyfriend, Alex Fox, and like that she wasn't asking for. That's just the way the tournament broke out and the third guy made some accusations. That you can say she couldn't help and maybe she was completely innocent. However, this is something of her own choosing, the current drama. And that involves, of all things, the COVID vaccine. Now, if you go to her Twitter, which is Chrissy, that's K-R-I-S-S-Y-B, like boy, 24 poker, Chrissy B24 poker on Twitter, Kristen Bicknell. You will see a lot of anti vax stuff. A lot. Some of it is fairly blatantly anti vax, and some of it is kind of implying anti vax positions. Now, keep in mind, you can very easily criticize the left, the media, the Democratic Party, the CDC. You can do all those things, which I have done. And you can do it publicly, which I have done. And you can still be clearly pro-vaccination, which I am, and which I have openly stated many times. I've stated it on this show. I've stated it on Twitter. I've stated it on the Poker Fraud Alert Forum. So you don't have to be a stooge of the left and the media to be pro-vax. You don't have to be a lover of Dr. Fauci to be pro-vax. You can be very critical of all those parties and organizations 
and still be pro-vax. These are not mutually exclusive. And some people on the right have a hard time with this. And I try to tell fellow people on the right, you know I am a real conservative. I'm not just a conservative who says I am, and then in reality doesn't really hold many positions that are associated with modern conservatism. I am a real, actual, factual conservative and have been my entire life. And still, I am pro-vax because I don't think being pro-vax has anything to do with politics. It's either the vaccine is the right thing to take or it is not the right thing to take. And that also can vary from individual to individual. So an 80-year-old would be quite stupid not to take the vaccine. Someone who's 18, well, they have a much stronger case as to maybe why they don't want to take it. So it does vary from individual to individual, but in general, people should be pro-vax because the science says it, the math says it, the data says it. That doesn't mean the vaccine's perfect. That doesn't mean there aren't breakthrough cases. doesn't mean there might be some degradation over time to where the vaccine doesn't work as well anymore, especially against Delta. These are all probably the case. But you can look at everything. You can look at all the hard data and say, hey, look, it it really supports vaccination. There have been very, very few cases where people are dying or really harmed by the vaccine. But we see lots and lots of cases every day of people dying from COVID who were not vaccinated. So that should answer it right there. That should just shut down the discussion. But at the same time, as I've said before, I've said a lot recently, the left and the media messed this up badly because they put out a lot of lies. Some were for what they considered noble purposes to get people to do the right thing, and some were for political purposes that were not so noble. But you lie to the public over and over, you exaggerate things over and over, you sensationalize over and over, and then when it comes to telling people the truth, hey, the vaccine's the right thing to do, they go, wait, I can't trust you. Why should we believe you now? We've seen you lie so many times over the last 18 months. We think this is probably a lie too. And that's hard to answer. How do you answer back to that if you're on the left or in the media? How do you explain, no, 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 this time we're telling the truth? So instead of even admitting that they weren't always telling the truth or they exaggerated or embellished in the past, they're just denying they ever lied and saying, no, 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 we never lied. That's just uh, right-wing conspiracy stuff. Well, that's not true. They did lie. They lied a lot of times. But the vaccine is separate from all that. This is not a left-wing vaccine. It was actually developed during the Trump administration. So taking the vaccine is not capitulating to the left. It's not political at all. It's just the correct thing to do, especially if you are 35 or older, and especially, especially if you're 45 or older. And you really can't make a valid case of why you shouldn't, especially if you're older. So I'm not one who goes out and shames anti-vaxxers because while I don't agree with their conclusions and I don't agree with their actions, I can see how they got there. I can see why they have the mistrust they have. So instead of calling them stupid or selfish or anti-science, I say to them really what I'm thinking. No, I totally get why you don't trust them. I tell you them. I, I understand why you don't trust these people. I don't either. But if you independently look at it and put aside who you have to trust or not trust, you will see from the raw data it is correct to take the vaccine. And I've convinced people. There have been people who listen to this show. 
that have texted me that they would not take the vaccine before, but upon hearing me cover it, they are now taking it. I've had others that I know personally that have taken it after having discussions with me. And I'm not tricking them or lying to them or telling them what they need to hear. I'm telling them the truth. And they appreciate me telling them the truth. They know they can believe me. And they know that I am a conservative like they are. And some of these people aren't even that political. Some of these people are like centrists who just don't trust the left and the media about COVID because they've seen a lot of things that they have a hard time believing or know are lies. So to have someone validate that and say, yes, they've been full of crap a lot and there's been a lot of manipulation going on. But here's why you should still take it. That's very convincing. Anyway, I don't want to make this into a whole COVID rant, but Christy Bicknell has taken a lot of heat from the poker community over her vocal anti-vax positions. Now, in my opinion, she should take the vaccine. She's 34 years old. She's old enough to where she could have a bad outcome from it. Not even necessarily death, but we have a 34-year-old on the forum who posted Sloppy Joe who got what looks like permanent lung damage from COVID. So yes, it does happen. And it's not a complete fluke. Now, you're much more likely to have a bad or moderately bad outcome if you're over 45 than if you're 34. That's true. But 34-year-olds are not like 18-year-olds. 34-year-olds have a high enough chance for bad outcomes from COVID to where they really should take the vaccine. But I also acknowledge it's not a no-brainer at 34, like it is at my age. So I have to respect that. I have to respect that it's an individual decision and that I have to respect that there have been a lot of lies in the media and from Democratic politicians regarding COVID. Now, before you say, wait, there's a lot of lies from the right. There have been. I I agree with that, too. And that's terrible, too. And I hated that, too. And I, I hate when people on my side post ridiculous things about COVID or about the vaccine. And that's why I'm putting out these efforts to convince these people that those are lies and they shouldn't listen to it. So I'm not just blaming the left. But I do understand why certain people don't trust it. And uh, I don't think they deserve insults or nasty comments. You can send them critical comments. or You can tell them they're wrong. But uh, she's been getting a lot of nasty insults from people. And I don't think she deserves that. And that's not really nice to do, especially to someone who has always been very low-key and non-controversial. We're not talking about, again, like a Kate Hall who's always trying to say outrageous things and get people's attention. We're talking about just a quiet girl who's just keeping her head down and playing poker and uh, has a good reputation and is known to be nice. So you may not agree with her vaccine stance, and I don't. I don't agree with her vaccine stance. And I said so directly to her on Twitter. But you still have to treat her with respect if you're a decent human being. Anyway, she's been taking a lot of heat. Here's one of the tweets she wrote. This is on August 18th, but this is by far not the first tweet. She's written a ton like this. Can we please stop calling it an anti-vax movement? I'm anti-mandates, passports, that is vaccine passports, anti-medical fascism, and anti-lies from the CDC, FDA, governing bodies who we're supposed to be able to trust. Well, she's not wrong there. Like, I feel the same way about most of that. However, to me, that doesn't translate to being anti-vax To me, that just translates to ignore those people and do your own research. (laughs) That's, to me, what that means. Not because these organizations and people aren't that trustworthy that 
any vaccine made you just wouldn't take. That's I, I don't think one connects to the other. It just invites a little more skepticism. And then upon further research, one should say, okay, no, it's fine. So it is an anti-vax movement. I understand the roots of it. I understand why a lot of people feel this way, and it's not the reasons that have been uh, vilifying them. And what's interesting is you see a lot of bashing of white right-wing anti-vaxxers, but you don't see any bashing in the media, or really on social media, of black anti-vaxxers, except for maybe conservative black people, but uh, uh, non-conservative black people who are not taking the vaccine, which they're really getting fairly low numbers taking the vaccine in the black community, they're not getting mentioned at all. And that's a problem too. Now they have a different reason and they actually have a reasonable answer to why they don't trust the vaccine because of uh, some pretty bad history, albeit a long time ago. And those who committed these offenses are no longer alive, but there, there were some incidents in this country a long time ago where, uh, there was basically uh, medical experimentation on black people and it was very, very bad. And unfortunately nothing can be done now because those who did it are long dead. Yeah. This has kind of resonated with, within the black community and there's a lot of distrust for when they're being told by the government, Hey, put, put this experimental thing into your body. That's their reason. Again, I don't agree with what they're doing, but they have a reason you can kind of understand just like you should be able to understand why some white right-wingers are refusing to take the vaccine. It's a different type of distrust. So whenever the government doesn't treat you in a straightforward and honest fashion, then it will result in people refusing to do things that otherwise seem logical. So in the case of the white right-wingers, they feel that in the last year and a half, they've been talked to dishonestly. And in the case of the black non-right-wingers who are anti-vax, they think back to their history from the uh, 20th century and just are hesitant for that reason. So the way to get these people to take the vaccine is to acknowledge what happened before and say it was wrong, it shouldn't have been done, and here's why the vaccine is good. So what we're really seeing, though, is the white right-wingers are just being told, you're crazy, you're anti-science, you're stupid, listen to us, and that's not going to change any minds. And the black people are just being ignored. They're not telling them they're wrong they're just kind of skipping by it because uh, the left never knows how to say anything that could potentially make black people look bad. So they just kind of skip by the whole thing and don't ever address it, which, which is harmful, unfortunately. Really, both should be addressed. And the wrongs which led up to where they are today should be addressed. But we're not going to see that. But if we really want to see higher vaccine totals in this country, higher vaccinated percentages in this country for COVID, that's what must be done. That's why I can convince people to take the vaccine and the typical left-winger cannot because I can approach them as one of them and I can explain that I, I feel the same way they do about a lot of the behavior of the left and the media for the last 18 months. And someone on the left will never do that. Someone on the left will never acknowledge these things. They just want to tell you how wrong you are and how stupid you are. So we're never going to get there. We're never going to get most of these anti-vaxxers to take the vaccine. Maybe few will be scared enough to do it just from seeing all the people who are dying who are unvaccinated presently. That'll scare some people, but 
we're never going to get the numbers we need. That's too bad. Anyway, back to uh, Kristen Bicknell. She's been taking a lot of heat. And I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about it out here. In fact, this was going on last week. I didn't bother to make it a story. Because, you know, so what? So she and Alex Foxen are anti-vax. And Foxen's actually been more vocal than she has. He's been even more aggressive with his anti-vax position. I don't think it's a coincidence that both of them feel the same way and are vocal about it. Clearly, one has been influencing the other, in my opinion. I don't know which. Uh, He's been the stronger one on Twitter with stating this. So if I had to guess, it would be more him influencing her, but maybe it's the other way around. Maybe she influenced him. This tends to happen with couples that are married or uh, engaged or with each other a long time is uh, sometimes one will influence the other and then they'll kind of spin each other up and really become pretty fanatical about whatever uh, political opinion they hold. This isn't just about the vaccine. This is not right or left. I've seen it happen on both sides. I've seen it where uh, you have a couple where one influences the other and they become very far right. I've seen the other situation where they've become very far left. Or I've seen just where they take an interest in a particular topic. Like, it seems like Kristen and Alex are just very into this anti-vaccine stuff. Unfortunately, what they seem to be either uh, ignoring or just deciding they don't care about is that both of them are marketable from a sponsorship standpoint. And this kind of messes it up. (laughs) This isn't a way to get lucrative poker sponsorships to come out and tell people not to take the vaccine. A lot of people are very sensitive about that these days, as you might understand. And this does not make you a hot commodity, no matter how well you play at the poker table. Now, they may not care. They may say, hey, we're doing well enough at the table. We don't need the sponsorship money. We're not going to shut our mouths. We, We find this important enough to continue. However, Kristen Bicknell was a sponsored player. Alex Foxen, interestingly enough, is not, but Kristen Bicknell is, or shall I say was, until she tweeted on August 20th, 2021, it's been a great four years working with Party Poker. I'm excited to keep growing and promoting poker the best I can in Canada and around the world. Remember, she's Canadian. And I will always strive to serve as a model for other women to play this great game. So basically, she is saying... I am no longer with party. (laughs) Of course, everybody had the same thought when this was announced just a short time after she'd been a vocal anti-vaxxer. This wasn't right after she started with this stuff, but not too long after. And then all of a sudden, boom, after four years, I'm not with party anymore. So it doesn't take a genius to say, hmm, I wonder if party was unhappy about this. By the way, she has her Twitter set to where you cannot reply to any of her threads unless you're someone that uh, she follows. It's not just you following her. She has to follow you. Now, interestingly enough, I can answer her because I'm one of the 909 people that she follows. She has about 17,000 followers, but I'm one of the 909 she follows. I'm not sure what made her follow me, but I think she's followed me for some time, probably just because I'm like a semi-known person in poker. I have never had any interaction with her, except I did uh, tweet to her today and a few days ago. But in in neither case did I get an answer. So we really have never had interaction back and forth. 
But some people did wonder if this had to do with her recent positions on Twitter. And it's a very reasonable thing to wonder. I wondered the exact same thing when this was announced. You have to understand that these sponsorships are very nice to have if you're a poker pro because it's just free money. You don't have to do very much. And you get pretty good money for it. Now, sometimes there's a travel element that some people find bothersome. Chris Moneymaker cited that as the reason that he quit with poker stars. Now, I think they probably lowered his uh, compensation package to where it just wasn't worth to keep traveling. But clearly, he didn't like the travel very much anymore. He got tired of it. He didn't want to go around the tournament scene. He wanted to stay at home with his family. And he was just getting sick of it. And probably stars lowered what they were going to pay him. And he said, hey, this ain't worth it. I I don't want to continue doing this mandatory travel. I want to mostly stay at home. So F it, I'm just not taking it. I'll see which, if I can latch on elsewhere. And indeed, he, he uh, latched on with ACR where he can mainly play from his home. So that was a good fit for him. Anyway, typically, poker pros really like having these sponsorships because they wear a patch. They go to a few events that they get bought in for. They get cash. They get free buy-ins and... It's very good money compared to what you're actually doing. And also, as a poker pro, it makes it a lot easier to cope with the variance of the profession, especially the tournament profession. Now, I am mostly a cash player. So I have variance like everybody else, but I don't have the type of variance that the tournament players do. Because if you think about it, as a tournament player, you're chasing the big score. And if you don't get the big score, which means the top few places in the tournament, then you're not going to break even. So you're not going to be a winning tournament player min-cashing. You have to have big scores. And there's a lot of variance in tournaments because the blinds escalate so quickly. And a lot of the end of tournaments is dictated by luck. So you can go through long droughts of not hitting that big score, even if you're playing extremely well. At the same time, you can go through some very hot streaks where you're winning or nearly winning time after time after time because you're on the right side of variance. But being a tournament pro is very stressful. I couldn't do it. I know that Ari Engel, Bodog Ari, he is a tournament pro who travels all around the world to play poker and doesn't even have a permanent home. And I admire his ability to do this. And he's a very good player, as you guys all know, and he's been around for a very long time. But I couldn't do what he does. It would stress me out. Even putting aside that I have a family and I wouldn't want to ditch my family all this time. He doesn't have a family, so he doesn't have to worry about that. But uh, even if I didn't, even if I was just a single guy in my mid-30s, as he is, I still couldn't do that. It would be too stressful. I like just being a cash player and where I don't have to be concerned about when I'm running super hot in order to make money. But there's a number of tournament pros out there who mainly play tournaments for a living, and that's basically what they're chasing. So if you have a poker site that is either buying you into events or giving you cash or both, that really takes a lot of the pressure off. And that makes it a lot easier if you're not getting that big score for a while because you still have good money coming in. So for that reason, it's not that common 
for poker pros to get up and leave when they are being sponsored. In most cases, when they, quote, leave, it's because the sponsorship has left them. The sponsorship leaves them for one of a few reasons. It could be that the site is just cutting back on the marketing dollars it's spending on these sponsored pros. It could be that the site has just determined they're not worth as much as was first uh, believed, and they will only offer them a renewal at a cut rate, and the pro decides it's not worth it and doesn't accept. That's a big one that happens pretty frequently. Or sometimes the site just simply does not want to continue with that pro, such as they believe they bring them no value, or they believe they're bringing them negative value if it's someone who is uh, controversial or has uh, been perceived to have done some bad things. So these are reasons that people are dropped, but usually it's just the site doesn't offer the person as much as it once did, and the person does not want to continue staying with them. So the person does not renew, and then they hope they can find a better deal with other poker sites. Now, when does this typically happen? Well, this typically happens at renewal time, and usually the length of the contract is a year. So you sign with a site for a year, and then when the next year comes up, when it's approaching the year date, you discuss a renewal and you're made an offer and then you negotiate back and forth and if you can't come to a number that you find acceptable then you leave now when this occurs usually both sides say nice things about one another where the player leaving says it's been a great x number of years and i've really enjoyed it and it's time to move on and do different things and the site tends to put out some kind of praise for the player about what a great player and great ambassador they were and they move on and privately the player may be a little miffed that their offer was a low ball to go forward like this, but they never say that, or they usually don't say it. And even if the site is irritated that the person won't accept a lower rate after being paid so much money all that time, uh, they kind of just swallow their pride and each put out a nice statement about each other and move forward. Once in a while, you get some bitterness, like uh, Vanessa Selbst when she was... Uh, kicked out as a poker stars pro i think probably under the same circumstances that basically they just didn't want to pay her what she wanted and uh, she wrote some uh, pretty nasty things about them on the way out nor did they praise her so that was one of the uh, less amicable departures kristen bicknell as i read to you from that tweet was one of those who put out a positive statement about the site that was formerly sponsoring her she said that uh, it's been a great four years working with Party. She says, time for us to part ways. I didn't look what Party Poker said about her, but she didn't say anything negative about them. And she sort of implied that it was positive. It's been a great four years working with Party Poker. Now, she didn't say it's time for us to part ways, which is a little bit uh, weird. It's almost like a little bit of a jab at them, like... Uh, yeah, I enjoyed being four years with you guys, but yeah, it's time to go. Like, imagine if your girlfriend told you that. Yeah, I've enjoyed being with you for four years, but it's time for us to part ways. You're like, whoa, whoa wait, 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 what did I do? Why? Why are you leaving me? So uh, I'm sure Party knows why she's leaving, but it's time to part ways. That's not the nicest thing to say, but it's been a great four years working with them. That's nice. And she didn't criticize them directly. So it really looks like on the surface, it's some sort of contractual thing where they just weren't 
offering to pay her as much as she was hoping. But why? Let's look at some things here. She is a Canadian player, which means party is in that market. She's not an American player. If she was an American player, it makes sense because they'd say, wait a minute, this is a site that aside from a few states where it's legal, people can't play on party in the U.S. But people can play on party in Canada. So it makes sense to have a Canadian pro like Kristen Bicknell. And at least up until the anti-vax stuff, she had a great reputation and she was known to be an excellent player and successful. And there's kind of the interesting element that she's part of a poker tournament power couple, her and Alex Foxen. She seemed well-liked. Other than that weird accusation when it was three-handed, which really never caught on anywhere, she has been scandal-free, and she has a nice demeanor for what I've seen. So why wouldn't they want to continue with her? I mean, yeah, she's not the most gregarious person, and maybe they felt like she just doesn't have the personality that they really want from one of their pros. But she doesn't have a bad personality. She's not unlikable. She has a good reputation. People like her. So if not for this, why wouldn't they want to continue with her when it seems to be more and more believed as time passes that she is presently the best female tournament pro? That's a pretty big deal to be the best female tournament pro. I know it's subjective, but if that's true, and a lot of people believe it to be true, that's pretty good to have that person on your roster. It's a lot better to have that person than just some pretty girl who is mediocre, but people like the way she looks. And by the way, Kristen Bicknell is an attractive girl. It's not like she's ugly, but she's good. This, this is an attractive girl who's 34, who also is believed to be the best female tournament pro. And up until this anti-vax stuff, wasn't really saying anything controversial on social media. So to me, this looks pretty good. I mean, yeah, it would be nice if you had all that, plus her being like super outgoing and, and a great personality for uh, the face of a brand, but uh, they don't necessarily need that. You just don't want her to be unlikable, and she definitely is not unlikable. So why would they not want to continue with her? Why would they cut her rate to such a degree to where she would quit. So my thought was, okay, let's look at the date when she signed with them in 2017. So if she signed with them, say, in uh, January, this wouldn't make a lot of sense because this would be the middle of the year. And the only reason for her to part ways in August would be that they basically fired her or threatened to fire her if she continues to post her anti-vax stuff. But if she signed in mid-August then it would totally make sense that she just didn't renew. Now, it could still mean they didn't renew her for this reason, but then it's very hard to draw any conclusions. Maybe they just chose to non-renew her because they didn't want to spend as much money and she was unhappy with that and uh, wouldn't accept their lowball offer and that was that, as happens with so many other sponsored pros over the last several years. So really, I was trying to figure out when did she sign? And surprisingly, I couldn't find any article about her signing with Party Poker. The only thing I found was an article from January 31st, 2018, that mentioned that she and various other pros 
have signed with party, quote, since September. That was referring to September 2017. That didn't mean they signed in September, but that she and like seven other people signed with party since September 2017, between then and January 2018. So that could be anywhere in that range. Now, she said it's been a great four years. So if she signed like January 3rd, 2018, I don't think she'd say four years because 2018 is three years ago. So yes, it's January, but that would still be like three and a half years, not four. I don't think she'd say four if it was 2018. So I have a feeling that when she says it's been a great four years, she probably means close to four years. And that article did say that she was one of the people who signed with them, quote, since September 2017. So let's say she signed in the middle of September 2017. Well, it's the middle of August 2021 right now. So this would make it almost four years. So if that's the case, if she really did sign in like mid-September of 2017, wouldn't that be close enough to four years to where if they decided not to renew her because of uh, differences in what the compensation was going to be, what she wanted versus what they were willing to give, wouldn't that make sense that she'd leave now? Well, not really, because it's probably a year contract. So why would she leave early? Now, it's possible they just couldn't come to terms and they let her go early. They didn't stop paying her. They said they already paid her for the year. And either she just kind of plays it out for the final few weeks or they just let her go early and let her just go search for greener pastures. Maybe they figured they don't need her anymore for the next few weeks. So it could have been something like that, that they just couldn't come to terms and decided to let her go a bit early. But it's also possible that they came to her and they said, hey, you know, we don't really like what you're posting about this anti-vax stuff. It kind of makes you look bad as a party poker pro. Can you stop talking about this? And she's like, uh, no, I feel strongly about this. I will express my opinion. I'm going to express it, express it respectfully, as she has. She, is not, uh, she hasn't been insulting people. She hasn't been nasty to people who've been critical of her. So she has been very... Uh, respectful in the way she's debated with people about this, but she has expressed some pretty strong opinions about the vaccine. So it's possible she said, look, I'm going to keep stating my opinion about the vaccine, and if you guys don't like it, tough luck. And then party may have said, well, we don't like it, so if you're going to continue representing us, then maybe we should part ways. And maybe she said, yeah, maybe we should. (laughs) So It's possible this is like kind of a mutual divorce where they just couldn't come to an agreement about whether she can talk about this topic. And they're like, well, you can only talk about it this way if you want to not represent us. She's like, okay, I won't represent you. And they just didn't renew her and let her go a few weeks early. That could easily be something like that. However, she did say that her departure had nothing to do with things on Twitter. She posted that in response to a Poker News article that was being promoted on Twitter about her departure from Party Poker. So I responded back saying, can you give us some more information on the reasons you did leave? And she didn't answer. So she's insisting it didn't have to do with that. But maybe it's true. Maybe this is just weird timing, but it has nothing to do with it. It's also possible that she doesn't know It's possible that when it came to renew, that at the same time she was going forth with her anti-vax stuff. 
And then someone at party's like, oh, boy, this kind of degrades her value. You know, we really don't want her anymore. Let's just uh, offer her something pretty low and she'll probably leave. And then they did that. And then she said, no, sorry, not enough money. And they said, that's sorry, but it's the most we can give you. Okay, bye. So in her mind, it would appear that it has nothing to do with this. When it actually did, they just never told her. So it's, it's possible this is kind of a way to quietly get rid of her, just give her a lowball offer. And then when she doesn't accept, then say, okay, well, we're not going to ask for the money back for the remaining few weeks. You can just uh, keep it and we'll announce you're leaving now. And she's like, okay, fine. This is all speculation. I have no inside information on this. I'm just guessing. But given that we're not like right at the four-year mark, I'm fairly certain about that. Because I, I found a picture of her from May 2017, and she was at a party poker event. But what's notable in that picture is she does not have a party poker patch on, and the guy with her, it wasn't Alex Fox into some dude who represented a party, the guy in her with the picture has a party poker little patch or sticker or whatever on his shirt. So he's wearing one, she is not. So that's very telling, that she wasn't part of it in May. And then that other article said she signed, quote, after September. To me, it looks like she signed with party in the final five months, of 2017 and we're nearing but not quite at the four-year mark and yet she's no longer with him so what happened why did she leave before the four-year mark i would be surprised if it had nothing to do with this it just wouldn't make sense to me yes her exact words were this has been in the works for a while now nothing to do with my twitter activity that does make it seem more like it's contractual this has been in the works for a while now. Uh, but it could be a combination, as I said. It could be that they were negotiating a contract renewal and this anti-vax stuff was going on and this made them less likely to want to give her what she wanted or anywhere near what she wanted. It's interesting. I wonder where she can catch on now. I mean, on, on one hand, she's bringing a lot of positives to the table, but on the other hand, I'm not sure right now if any site wants to be associated with... Uh, someone who is putting out a pretty strong anti-vax message and is engaged to another poker pro who is putting out an even stronger anti-vax message. So, I don't know what the future is here. We'll see if she signs anywhere else in the upcoming few months. Because one theory is that she wasn't happy with what they were going to offer her, and she is now looking elsewhere and is going to sign with another site shortly. Like, look, that's what happened with Moneymaker. He announced he's leaving stars, I don't want to travel, blah, blah, blah. And then a short time after that, he signs with ACR and points out, hey, I don't have to travel with them. This is perfect for me. Which I believe. I don't think this is a lie. I'm just saying that when Moneymaker didn't re-sign with Poker Stars, I knew he wasn't going to go back to being an accountant. I knew he was going to take his existing fame and existing notoriety and use that to become a representative of another site, and indeed he did. Which I would have done too. But I think she's going to try as well. But I don't know if this is going to get in the way. There's a lot of people like really sensitive about any anti-vax messaging, especially because, and I don't think this is fair, people are blaming COVID deaths on anti-vaxxers. And 
the truth is that almost all of the deaths are those who are anti-vaxxers, or at least won't take the vaccine. So if you're refusing to take the vaccine and taking the chance with COVID, and then you die of COVID, it's, it's really your fault. It's, it's not, you don't deserve it, but it is your fault because it was preventable. So I don't see why others are mad at you because you and other people who won't take the vaccine you know, die from COVID. Now, I'm hearing the answer, oh, well, this is what's keeping COVID alive is it can keep mutating when people are not taking the vaccine. But we don't know that for sure. It's, it's very possible it's going to keep mutating even if we are taking the vaccine. I also don't think that uh, taking a vaccine for the good of public health is a good reason to take the vaccine. It's nice if that's a secondary benefit of it. But when you're telling someone to inject a vaccine into their body, what you really need to be selling them is that it's good for them, that it will protect them. It's the right decision for them, not the right decision for the public at large. That's not how human beings work. A few might work that way, but most people are not going to inject a vaccine that comes with a risk because they want to protect the general public. They're going to inject the vaccine to protect themselves. And that's the reason people are willing to take a risk with the vaccine, which it is a risk. Not a big one, but it's a risk. And I don't feel it's really my right to tell people they must inject something into their body that was just developed less than a year ago. Even if I think they should, I can understand why they don't want to, and I can understand the reason for the distrust. That's why you shouldn't hate these people. You shouldn't look down on them. And if you want to try to convince them, you got to be honest with them. If you're going to talk down to them, or act like you're smarter, or act like they're crazy, you're going to get nowhere. And in fact, you are not being honest by approaching them that way. The only way they will change is if you really understand, not pretend to understand, but we really understand why they are anti-vax. And it's not because some right-wing site told them to be. I mean, that may be where it started, but then they look and they see proof that they were lied to. So even if it started from a right-wing site or right-wing news organization, they get led to the proof that they were lied to, and then it's very easy for them to go along with that narrative. And you must acknowledge that if you want anyone to change who is refusing to take the vaccine because they don't have a trust in government. And I, I see these stupid articles about how to convince people to take the vaccine, and it's so funny. It's like it's like how to gently tell someone that they're ignorant and stupid and to listen to you. And to say, oh, no, I, I understand your concern. I understand the right-wing media has been saying a lot of scary things, and, and if I listened to that, I would think that too. But let me tell you the actual science. No, that, that, that's you talking down to them, saying that you're a fool who is tricked by the right-wing media. That's not the right way to say it. And that's not even the full truth. That's why nobody's getting convinced. Some people are being scared into it by Delta, but they're not being convinced. By the way, I also don't believe in scaring people with stories that aren't true, because that always backfires too. Right now, we're seeing a lot of that with the claim that it is killing children and hospitalizing children, and ERs are busting at the seams with children. And that's attempted to be used to uh, scare people into taking the vaccine. It's having the opposite effect. 
It's making anti-vaxxers feel even better about their position because they see they're being misled again. Don't mislead people into doing what you want. But at the same time, if you have not taken the vaccine yet, and this is a show with mostly an older audience. Most of the audience is around my age or older. A few of you are a little bit younger or older. You know, there's, there's, we have an age range here, but it's not a young audience. It's an audience that typically ranges between uh, 35 and 70. So most of you are in an age group where it's very smart to take the vaccine, especially if you're over 45. Just go do it. Trust me that I am the last one who's going to get uh, tricked by the media or the left into doing this. And I did it. And treat everybody with respect based upon their decision. Don't look down on people for not taking the vaccine. You just need to talk to them and be honest with them. Okay, so moving on here. If you want to text me, 775-372-8355. Some more Mason Malmuth drama. And it revealed some interesting things from the past. So as you know, 2 Plus 2 was sold to two young guys who were either like Russian or Ukrainian or Ukrainians from Russia. I, I don't quite know, but whatever. I know one of them went to Moscow State University. But the owners have basically left the building. It, it's really strange over there because it's still not clear what was paid. One of the two new owners claimed they paid seven figures, which is insane. That's insane. Can you imagine 2 plus 2 in its present uh, fairly dead state that at this point, especially with forms on the decline, that these guys would buy it for more than $1 million. But maybe they did. I don't know. But they're gone. They have not posted since August 8th, which is now about two weeks. There is still some moderation over on 2 Plus 2, but I don't know who's doing it. I don't know who's doing the moderating, but I do see sometimes posts are deleted, threads are deleted. It's really weird because there's some moderation going on and I don't quite understand what it is. I mentioned that on the last show. Mason is still posting there and he's taking a beating. And the reason he's taking a beating, and I'm participating there as well. I registered a new account named Dan underscore Druff. And I've been criticizing uh, Mason and also David Skolansky pretty strongly, but I wasn't the one who started it. As I mentioned on previous shows, there is a user on there with like a gimmick account named Spambot Alpha who registered only to bring up again that David Skolansky did some pretty bad things circa 2007-2008. And the person was bringing up some pretty bad stuff that he met a uh, 16-year-old on a party line and had her come live live with him for a while, for quite some time and eventually they had a sexual relationship that he wrote some really awful things to mid-2000s uh, poker player Brandy Hopaker who eventually killed herself at the beginning of 2008 and that David had written to her at one point that she would be better off committing suicide. And then a month later, she did. Very sad story. He also threatened to have 
loyal followers of his throw acid on her face to disfigure her. It's really bad stuff. Can you imagine a guy over 60 years old writing this to a girl in her mid-20s, a girl with a known history of psychological illness, which Brandy definitely had? Can you imagine threatening to have people throw acid on her face and disfigure her? Or telling her she'd be better off killing herself? I mean, that's really awful stuff. And then he wrote a lot of sexual messages to her and was demanding she send him uh, panty pics with uh, pubic hair peeking out. Some pretty disgusting stuff from Skolansky, who should have known better. Especially the suicide stuff he wrote. I mean, that's just awful. Now, this was a scandal at the time, in 2008. And as I mentioned on the last show, the one who really brought it out was Brian Mikon, who was formerly a partner of mine on the radio and running forums. Mikon and I had a falling out, which I explained on the last show, so we haven't been friends in a decade. But we were pretty close back in 08 when this was going on. And Brandy brought some emails that David had sent her, some disturbing emails, and was... uh, and she brought that to Mikon and said, look what David's doing. And then Mikon published it. And then David kept sending more emails to her, even knowing these were being published in real time on Everyone Poker, because he was referring to them being published in real time on Everyone Poker. So it was really weird. Like she's like, he's like writing her emails that look like they are intended to be private, but then he's acknowledging she's posting them on Everyone Poker as he's doing it. So uh, these emails were really disturbing. And since it's 13 and a half years later, a lot of people on 2 Plus 2 either don't know about all this or only heard something about it or forgot the extent of it or never saw the worst of the worst emails. It generally wasn't known how bad this whole situation really was, especially given the standards people have today on how men treat women and that there's been the whole Me Too movement and there's been a general backlash against uh, powerful men who use their position to abuse women and uh, or sexually harass women and exploit women. Like all, all of this is getting a lot more spotlight than it used to. And even people who did things years ago, like celebrities who did things years ago to exploit or abuse women are now getting their comeuppance and they are uh, suffering for it and they're being shamed in the public eye and their careers are ruined and their reputations are ruined. I'm talking about uh, famous people. The best-known one, of course, has been uh, Harvey Weinstein, who was not just a harasser of women, he was actually a, a criminal and a rapist, but uh, this has been something that's been happening over the past four years, and I actually support that, as long as the allegations are true. I think that bad behavior does need to be called out, and that women should always be treated respectfully, and clearly David Skolansky did not engage in respectful behavior, and he does seem to have a pattern of uh, taking advantage of young and vulnerable women, and he's even admitted it. He doesn't say he's taken advantage, but he describes situations which any rational or sane person would say, yeah, this is a much older guy taking advantage of a teenage girl or a, or a young woman who's in a desperate situation. Uh, he had, and I think still has, a relationship, a sexual relationship with a girl that he himself described in a post on 2 Plus 2, I'm talking about David, as, quote, uh, mentally handicapped. And I've seen pictures of her. These are kind of disturbing pictures to even see. This is a girl who's a product of incest. Her name is Sue. 
And I've seen pictures of her like next to these giant dolls where she's dressed up like a doll herself. And this is not as a kid. This is as an, a young adult. So it kind of indicated to me, this is 13 years ago, but I could easily believe this is the same the case today, uh, at least back then, that she was kind of in a perpetual childlike state and was kind of uh, not very sophisticated, so to speak. Someone who's in their early 20s and dressing up like a doll and taking a picture with dolls, that's, that's kind of like someone who kind of still feels like a child. That's not someone you picture as one that is uh, one who's a very sexual person or should be engaged in sexual relationships with uh, older men who take them in and then engage in that with them. That really looks like exploitation, even if she's of age. And I'm not even sure what age she was when she met Skolansky. She may have been underage when she met him. But even if she wasn't, uh, mentally, I felt she was not of age. And he even admitted that she was uh, mentally handicapped. That doesn't mean she has no idea what's going on. I, it doesn't mean she can't hold a coherent conversation. It just means that she's not a normal person mentally. And from those pictures I saw of her with the dolls, it definitely looks like that. So there was that, and then there was Brandy stuff, and there was that girl beforehand that he was 16 that, that he met off a party name named Sara. A lot of stuff all kind of indicating a pattern that Skolansky kept ending up with these girls that were decades younger than him, in some cases under 18, and would either develop a sexual relationship with them or pursue one. So this isn't appropriate stuff. This is pretty bad stuff, and especially when things start to go south and he starts writing things to them, threats of disfiguring them or telling them to kill themselves, and knowing he's writing to to a person who has the capability to do that. At least if someone writes to me that I should kill myself, I'm not going to go, hmm, you know, maybe I will. Like That wouldn't have an effect on me because I wouldn't do it. But you write this to someone who already has suicidal tendencies that's awful because uh, they might go ahead and do it, and Brandy did a month later. So, I mean, he's lucky that this didn't occur in 2021 because I think this would have been a huge scandal and this would have really ruined him. Can you imagine telling a girl with known psychological issues that she'd be better off committing suicide than she does? I mean, there's even criminal statutes against this. So Skolansky never really got full comeuppance from this. I mean, he had a, a somewhat of a bruised reputation from it, but the full extent was never known. And it seemed like Mason put out some substantial effort to quiet this down somewhat. Now, he didn't completely stop discussion of it on 2 Plus 2, as I mentioned on the last episode, but he did tell David to stop posting about it, and he did uh, eventually shut down discussion of the matter. So this has only been able to be fully discussed without any kind of censorship recently since the Russians took over and people can just register there and, and post about the situation. Now, what's weird is there is some moderation going on in the site, but at this point, whoever's doing the moderating is not deleting those posts. I can't understand why and what's motivating them to delete certain posts and not others, but, but that's what's going on over there. So this has come out, and Mason is trying to defend himself. Now, where Mason's part is comes from why did he keep Skolansky as an author at 2 Plus 2 Publishing and as an administrator on, on 2 Plus 2 forums, 
once this all came out, why didn't he distance himself and say, wow, I had no idea Scalancy was doing this stuff. Okay, he's disassociated with 2 plus 2. Why didn't he say that in 2008 when this came out, especially the stuff about Brandy, especially that? Like once, once he read those emails, why didn't Mason say, whoa, 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 this is real bad stuff. Sorry, David, we're, we're splitting off here. So Mason has been avoiding answering that question, but when he does answer, we get a lot of nonsense. We get things that don't really make a lot of sense. He says he wasn't fully paying attention to it at the time. He, he doesn't get involved in people's personal lives. Or uh, he allowed discussion. What, what are we talking about? There was, no, well, there was no cover-up. So we'll get answers like that, but he doesn't directly answer, like, how come when you saw these emails that were published on Everyone Poker and that people pub- reposted on 2 Plus 2, how come after those were made public and surely you've seen them and surely you were aware of all the discussion of them, why did you not disassociate with him? How, how come you say you're such a high and mighty moral person and yet someone does something like this and he remains your main author of 2 Plus 2 Publishing and an administrator on 2 Plus 2 Forums? So it's hard for him to answer this because there is no good answer he can give. Because he did know about this stuff, and he chose not to do anything. It seemed like what he chose to do was to try to tone down the coverage of the story and kind of protect his business as much as possible and get out of having to disassociate with David, who was probably making him a good deal of money at the time during the poker boom when poker books were very big and the 2 plus 2 forum was very big. So that's what looks like really happened. It looks just about impossible that Mason wasn't fully aware of everything that was going on or that he didn't understand what was going on. It just looks like that he was in cover-up mode. He was in damage control mode for his company. And he chose to do that rather than doing the right thing and disassociating with David. Because even by 2008 standards, this was very bad. Now, we talked about this last time, so I don't want to get into this whole thing again. But Mason has been annoyed that I showed up on 2 Plus 2 and that I was making a big deal out of the fact that not only was Mason acting very selfishly here and very inappropriately with uh, how he was supporting David, but also that he was engaging in a cover-up and that as part of the cover-up, I was banned from 2 plus 2 in 2008 when this all went down, even though I had nothing to do with the exposure of the whole thing. The exposure of the whole thing, as I mentioned last time, was done by MyCon. I had nothing to do with it, but I was an administrator on, on Neverwin Poker at the time. I was not an owner, but I was an administrator. And I was banned literally for guilt by association. That's why I was banned from 2 plus 2, because my then-friend MyCon was exposing what David was really doing. And I have been throwing that in Mason's face recently, saying, if you were not trying to cover up what happened, and if you were not trying to punish those for bringing it out, why was I banned? And he's been trying to come up with every story possible to explain it. So I think I was getting into his head more than anybody because he actually started a new thread on 2 Plus 2 about me and about why I have been banned from 2 plus 2. And it's a weird thing for him to start because of everything people are concerned about on 2 plus 2 right now, at the very bottom of the list was, why was Todd Wittella's banned on 2 plus 2? Like, I care why I was banned on 2 plus 2 because it's me, but I don't expect the average 2 plus 2 user to really stay up nights thinking about why I was banned on 2 plus 2. 
It's kind of like an interesting side note that I was banned because Mason was mad that Micon exposed this whole thing about David. Like, that's kind of an interesting side note to the story, but it's not a major part of the story, except to me personally, who was the victim of the ban. So it's a weird thing for Mason to start a new thread about and to focus on. He should be focusing on explaining his actions in 2008 with basically uh, glad handling David and trying to whitewash everything that happened. That's what he should be exposing, not exposing, but that's what he should be doing regarding answering people if he's going to post about this at all. But to be focusing on the reasons I'm banned to start a new thread about it was bizarre. And pretty much everyone thought that. So he started a thread on August 19th called Why Was Wittellas Banned Four Times? Hi, everyone. Todd Wittellas claims that he never broke any of our rules, even though we banned him on four different occasions, which, by the way, is true. I, I did not ever break a rule that was a bannable offense. I think one time I posted like a link to Poker Fraud Alert before I knew that was against the rules there. I posted like a relevant link. They're like, no, 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 you can't do that. It's against the rules. I'm like, okay, sorry, I won't do it again. That was like, that was the extent of rule breaking I ever did. I, I really tried super hard to follow all the rules of 2 plus 2 while I was there. And I really did a good job of following the rules on that site. So I, I was not banned for breaking rules. But he goes on to say, so the purpose of this thread is to show our reasons for why these bannings happened. And I'll do this with as, as little extra comment for me as possible. However, I will answer any legitimate questions as best I can that some of you may have. The way this thread will work is that in chronological order, I'll address each banning in a post below. But each banning will be addressed in a separate post, and I'll put a couple of days between these posts. Best wishes, Mason. Well, in case you want to find out the, find out about the four bans that I had on 2 plus 2, I remember three. He says it's four. Maybe it was four. But he says that I had four bans on 2 plus 2. And in case you want to find out about those four bans, I have bad news for you, because the thread has already been locked, and only one ban has been discussed. <laughs> So, so much about finding out the other three bands, but we're going to discuss that first band, and we're going to discuss some interesting emails that Mason posted that would, that really made it, uh, it gave away some things that I never knew. Every once in a while, you see new information about old things and learn new things about old incidents, which I find really interesting, both about stuff in my life and stuff about just interesting stories I've followed that we find new info, and it kind of brings the story from the past back to life in the present with new context. So that happened here. So what he did was he posted some emails that he had back and forth with Poker News, because if you remember, Poker News was the owner of Neverwind Poker at the time this all went down in early 2008. Now, what I might have known was that Mason attempted to go to Poker News to get them to interfere with this and stop it. I, I seem to remember Mikon mentioning that to me in passing, but I never knew that much about it. But that was all I knew. I never had that much visibility into that part of it. And in fact, I had forgotten that even happened until Mason just brought it up again. But Mason actually posted some emails he had with Tony G. Yes, that Tony G, Tony Guaga. And John Caldwell, who was then like a general manager of Poker News. He was called the chief editor. And Mason posted what he wrote to them. 
and in some cases what they wrote back to him. So I got a new visibility into the whole thing and I found out some new things about how John Caldwell felt about Neverwin Poker and Haley Hintz popped up and said that she had a part in this whole story back then, which I also never knew. So let me read you these emails. It's, it's really interesting, especially if you were around on Neverwin Poker back in those days or are interested in the stories of old Neverwin Poker. So th- this is what Mason wrote. He apparently had emailed something to Tony G., who was then the owner of Poker News. He emailed Tony G. and wanted Tony G. to f- force Mike on to take the story down. So Mason did not post his email to Tony G., nor did he post uh, Tony G.'s direct response, but this is what he wrote. He wrote, The first email I have is from March 6, 2008. Tony G. tells me that, quote, Mikeon runs the site independent of Poker News and that the matter should be taken up with him. That he, quote, like to sort this thing out. He says, Tony then asked me to detail the true story and send it to him so he could post it on Neverwin Poker. So Malmuth is claiming that Tony G responded by saying that MyCon is running it and that Poker News cannot control the content, but that uh, he really wants to help Mason sort it out and to send him the true story and that Tony himself will go post that on uh, Never Win Poker. So then Mason responded back to Tony's email, which again wasn't posted. Mason was just uh, paraphrasing it. And Mason wrote back to Tony G., it's a hate site, and Mikon and Druff are the ones leading the hate charge. You need to clean it up. That was to Tony G. So Tony G wasn't happy with, hey, I'll post your side of the story. Mason's like, no, it's a hate site, and Mikon and Druff are leading the hate charge. The hate charge. Now, how am I leading a hate charge? I had nothing to do with this. And how is this hate? How is it hate? It was posting emails, creepy emails that are being sent to Brandy Hallbaker, which eventually went to threaten her and tell her to kill herself. How is this the hate charge? I guess you can say you hate dirty old men who treat young women this way, but it's not a hate site. I mean, come on. So here's the rest of the emails. Also on March 6th at 11.49 p.m., March 6, 2008, this was to Tony G. This is what Mason wrote. Hi, Tony. Thanks for getting back to me. I have met John, referring to John Caldwell, before, and he has a good reputation, so I agree that's a person to consult with. Now, let me be a little more specific addressing the problem. Simply put, Mikon knows that the stories about David are not true. False, by the way. That Mikon did not, quote, know that. Mikon knew he was posting the truth. He is pretending to expose a wrong that he knows does not exist. Also false. It will become obvious that his accusations are nonsense when we release specific information about David and Sue, which we plan to do in the near future. Now, that's interesting because David showed up on 2 Plus 2 and kind of beat Brandy to the punch and posted all about Sue because Brandy threatened to expose the Sue situation. So it looks like this was something that David and Mason got together and agreed to do. That they go, okay, when we explain that David is living with this... uh, mentally handicapped girl and that he's doing all these wonderful things for her and yeah he kind of has a sexual relationship with her too but once everybody reads that they'll understand that david's a great guy <laughs> like, could you be more out of touch 
could you be more out of touch to think that once you go out there and explain why David is living with a young mentally handicapped girl and having a sexual relationship with her, that everyone's going to go, oh, okay, well, if that's the case, no problem, big misunderstanding. What the hell? That was actually their brilliant plan, according to this email. So anyway, he goes on to write, but we're not going to dignify MyCon and www.neverwinpoker.com by offering explanations to him and dealing with him in any direct way, since Mr. MyCon is the problem. I love how he always writes www. before any site he talks about. He still does this. It's such like an old man thing to do. Not never win poker, but www.neverwinpoker.com. Even in 2008, that looks stupid. Can you think of anybody in 2008 that wasn't old that would refer to never win poker as www.neverwinpoker.com? Then he goes on to write, as for, the two, as for 2 plus 2, there is nothing, quote, wrong at our site. I asked David to stop posting for a few days because he was under extreme stress due to your people making fun of those in his family. I was not happy with the accusations that there was something seriously wrong with him. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's terrible. How dare you say there's anything wrong with taking in teenage girls from a party line when you're in your 50s or living with and having a sexual relationship with a young woman who's mentally handicapped or telling a disturbed girl in her mid-20s that she should kill herself. Yeah, Nothing wrong with that guy. How dare you say there's anything wrong with him? We've been working together for over 20 years, and if there's any sort of problem, I would be the first to know. Well, apparently not, Mason. (laughs) You were not the first to know. I guess you were the last to know, or at least the first to cover it up. I was also totally disgusted with the filth that had entered www.2plus2.com via the Neverwin Poker people. The filth. (laughs) Also, for your information, the two people I included on the CC list are Matt Skolansky, David's son, who is the general manager of our company, and who's also in charge of all moderation of www.2plus2.com, and Redacted, that's some other person, who is our marketing director and who also works closely with Matt on many issues inside our company. Best wishes, Mason, owner and publisher, 2plus2 Publishing, LLC, and of course he puts at the end, www.2plus2.com. <laughs> So the main point of this email, if you notice, the one sent on March 6th, 08, 1149 p.m., an email I'd never seen before in my life. And in fact, I don't think anybody outside of Poker News ever saw it, but it was posted publicly by Mason this week on the 19th, was Mason saying that David's being unfairly attacked here, that he's known David for 20 years. He'd be the first to know if there's anything bad going on with him and that there's nothing wrong with him. He doesn't appreciate people saying that, that David's under extreme stress. And that once they post the full story about David and Sue, which is going to be in the near future, back in 08, that uh, everyone will understand. So in the meantime, Poker News, please force Mike on to take this stuff down. That's basically what he's saying there. Well, let's look at what the truth was. Uh, There was something wrong with David. He was doing bad things. It makes sense why he was under extreme stress. And there is a lot to be ashamed of regarding his actions with these girls. So Mikeon wasn't making up stories. Mikeon was posting real emails David was sending. Mikeon wasn't fabricating emails or posting fake emails. He was posting real things that David was sending to Brandy in real time. And then the people drew their own conclusions. Now, the Sue stuff wasn't known yet. And Brandy 
was threatening to David that she would reveal this if he kept up his behavior. And David was afraid she was going to. So then he and Mason, I guess, got together and said, hey, we're going to post the truth about uh, him and Sue before Brandy can. And then he did. But what did Mike do wrong here? Forget what I did wrong. I wasn't even part of this. But what did Mike do wrong here? Nothing. So then John Caldwell, remember the chief editor of Poker News at the time, wrote to Mason Malmuth the next day on March 7th, I try to stay out of never and poker things, but this is something that needs to be addressed and addressed now. I will speak to Mike on today and try to resolve it. Mason responded back, also on March 7th, 2008. Hi, John. Thanks for getting back to me. If you would like to talk, our office number is blah, blah, blah. My cell number is blah, blah, blah. I'm usually in and out of our office, but I'm able to answer my cell most of the time. I'm also up very late. Now, by the way, he actually posted his office and cell number when he was posting the email and only when someone pointed it out did Mason remove it. (laughs) Genius. Genius, Mason, posting your own numbers, which I guess are still working. (laughs) Again, I want to emphasize that www.neverwinpoker.com is simply a hate site that masquerades under the pretension of no censorship and that this Micon person is the problem. For instance, when Mikon writes in his last blurb at the top of the homepage, the guy that started inbredsue.com, please make it more topical, has done this piece on David Skolansky's Sue. It's nothing but hate and serves no other purpose. Okay, let me stop right there. You may wonder, what is inbredsue.com? I had forgotten inbredsue.com even existed. Uh, this was a site that was set up by some user of Neverwin Poker, not by one of us there. It was just some user on Neverwin Poker set up a site called inbredsue.com because that girl Sue was uh, the product of uh, incest. And I agree that was an inappropriate site to set up. It, it, you shouldn't be making fun of Sue in any way. It's not her fault that she was a product of incest and had some uh, both physical and mental issues from it. But uh, again, that wasn't us. That was someone who uh, who set up that site and then did a write-up on Sue and, and her condition and, and reposted the pictures that Skolansky had provided of her. Like, the doll pictures came from Skolansky. We didn't steal those or anything. Like, the, this was, uh, Skolansky posted these himself, so then someone wrote some analysis of this on, quote, inbredsue.com, which was only up for a short time. And it was the person who put it up, I don't know who it was. I forgot who it was. I, at the time, I probably knew, but I, I don't know anymore. And it was up for such a short time that it, I forgot it even existed. But, uh, he was citing that as an example of how it's a hate site. Well, I agree this was inappropriate for someone to start a site like that, but this was not done by Neverwin Poker uh, or, or any of its principles there. This was done by a user of Neverwin Poker, who was then trying to show the public how Sue is not someone with all her uh, mental faculties and that David shouldn't be taking advantage of her. That was, that's the, the site was kind of offensive, but the goal was to show that uh, David shouldn't be with someone like this and that there's a a tremendous difference in their uh not only their age but their level of uh mental capability mason went on to write also when they state we are doing massive bannings there's no truth to that the only people banned related to this issue from www.2plus2.com are micon and druff and some gimmick accounts that came on our site just to cause problems but then he admits there were a couple of people mistakenly banned as associates of neverwin.com who were quickly reinstated. <laughs> well, that, 
that sounds like we were right when we were saying there's mass bannings. There were mass bannings. I guess they reinstated some of the wrongly banned people, but they were just firing off bands quickly, thinking that they're associates of www.neverwinpoker.com. So John Caldwell then went on vacation and didn't respond to Mason for a week. But John Caldwell came back from vacation a week later and on March 14th, 2008, responded, I tried to create a solution here, but the solution I desired is not possible. Ultimately, it came down to this. Poker News has a financial stake in NWP, but the deal with them specifically states that they have complete creative control, which is true. I tried to inject some common sense into said, quote, control, but I was not successful. You will note that we have removed Poker News branding from Neverwin Poker and removed Tony's, that is Tony G's, face from the site. His name will also be removed. It's no secret that I was not a fan of this deal, referring to the sale of Neverwin Poker to Poker News. Wow, I didn't know that. In fact, I was never consulted. I'm not sure what I can do here except to try to facilitate some type of solution between you and Brian. Wow. I don't know why he told Mason this, but John Caldwell apparently wrote to Mason back in March of 08 that he was never a fan of them buying Neverwin Poker and that he was cut out of knowledge of the deal until after it was done. And that he's trying to get MyCon to take it down, but that MyCon's refusing and that's that. Now, John was not as pro-Mason as it appears here, as I'm going to explain shortly, but he was just saying whatever he could to try to calm down Mason while admitting there was nothing he could do. I did hear something about Poker News approaching MyCon about asking him to take it down and MyCon saying no, but that was about it and I didn't press further. I didn't know it was John Caldwell. I didn't know about these emails. I don't think even MyCon knew about these emails, except that there were some. And these had never been posted anywhere before. So it's all interesting stuff, especially that John Caldwell didn't like the Neverwin Poker sale to Poker News and was cut out of knowledge of it, probably with the belief that he'd object. It looks like Tony just went and did this without even telling John about it, which probably pissed him off. That's I don't know why he'd whine about this to Mason. It's kind of weird, but looks like he did. So that was interesting there. Now, Haley Hintz, you know, Poker reporter Haley Hintz does a great job on uh, poker topics, still writes about poker to this day. I knew she worked for Poker News at some point, but I always just thought of her as like a Poker News reporter, like kind of almost like a freelance reporter who just uh, submitted articles to them. I had no idea that she was actually like a Poker News employee who had a part in this whole thing. So this is what she wrote. She showed up on Poker Fraud Alert and posted this on August 20th. I don't post here often anymore, but I'll verify a few details. I was Caldwell's assistant editor at the time, and he shared with me what was going on regarding Mason's attempts to censor Neverwin Poker. For what it's worth, some of that stuff on Neverwin Poker was in very, very poor taste. Anyhow, after John told Mason that there was nothing he or Tony could do regarding the content on NWP, John updated me on the situation. He was going on vacation just after the shitstorm from Mason occurred, and John shared a couple of those emails with me. It was not quite the end of it. Mason kept emailing John and must have received one or more of those out-of-office auto-replies. So he looked for someone else at Poker News to try to badger about the situation, and that turned out to be me. I'd already received the heads up about the mess from John, and I told Mason the same thing. Nothing I could do. 
Never when poker had content control, Mycom was a driving force between the free speech stuff. And while it's true, Druff could have perhaps pushed a bit harder on a couple of things, Mycon would have restored anything and everything anti-Mason anyway. Mason never understood that there are some things in this world he can't censor, and he never will. True. All of that's true. I could not have done anything about this even if I wanted to. Which, by the way, uh, I... Did not have anything. Obje- I did not have any objection to Mycon exposing this. Uh, there's some parts of Neverwin Poker that I thought went too far that users did. Not that Mycon did, but that users did. That I, I wanted the rules a bit tighter over there. I felt some people were posting shock stuff for the sake of being shocking, and I didn't like that. But it was Mycon's site. I had no power over that. I was a moderator there. Mycon was the one who had full creative control. So it's true that uh, no matter what I pushed, that MyCon would have rejected it, and I knew that. But I will say that I was not one who would have wanted to push for him to stop exposing this because I felt it was something that needed to be exposed. It looked true to me. The emails looked authentic. They were authentic. And why would I want that truth to be censored? I thought it was something that people should know about what was going on with David and what he was writing and doing to Brandy. The Sue stuff we found out later, it was so... It wasn't about Sue at the time, but uh, when this was first exposed, I thought this was an important thing to do. So while I did not make the decision or do anything to expose it, when I read about it, I thought, okay, this makes sense. I did not think badly of Mycon for exposing this. She went on to write, this was the first contact I'd ever had with Mason, and to him I was a nobody. But I became to Mason a person who wouldn't do what he wanted, so I was on his enemies list. This led to Mason this led Mason to falsely attack me when a couple of other situations came up a few years later, long after my poker news days. He never quite had the balls to ban me from two plus two, though I'm sure he considered it, and I even tried to goad him into that once or twice as a form of poker community service. But as John said way back then, Mason was probably taken aback that I wouldn't simply back down to him and do his bidding, as if I even could in that spot. His ego demanded retribution, so he hates me too. Not nearly to the extent that he hates Druff, but I've sent Mason's imperious BS right back to him in every way I can, and I push back in my snarky ways as well. I think he's just horrible. Sklansky is weird. Mason is noxious. Good riddance. Ah, the Brandy Hawbaker stuff. That was just tragic. I think the poker community at large shares a little blame for that, and that includes both the Neverwin Poker and 2 Plus 2 forums. I think she was seen by most people back then as a not-very-skilled player who luckboxed a big score and had parlayed that into her metaphorical 15 minutes of fame. That led to a lot of light-hearted bobs where barbs where Brandy was the target, and I even tossed off one or two of those myself. She was a gold digger of sorts, and that shouldn't be sugar-coated, but then the sordid stuff came out, first with Captain Tom, and then the really threatening stuff from Skolansky, and went downhill fast. She clearly had real issues, and at the end, the worst of the forum posters on both sites, including some Skolansky fanboys, posted just made me sick to my stomach. They wanted blood, and they got it. In my opinion, the threat from Skolansky were the real trigger, and he never had to answer for that. But some of us don't forget, and it never really goes away. So... Yeah, there were some people on both sites that were constantly uh, writing nasty stuff about Brandy. And Brandy was not a perfect person. Brandy did some things which weren't very nice, and uh, it made sense why some people were criticizing her on both sites. But as she pointed out, Haley, 
the worst of the whole thing and the most inappropriate of the whole thing came from Skolansky himself telling her that she should kill herself and threatening that he's going to have acid thrown on her face. You didn't see that from the trolls on either 2 plus 2 or never win poker. That's really what needs to be focused upon. Not uh, what random trolls on the internet were writing to Brandy when she was doing some controversial things. Because one thing you don't ever write to someone with the emotional issues Brandy had was tell her she'd be better off killing herself or telling her that someone's going to throw acid on her face. That's pretty sick stuff. And keep in mind, she didn't do anything to David that would have warranted this. I mean, she she was posting his emails, but his emails were inappropriate. She was mad about the emails, these perverted emails she was getting and posted them. So I can see where he may not like her anymore, maybe pissed at her, but... I mean, it didn't come close to warranting that type of language. It's not like she was threatening to hurt him in some way. It's not like she was uh, trying to extort money out of him or anything like that. I mean, this she was just saying, I- I'm going to post uh, emails that expose you, and then she was exposing them. So while well, well, Skolansky may have been mad at her, I mean, to, to write things like that, especially he wasn't some kid who didn't know better. He was over 60 years old when he did this stuff. So I didn't know about that either. I didn't know that he kept hassling Haley Hintz when John Caldwell was gone for that week and Haley wasn't backing down. I knew that Mason didn't like Haley, but I never knew the reason for it. I've seen him passive-aggressively attack Haley and anything she writes, but I didn't know why. Because Mason has a lot of people he doesn't like. Over the years, Mason developed a ton of different grudges. So I thought this is just something where they butted head at some point. I didn't know it had to do with this. So that was a new thing I learned. Very uh, interesting. Now, the thread was going horribly for Mason. Because remember, the whole point of this thread wasn't just to post poker news emails. It was to explain the four times of why I was banned. And people are looking at this and they're going, what? Like, Mason, why? Why are you making this thread? Why do we care about why Todd was banned four times? Like, no one cares about it except you and Todd. So so why are you making a threat about this? Why are you not addressing the big issues where we want answers? Why are you not really addressing the David stuff? Why are you dancing around that? Why are you trying to distract us with why you banned Todd four times? Who cares? So the thread was not going well. And just about nobody in the thread was biting. Just about nobody in the thread is going, oh, well, thanks, Mason. Thanks for telling us. Yeah, this Todd guy's awful. Like, uh, you weren't getting that. You're getting a lot of people just coming after Mason real hard. And a lot of people calling for Mason and David to be banned from the site. They were actually saying that the new owners, if they had any sense, should ban these two and disassociate with them. Can you imagine if Mason and David were actually banned from 2 plus 2? How fitting would that be? I mean, I'm not a big proponent of banning people, but with all the bans that uh, Mason handed out over the years, it would be hilarious if he were to be banned from 2 plus 2 by the new owners because of uh, what they did back then. But Mason just kept going on and on and on about stuff about me, and, and people were like, no, Mason, we don't care. We don't want to hear about Todd. He's not the issue here. And the funny thing is, what do these emails prove? They prove exactly what I've been saying the whole time. It's not like these emails are the gotcha, which shows I've been lying all this time, which Mason somehow thought they were. They're actually showing that he was asking Poker News 
to remove the content that Mikan was posting about David, the content that was the truth, the content which was mostly emails that are unedited that Skolansky was sending to Brandy, including some threatening ones. So Mason is showing emails that he directly asked Poker News, the owner of Neverwin Poker, to force Mike on to take that down. Now, how is that not a cover-up? And how is it not obvious that I was banned as punishment for that not being covered up? So all he did is prove my point. That's the funny thing is he starts this thread to discuss my bans to prove that they were justified and that it wasn't a cover-up. And then the emails that he posts prove that indeed I was banned because he wanted to cover things up and it was not successful. (laughs) That, my friends, is a complete lack of self-awareness. By the way, notice Mason has not said at any point you could scour all his posts on 2 Plus 2. He's never said once, now or in 2008, that the emails were falsified. He never said that uh, these were made up, that Micon typed them up, or that Brandy typed them up, and that David never really wrote these things. Never has anyone there claimed these were fake emails, because they weren't. They were real. They were the real emails sent by David Skolansky to Brandy Hawbaker, and they made David look really bad then, and they make him look even worse now, viewed under the context of the way women should be treated in 2021. And this wasn't just, well, times were different in 08, so you, know, you, you can't compare back then to today. No, in 08, everybody knew this was wrong. In 08, it was not acceptable to threaten to throw acid on young women's faces or tell emotionally disturbed young women to commit suicide. Like, that was not acceptable in 08 or 21. It's just the consequences of it are worse in 21. The social media shaming of it is worse in 2021. But in both eras, it was considered reprehensible. But because it was 08, he kind of skated away from it. And you see that Mason was attempting to cover it up. His own emails that he posted to Poker News, the ones that were to Poker News back in 08, prove it. Now, credit to Poker News for not covering it up and not trying to force Mike on to stop. It looks like Caldwell tried to get Mike on to stop just so Mason would stop hassling him. And because Caldwell just generally didn't like Neverwin Poker and found it was a pain in the ass and really anything that was causing controversy he didn't want. But that didn't mean that Caldwell agreed that David was being uh, libeled there because he wasn't. It was just the unpleasant truth being posted. And you do not have a right to ask others not to post unpleasant truths about you. You can politely ask them not to, But you don't have a right to have them not post the truth. In fact, that's basic law when it comes to slander and libel, is that if it's true, then you have a right to post it. And in this case, given Skolansky's notoriety in poker, and given that uh, there were these young women being mistreated and taken advantage of, this definitely was something that needed to be known. Much like how nine years later, All of these actresses came forward and other people in the background in Hollywood came forward and made various accusations, most of them true, against famous men who had 
mistreated underlings, mostly women, over the years. But even a few men made these accusations, like against uh, Kevin Spacey, who was gay and was sexually harassing uh, young men on the set. So it's good that comeuppance comes to powerful men who mistreat women. And I'm for that. I'm for that in Hollywood, and I'm for that in poker. Men who mistreat or take advantage of women in poker should face the consequences of their action, and their reputation should reflect the way they have treated women. Now, there shouldn't be false accusations. There shouldn't be embellishments. They should be facing... Uh, the cons- they should face consequences for the true and correct version of what they actually did. But I think what's being accused of David is pretty clear here. And in fact, I'm not even seeing any direct denials of these things. Just I see excuses for why such and such was okay or why such and such wasn't as bad as it seems. But I haven't seen anything like this was an outright lie. This was a total false accusation. This never happened. We're not seeing that because David admitted to a lot of it in his posts back in 08. And the email spoke for themselves. So Mason can dance around it all he wants and he can blame me all he wants and he can try to create all the distractions he wants, but he cannot explain why his biggest author and business partner wrote to a young woman that she should have, that she should kill herself and that people might throw acid on her face because of what she's been doing. People who are loyal to David might throw acid on her face. He wrote that to her. And there's no getting around that. And there's no getting around the fact that Mason read those emails and continued with him as an author of 2 plus 2 books and as an administrator of the 2 plus 2 forum. You can't dance around that. So the thread got locked. (laughs) We never got to hear about the other three bands and why. Which is too bad because I wanted to read it, actually. I wanted to read it and tear it apart, but I, we're not going to get there. It was stopped. It was closed. I don't know who closed the thread, but someone on 2 Plus 2 locked the thread, and you cannot get in anymore. You, you can read it, but you can't post there. So some discussion kind of restarted on the other thread, the one that the owners, the new owners started, that there's been a lot of this discussion about Skolansky, so it kind of moved back over there. But it's not quite the same. But this, at the same time, it's not over. And I think whenever Mason posts on 2 plus 2, people are going to throw it in his face. And if David posts on 2 plus 2, people are going to throw it in his face. And the other funny thing is people are trolling Mason about this history book. I, I don't even know much about this history book, but I guess Mason wrote a history book. I've never read any of it, so I can't comment. But uh, people on 2 plus 2 keep making fun of him, saying that the grammar is terrible. And Mason's getting like really sensitive about it. So people just keep saying it to troll him. And I don't know if the grammar is terrible or not, and I don't really care, and I've never read his history book, and I have no desire to read a history book by Mason Malmuth, but it's it's just funny that that's another thing that they're trolling him on, and he's like very unhappy about this. He's very sensitive about the grammar of his history book. <laughs> so he's just getting pounded on his site every which way. Like, just about every active poster there is just bashing him to no end. And it's funny because when he first said they're selling the site, 
there were a bunch of people who showed up out of nowhere and were just so sweet. Oh, Mason, you did so many things for poker. Thank you for providing two plus two. It allowed me to become the poker player I am today and to meet people that I have lasting friendships with. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're such a wonderful man. All this freaking kissing ass and whitewashing of the true history of that site. And then came Spambot Alpha and started to bring up the old stuff with Skolansky from 08 and from 07. And all of a sudden, the crowd turned, and the ass-kissers disappeared, and the remaining people posting on 2 Plus 2, which are not that many anymore. It's, it's really a dead site, if you take a look. But uh, the people still posting there are really going off on Mason. And these are not new troll accounts. It's not like accounts just registered a week ago and are bashing him. There's a few of those, too. But most of the people bashing him have had accounts for many years and have like 4,000 posts, 5,000 posts. These are not noobs over there that just showed up to kick Skolansky or kick Malmuth. Like These are people who have been there a long time and contributed a lot to 2 Plus 2 who are just incredibly shocked and disappointed, especially those that didn't know this story. And a lot of people have posted, I was not aware of this. I didn't know about this. I knew a little about it, but I never knew it was this bad. I'm shocked Mason let him continue. Like There's a lot of people who are just learning about this for the first time or learning the true extent of it. And it's very fitting. Very fitting, very appropriate. The chickens have come home to roost, and I don't care if it's 13 and a half years later. I think it's great that this is all being re-exposed and discussed again and are being considered as part of the legacy of both guys there. And Mason was a jerk for the entire time he ran 2 plus 2. He treated people like shit. He was very disrespectful to people. He acted like an authoritarian. He acted like a control freak. He tried to even control what ESPN would do, like when he tried to control what Gary Wise would do in his column on ESPN and banned him for featuring me in a column. Like, that's the type of shit that Mason was doing. So he does not deserve the legacy of a wonderful guy who ran a wonderful forum. He deserves the legacy of a control freak who had personal vendettas, personal grudges, banned a shitload of people, and yet continued doing business with and having as his main author a guy who was really involved in some pretty nasty scandals in the way he treated women, including one young woman who tragically committed suicide. And there's a good chance that he was a big part of that. So one must live with their actions. Nobody's perfect. Some people make erroneous judgment calls at times. Running poker fraud alert, I have made a few erroneous judgment calls, but nothing to that extent. (laughs) not even close so he must live with it and looks like he's going to so I hope he got the million dollars or whatever was really paid there because it's going to have to be a lot of money to be worth really the destruction of his reputation and that's the way it's going to end it's going to end with everyone remembering this at least anyone paying attention now and he's not just riding off into the sunset as the guy who ran a very successful poker forum in the 2000s and 2010s. That's what he wanted. He wanted to write off in the sunset and be remembered that way, but he's not. Kind of like how Bill Cosby is not remembered as a great comedian and at the helm of a very successful 80s TV show. Or why Joe Paterno is not remembered as a great coach. Or why Harvey Weinstein is not remembered as a great executive producer. 
Sometimes these things change when you learn about their culpability in these situations. Now, Mason did not sexually harass anyone himself. Mason didn't directly treat any women badly, to my knowledge. But he definitely didn't mind that Skolansky did it, because he did not terminate his relationship with Skolansky when this all came out. Guess the money was too important. But Mason, I know you're listening here, and hello again. If I am inaccurate with anything I'm saying, let me know where I'm inaccurate. Let me know why Mikon was saying incorrect things about Skolansky. Or not how, why, but how he was. Explain what was incorrect. Because I didn't see anything incorrect at the time. Admittedly, it's been 13 and a half years. Maybe I don't remember, but from what I recall, there was not... It wasn't a case of incorrect or speculative accusations. It was a posting of very controversial and uh, degrading and threatening emails and commenting on them. So you explain to me where Mikon did wrong. And don't respond with, oh, well, what about inbredsue.com? Well, he wasn't running inbredsue.com and the, just because a user on his site started that that's kind of like a side issue. That's something you can say, well, maybe some users had bad taste and maybe MyCon should have done more about it. But that's not the main point here. The main point was the what was being exposed was the truth. And it was a very disturbing truth about someone that was your main author and you did nothing about it. That's the problem. You did more than nothing about it. You actually uh, tried to cover it up as evidenced from your own emails you posted. But let me know. I'm a reasonable guy. I don't like you. But I'm a reasonable guy. You want to tell me where there's incorrect things I'm saying here? I'll be willing to retract whatever's incorrect. But I think your version of what you think is the truth is far off from the actual truth. I think you're deluding yourself. Let's talk about Resorts World. I predicted when Resorts World started that it was going to be a wild success. I said the only possibility that Resorts World will fail is if COVID gets in the way. So if Vegas just isn't very busy because people are not comfortable going there because of COVID, or if the restrictions are too tough and nobody likes them, or it's too hard to make money with all the restrictions there, then I could see Resorts World failing. But other than COVID issues, I think Resorts World is going to be huge for Vegas. And I didn't say this lightly because there's a lot of other properties that showed up that I did not feel the same way about. In fact, I felt the opposite, like uh, this uh, Lucky Dragons or the SLS, the former Sahara, or this uh, stupid Virgin property that's also the Mohegan Sun Casino. All these look like horrible ideas. And I said, this is going to be a failure. And it looks like in every case when I said that I was correct. There are a number of these that just look like they were terrible ideas from the start and were never going to work. And yet other properties, and some of this I didn't say on this show because it predated this show, but other properties I saw go up in Vegas, I was very bullish on their future. Like when I saw the Bellagio was being built and when I saw the Wynn was being built, when I saw the Venetian was being built, when I saw the Aria was being built. 
Like these properties I figured were going to be successful. I wasn't 100% sure, but it looked like they had the ingredients to be successful because they were showing up in the prime part of the strip. They were going to be high-end hotels. Vegas was doing well. Everything looked good. And indeed, these have all been successful properties. So those were correct predictions on my part, as were the predictions of failed properties. So up until now, I had been batting a thousand on my perception of new properties in Vegas of what was going to be a success and what was going to be a huge fail. The only one that I might have gotten wrong is a big one, and that is Resorts World. But of course, we have a lot longer until we can make this determination. But Resorts World was a very, very expensive project, like a $4 billion project. And I thought not only was it going to be successful, I thought it was going to change the way that uh, Vegas traffic was allocated. When I say traffic, I don't necessarily mean traffic, uh, automobile traffic on the Strip, though that too, but just where people would go on the Strip, because the Strip pretty much revolves around what's known as Center Strip. The closer you are to Center Strip, the more action you're going to get. So this includes Caesars, Bellagio, Garia, and the Cosmo. So all of that is considered Center Strip. And even places like uh, the Venetian, which are not quite center, they're a little bit north, that's also kind of considered Center Strip. So that whole area of the Strip is where the action is, and where it stops is at the wind going north. The wind is the last thing of consequence going north. After that, it gets kind of old and crappy, and it, it looks very different than the rest of the Strip. And going south, uh, once you get past the Mandalay Bay, same thing. So it kind of goes from Mandalay Bay to the wind. And anywhere north or south of that is going to have greatly diminished crowds and greatly diminished foot and vehicle traffic. Now, that doesn't mean it couldn't expand. In fact, that area was not the most popular area of Vegas for many, many years until the early 90s when Vegas kind of had decided to undergo a change and built a lot of new properties. And the focus started to go away from gambling and more towards Vegas as just a general vacation destination for entertainment options, plus gambling. The first mega resort on the Strip that got the ball rolling was the Mirage in 89, but it took until 93 when a lot of the other properties showed up, such as the MGM, that really made Center Strip the place to go. And if you're younger, you probably don't even remember when the main area of Vegas for a tourist was something other than Center Strip. But prior to that, it was downtown. And secondarily, it was kind of like the uh, the Vegas Hilton and uh, Circus Circus Riviera sort of area in the North Strip. But that all became very secondary. Now, downtown, they adjusted somewhat. They built that Fremont Street experience. They changed Fremont Street where you can no longer uh, drive down it. And now it's 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 a walking area that, it, that traffic's not allowed there. And then they built that uh, roof with a screen on it. So they tried to redo downtown as kind of like more of a working class version of the strip to where if you 
think the strip is too expensive and it's too high end and it's too snooty that uh, you can go to downtown and it's, it's more aimed at the uh, kind of like lower middle class crowd. And they've been somewhat successful in doing that downtown. So that's the way Vegas presently is. If you want to go to the hotels and casinos that are more the lower middle class or working class clientele, then you go to downtown. And if you want to go to the higher end and more expensive part of Vegas and the mega resorts, you go to Center Strip. But what about everywhere else? What about south of Mandalay Bay? What about north of the Wynn? Well, there's casinos, but they're secondary. Resorts World was attempting to change that. So they are north of the Wynn on the other side of the street. And what I thought was going to happen was that it was close enough to the Wynn to where people from the Wynn may want to walk over there and that it would extend the center strip even though it's no longer centered, that the North Strip would kind of become one with Center Strip. And that now, instead of going from Wynn to Mandalay Bay, it would go from Resorts World to Mandalay Bay. And at the same time, it would revitalize that area of the North Strip, which used to be popular, you know, where Circus Circus is, the former Riviera, and the former Las Vegas Hilton, which is now the Westgate, that that whole area will get revitalized and that maybe they will rebuild some hotels in that area and maybe that whole area will become much more relevant again. So that's what I thought was going to happen. And I thought Resorts World was going to be the driving force behind that. Well, it turned out, so far that's not the case. Resorts World is now aggressively pushing some very cheap rooms. I've seen the ads, in fact. I've seen ads out there uh, for Resorts World and how cheap it is now. The ads don't directly say how cheap it is, but people have been finding when they click on the ads and search that even without any history there and without uh, anything that would make them the target of any kind of direct marketing, that people are able to get rooms at the Conrad, which is the mid-level tower at Resorts World. There's three towers there. There's the Hilton Tower, the Conrad Tower, those are the two big towers, and then a small Crockford's Tower, which is the highest end. But the Conrad, which is the middle tower, which is considered fairly high end, that there were rooms being advertised during the week for $60 a night plus resort fee. And that's crazy. That is crazy that it would be going that cheap. Now, it is true the resort fee is a lot of money. So it's not really $60 a night plus tax. It's plus resort fee, which is over $50. So that's something to consider. So uh, something that's $60 a night really becomes like 110 to 112 whatever per night plus tax. So if you think you're going to go stay two weeknights at Resorts World and get away for 120 bucks, you're not. But still, can you imagine 60 plus the $51 resort fee? And by the way, all the properties in the Strip have resort fees, so it's not like uh, this is some kind of trick. I mean, it is, but they're all doing it. So when you can compare these prices, you want to add them together, it's still damn cheap. And that's not what they were expecting. 
Conrad was supposed to be the nicer of the big towers there. They have two big towers. They're both supposed to be fairly nice, but the Conrad is the better of the two. So unless you want to stay at the super expensive Crockford's small tower they have there, if you want to just stay at the nicer of the towers that's like still a high-end tower, you're going to go to the Conrad, and it's supposed to be pretty expensive in this nice new hotel. Instead, they're giving it for $60 plus resort fee. So that is pretty disturbing if you are someone who is uh, an investor in Resorts World. Now, Resorts World is owned by Genting, which is a huge corporation, and they own a lot of different things, including cruise ships. So they are not going to be decimated, even if Resorts World is a fail. But keep in mind, Vegas has been doing pretty well, even since they reintroduced the mask mandate there because it has only been lightly enforced. Basically, they enforce it at the door and then once you're in there, they don't give a crap. Uh, yeah, some people have canceled because of the mask mandate and some people have canceled because they don't, they uh, are afraid of the Delta variant, but it's still doing well. I mean, I talk to people who either live in Vegas or visit Vegas and they keep telling me it's very busy there. I'm talking about Vegas in general, not Resorts World. So it's not like Vegas is a ghost town and they just have to adjust to the situation with COVID. They just aren't doing well. They're just not getting a lot of people. And I just looked right now on Expedia for, I just randomly put in uh, August 23rd through August 27th, like a four night stay. And it's going to be $87 per night before resort fee. That's on Expedia. I, I just randomly entered that as I was talking here. So that's not quite 60, but that's still pretty cheap. 87 plus resort fee at Conrad? I would have never guessed that two months after opening that they are allowing you to stay for these rates. And this is a new hotel. This is supposed to be one of the nicest properties in Vegas. It's definitely the newest from the ground up property in Vegas by a wide margin, by a decade, more than a decade. The last one was Cosmo over 10 years ago. So how could they be selling rooms this cheap? And the answer is people are just not staying there. That the people coming there are not numerous enough to fill the property. So they have to fill rooms and they have to lower the price until people want to come there. Now, what's also interesting is for these same dates on Expedia, Paris which is not as nice as Resorts World and obviously much older. Paris is going for 89 plus resort fee. Caesars, 112 plus resort fee. Now, the resort fee is a little bit less than Resorts World, but still the total for staying four nights is $10 more at Paris over the four nights, including taxes and fees. And at Caesars, it's more than $100. It's $112 more for four nights total. So it's not like there's just no demand in Vegas. It's that there's no demand for Resorts World. Amazingly, even the crappy Four Queens downtown is 88 with no resort fee, but that comes up only $50 average per night after tax and after the resort fee that exists in one place and not the other, that overall out the door, it's $200 cheaper for four nights uh, to stay at the Four Queens versus the Conrad, which is 50 bucks a night. So there's a $50 a night difference total 
between staying at the Four Queens and staying at the Conrad at Resorts World. Can you believe this? I'm talking about out the door, $50 per night, August 23rd through 27th. <laughs> this is the Four Queens. The Four Queens is a piece of crap. It's an old, crappy downtown hotel. $50 difference per night. Out the door after tax. Wow. And Paris is actually slightly more expensive. And I'm doing this on Expedia, so it's not taking into account my history. It doesn't know who I am on Expedia. This is just average dude who's never gambled in his life. These are his rates. And it's actually cheaper at the Conrad than Paris. And not that much cheaper at the Four Queens. (laughs) So that's a problem. Now, why would this be happening? Why are people not going to Resorts World? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, Resorts World has an issue that the area is just not that desirable. Right when you pull up to Resorts World, you see there, there's a McDonald's, there's a Denny's right next door. It looks like kind of a crappy area that's approaching downtown. It's not close to downtown, but it kind of looks like it's in that area between North Strip and downtown, which is a bad area. So by looking at the surrounding businesses and by looking at a lot of the trashy people walking around the area, you can see this is not like a high-end area, whereas in Center Strip, like the Bellagio, you look, and it's only tourists walking in front of the Bellagio. You don't see any the trashy local Vegas crowd there. You just see all tourists walking up and down the Strip by Bellagio, by Aria, by Cosmo, by Caesars. That's all you see. Not the case at Resorts World. So they may have made a mistake by not buying some of the nearby properties and just wrecking them and leaving nothing there or putting something up that's just kind of trivial. Because they, they had $4 billion they spent on this, so it's not that expensive to go buy out the Denny's, buy out the McDonald's, buy out those trashy little strip mall businesses nearby and close them down, wreck them, and do nothing with it at the moment and then maybe put something up there later. Maybe put a convention center, whatever you want to put up there in their place, but uh, just get them away to get the element away from there that you don't want and to also uh, make the whole area look better. So that was a mistake. Also, I think people just aren't used to going into that area of the Strip. It's something they just can't quite bring themselves to do and really think they're part of the action. They look how far it is from the Bellagio, look how far it is from City Center, Look how far it is from Caesars. They're like, uh, you know, this is kind of isolated. It's not super far, but it's not easy to walk anywhere that we want to go except the wind. Now, you may say, well, what about the wind? Well, yes, but the wind is a little bit closer. The wind, at least you can uh, cross the street, and then you're not that far from a number of properties you, you know, like uh, Treasure Island and like the Venetian and the Palazzo. I mean, you're, you're right there. But here, you've got to walk some extra just to get to the win. And then there's this other crap in between. It just doesn't feel like you're there connected to all that action. In fact, when you're staying at Resorts World, you look out the window from certain parts of the towers and you see Circus Circus below you. So you're, you're right there next to Circus Circus. And it feels kind of weird that you're in an upper-end hotel right next to Circus Circus, which has a reputation for being a piece of crap at this point. Uh, also, there's really no theme that's bringing people over there. It's just called Resorts World. 
It doesn't have anything special about it. There's nothing people want to come there to see. Think of the Bellagio. There's that unique chandelier that costs like $750,000 to make by that artist Chihuly that's in the lobby. There's that uh, beautiful conservatory they have of all the flowers that's free to walk into that's near the front. They have the fountain in front, the dancing fountain, which is uh, very nice. In fact, when I go to Vegas, Benjamin always enjoys walking up and uh, sitting in front of it and watching the show. So they have all that at Bellagio. And it's also right in the center of the action. So there's a lot of reasons to come over there. Even if you're tired of Bellagio, you can walk nearby to so many different places that you also might want to check out. But Resorts World, you're coming there. It doesn't have much of a theme. It doesn't have much that's particularly interesting there. And yeah, it's a nice casino. It's a nice hotel. But then, okay, then what? So I think to some people, it's just kind of like a place, okay, you know, I'll check it out at some point, but I'm not really itching to visit there. It's just kind of not right there where the action is. So when you're not right there where the action is, you have to create your own action. And I, the, the other problem is they, they don't, as far as I know, I haven't checked recently, but when they had their soft opening in mid-June, mid to late June, they forgot, not forgot, but they decided not to do a full opening with all of the services. So there was no nightclub. There was no show. So there was not a show to go see there. There wasn't a nightclub to go hang out at night. So what do you do there? Like there's a, a lot that was missing. And I don't think this has changed. I don't think there's anything major going on there yet. And by the time they get that going, it may be too late. It's a little early to say, but I will give credit to a listener of the show who talks to me sometimes and on text and, and told me that he thinks it's going to be a fail. And I dismissed him and said, oh, no, 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 this is, this is different. This is not the SLS. This is something that I think is going to be a game changer. But he was right. It looks like it's going to be a fail. Now, it's not going to be a tremendous epic fail, but I think it's going to be something that does not anywhere near justify its cost and that they're going to have to think about what to do if they're not getting enough people to stay in the hotel rooms, not getting enough people playing in the casino, not getting enough people who are going to that uh, extensive food court they have there to justify the high rents that they charge the vendors there and not enough people eating at the high-end restaurants. If they can't get that type of traffic within there and if they can't get enough people staying there to justify the tremendous expense of running this thing, plus the tremendous expense of building it in the first place, they're going to start having problems and then they may end up selling the property. Who knows? I have no idea what the future will be. They're not going to give up tomorrow. You know, there's, a, there's a lot left to do. They weren't completely finished. They still have a lot they can do, but they need to do it fast. If I were in charge, I would, first of all, like I said, I would immediately buy out these crappy businesses around there that make the place look ghetto. Not that McDonald's and Denny's are terrible places. Like there's a McDonald's and Denny's not too far from me and I don't live in a slum. But I'm also not trying to uh, first of all, I'm not right by them. And, and second, uh, I'm not trying to sell people to come stay at my house. But when you're right across the street from this stuff and trying to sell yourself as high end, uh, that's a problem. 
So they need to remove that stuff that doesn't look like it belongs. Make it almost seem like just an island of an island of elegance. An island of high-end property. If they're not going to be perceived as being part of Center Strip, then they need to be an interesting destination in themselves that doesn't look weird by the area. So buy the surrounding crappy businesses and wreck them and quickly develop reasons for people to come there. Don't just expect them to show up. Don't say if we build it, they will come. That worked in uh, Field of Dreams, but that does not work for Vegas hotels. So they need to get people down there. They need to have reasons for people to want to go there. They need to add unique features there. They need to wipe away the businesses nearby that are cheap and that are dragging it down. I mean, it wouldn't be bad if they bought Circus Circus. I know that's a lot more expensive than buying Denny's, but uh, it would be bad if they bought Circus Circus and just wrecked it. Now, that may not be available. I mean, anything's available for enough money, but that may not be worth it. But at the very least, get rid of the crappy Denny's and McDonald's nearby. I'm not trying to be a snob here. I'm just saying the way it looks. When you when you pull up there and see that stuff next to Resorts World, you don't think, "Oh wow, this is a luxury hotel." It it just kind of, even without directly thinking about it, it, kind of gets in your head that you're not in a nice area. I'm on their website here. I clicked on experiences. So experiences, all they have is uh, a digital concierge. I don't know how to say experience. Quote immersive technology, but then it's really about just like massive LED displays around there. Like, okay. (laughs) Uh, The spa and the pool. Those are the quote experiences. That doesn't sound very exciting. Click on entertainment. See, I, I, I see they've got some headliners coming up, but none right now. You have Celine Dion, November 5th, Carrie Underwood, December 1st, Katy Perry, December 29th, Luke Bryan, country music star February 11th now I don't know if they're all going to be here at the same time I see Carrie Underwood is going to have a, a residency I don't know about Celine hers may just be for a few weeks same with Katy, Carrie, uh, Katy Perry uh, looks like they may be rotating these through but uh, notice nothing now and nothing until November that's a mistake that's a mistake why are they waiting till November maybe they shouldn't have opened without uh, a headliner there why would you open in June and then not put a headliner there for four and a half months? And that looks like what they were doing because Celine is the first one and that's November 5th. Let's click on nightlife here. So they have a day club and uh, they have a nightclub that is slated to open, quote, fall of 2021 called Zook. Well, again, why did they start Resorts World without this ready? Why? Why, why not just push back the opening date? Because you come there, and there is no nightclub, and there is no headliner, and the place seems boring, and you go, okay, I've seen it, interesting, never coming back. You know how they used to say in those head and shoulders commercials, you never get a second chance to make a first impression? That's true about these mega resorts, too. You want people to walk in and be wowed, and to have experiences they remember, and have options they remember. So... Yeah, you want someone to visit Resorts World on a Friday night and see these really beautiful people walking out of the nightclub. 
and you say, wow, that looks fun. I'd like to come there next time. Maybe next time uh, I come to Resorts World, I'll go to that club too. Or you, you want to see that there's a headliner like Celine performing there. Oh, yeah, yeah, I never got to see Celine when she was at Caesars. Yeah, I want to see her. Or I saw her at Caesars. I liked her. I want to see her again. Or, or oh, Car- Carrie Underwood. Yeah, I want to see her. Like, you want people to see this, and even if they're not going to do it right now, think about how they want to come back to maybe do this. You don't open and then leave nothing for months and then hope people will realize months later you got some stuff going on. It's a mistake. And there's no reason for it. It didn't have to happen this way. Like, they've been developing this for years. It opened late anyway. So why rush to open before everything's ready? Why not get this lined up in advance? Why not get headliners lined up for uh, June when you open? Why not have the Zook nightclub ready? I mean, how hard was it to build out the Zook nightclub in time to open? I would think it's a lot harder to build these mega hotels than it is the Zook nightclub. Building a nightclub should not be that difficult with the budget they had. They should be able to get that up real quick. So I don't get this. It looks like mismanagement to me. So we'll see if this changes, but this may be a very expensive mistake. They may have jumped the gun with that area. They may have bought too little of the surrounding area. And they may have opened too early and already kind of driven people away with boredom. (laughs) It's not that people walk away saying this is trash. They just kind of walk away saying this is boring. I'll tell you, for my visit to Resorts World, I wasn't itching to come back there. I, I gave you my review of it, and I said some positive things. I said some negative things, but I, I didn't walk away saying, wow, this is a dump. I'm never coming back, or wow, this is awful. I'm not coming back. I just thought, okay, well, I saw it. I'm glad I was here for the opening weekend, for the novelty of it, and then uh, I, I don't really have a desire to come back here. I didn't stay there, if you remember. I stayed elsewhere, and... Uh, I had friends who stayed there, and I was in their room. In fact, I I was in two different rooms because their first room had a broken AC. And then I actually dealt with uh, Resorts World customer service, trying to uh, get them back some money from all the different fail they encountered while they were there. So I I got to experience the rooms without uh, directly staying there. But you know me, I I wasn't going to pay all the money they wanted for the opening weekend which was was expensive. You weren't getting the rates like you're getting now. So I stayed down the street at Harrah's in my comp room. And then when it came time for the weekend and I couldn't get a comp room at Harrah's and Harrah's wanted like $229 a night plus resort fee. I was like, you know what? Can anyone get me a room? And someone got me a free room at the Orleans, which I appreciate. Orleans actually was better than I thought it would be. Orleans is not a place I want to run back and stay at, but I, I really pictured it was a complete piece of shit, and it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Like it, it was fine to show up when it was time to sleep and go to bed and then uh, go back out. And it was quiet. I got a, a quiet room, and the bed was fine, and it definitely served its purpose. And it, like, like the people in the Orleans who were staying there, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I thought it was going to be like really trashy people there. It wasn't that bad. I, I didn't feel like I was staying at the Bellagio, but it it was okay. Like I, I was I was very happy that these people got that room for me and it was great for what I needed that weekend. And I appreciate that. 
I appreciate when anyone gets me anything that uh, can help me. But this wasn't even a case like they tried to help and it was a piece of crap and I'm like, okay, well, thanks, but it kind of sucked. Like, this is, again, this isn't somewhere I would normally book, but uh, to get it for free on a weekend where everything's like super expensive like it was that weekend, where even Harris was like over 200 bucks even for me, this is a no-brainer. But at the same time, I got to experience Resource World and I was already getting a few doubts then and now I have a lot of doubts. Okay, so let's move on to our next topic. I'm going to tell you guys a story. It is a story about a romance scam, but it's a very interesting story. It's different than other romance stories that you've probably heard about that have taken place over the internet over the years. Now, before we begin about this story, about this romance scam, I need to tell you about romance scams in general, at least modern romance scams. The typical internet romance scam is very simple. You have some scammer in another country, usually somewhere like Nigeria or Ghana, sometimes from Russia or something like that. But it's always in a foreign country where there's not going to be much consequence from scamming someone in the U.S. or the U.K. or another Western country. And they fire out a ton of emails asking for romantic partners. Sometimes they also go on dating sites and make profiles there. But what always is the case, or just about always is the case, is they're using a fake picture of a person that does not really live where the scam is taking place. Now, usually the romance scams, they tend to be honest about where they really are. So believe it or not, a lot of times the romance scams coming out of Nigeria or Ghana will admit they're in Nigeria or Ghana, but they do not look like someone that you would think is in Nigeria or Ghana. They always use a picture that they found somewhere on the web of a very good-looking, usually white, fairly young person. And there's romance scams utilizing these fake pictures of both genders. Sometimes they have pictures of young, handsome men that they aim at women, And sometimes, and more often, they have pictures of beautiful young female models that they aim at older men. And, as I said, sometimes these are on dating sites, and sometimes these are just fired out as spam emails, and they see who bites and who responds. And then once they get some people who are gullible enough to believe that that's who they're really talking to, that the person in the picture is the person they're communicating with, they explain their backstory, they claim to be American, they claim to be working in whatever country that they're in, and then really, really quickly, they claim to fall in love with the victim of the scam, like by the second or third email They start talking about their feelings, how they're falling in love. A lot of times they'll try to introduce a Christian angle to the whole thing. If they have found out that the person that they're communicating with is Christian. So it's not even subtle. It's not even something they put a lot of time or care into. They jump to it real fast. And then from there, they get to asking the person to send money. Once they feel they got the person on the hook, they start finding different reasons for the person to send them money. Often they claim to have a medical emergency 
or they claim they've uh, been falsely detained by corrupt people who are in charge in the country, or they claim that uh, they need money to come to the U.S. to visit them. So, yeah, let me come see you, but uh, my money is all locked up in the U.S. right now. I can't access it over here in Nigeria, so can you send me this money, Western Union, so I can fly out and see you and buy a plane ticket? It's, it's always some different story of why there's an immediate need for money, and then the mark sends the money, and then they keep them on the hook, and they count on the fact that these people will delude themselves into believing it must be okay because they feel they've thrown all this money into it already, plus they've developed these feelings for what they think is this very attractive person corresponding with them, and they don't want to blow it now. They don't want to say, oh, I think you're a scammer, and then have the person run off, and then all this uh, money and time and emotional investment is out the window. So they delude themselves into thinking, well, you know, this is a little suspicious, but now I'm sure it's fine. And eventually people get fleeced of their entire life savings. I've seen in these scams where people end up down six figures in the whole thing that they send to the scammer. Now, some people catch on before that, but these scams can be very lucrative if they latch on to somebody who is gullible enough to keep sending money. What's amazing to me is that often these scams are perpetrated where there's not even any kind of proof necessary or even semi-proof that they're actually talking to the person that they see the picture of or even that they're talking to someone of the same gender. So you'll have successful romance scams where there's a supposed hot chick talking to an older guy claiming to be in love with him getting tons and tons of money out of him where there won't even be one phone call where he talks to a woman. And the reason they avoid the phone is, number one, sometimes there's not even a female involved in the whole scam, so they can't talk. But even if they could get a female in their country to make the call for them, the problem is the female will have a thick accent. So they don't want to even get on the phone and have the accent heard and have the language barrier exposed, where it should be pretty obvious in the emails, which are tend, they tend to be written in very poor English. And for some reason, the victims don't question that either, why the English is so bad. So I've seen a lot of reports about these over the years. And I've seen people, usually older people, but not always really old. Like, usually it's people in their uh, 50s and 60s who really should know better. It may, some of the people who fall for these, it surprises me that they could have functioned well enough in society and life to even have the savings they do by this point in their life, given the super obvious stuff they fell for. As I said, these are not really sophisticated scams. These tend to be incredibly simplistic, and it's shocking anyone falls for it. And it's also not even clear to these people why these young, beautiful people are falling for them, despite them being much older and often not very attractive. So you'll have these uh, guys who are 65 years old, overweight, kind of slovenly, yeah, they, these dudes know they're not good-looking. Like, these dudes know they may have been good-looking 40 years ago, but they know presently they're not very good-looking, even for their age. And then you have this really young, hot model who just instantly falls for them. Like, they don't question that. And same with the women. You have these women who are 55 years old and dowdy-looking and, and uh, 
don't even have much of a figure anymore. And uh, somehow this like really handsome guy from the military who's uh, 28 years old is in love with her. Like she doesn't question that, but that's what happens. So I'm not going to cover a scam like that. You may think I'm going to cover a scam like that, but no, those have been going on for years and years and years. And while it's a little bit interesting that people can be this gullible and can be in denial for so long, even as relatives and friends realize what's going on and try to convince them not to continue sending money. But this has been a thing going on for a very long time, and I would not be covering it on this show in 2021. But I came upon a very interesting romance scam that took place, and this one took place in 2017, but the victim just came forward now to the BBC in the UK, and they reported on it. And they even posted pictures, and it's a very interesting and unusual romance scam And it involved a lot more than just lies on the internet. So this is what happened. A British charity worker, a 52-year-old guy, who is called James in this article, but that's not his real name. He only agreed to do this article with the BBC if, number one, they blocked out his face in the pictures, and number two, if they gave him a fake name. So they're just calling him James, and we're going to call him James. I don't know what his real name is. But he worked for a British charity... And he's 52 years old, and he lived in the UK. And he got involved with some sort of uh, charity effort that reached into the Ukraine, which is a, a very poor European country. That's how he initially got involved with the Ukraine at all. There is uh, a conflict in the Ukraine in 2015 and there were uh, families that were trying to flee the zone where the conflict was taking place. It was in eastern Ukraine. So since he worked for a charity, another project was started up by someone else that contacted him saying that he they, they know he has experience in this. Can you help us set up a charity in the Ukraine that assists children who want to flee from that area where the conflict is currently taking place? So that's how he got his connection to the UK. And that was legitimate. You may think the angle here was it was a fake charity. No, 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 no. He was asked by a friend that he already knew to help with this charity, a real project in the Ukraine. But what ended up happening was that he needed to get in contact with someone in the Ukraine to help him get everything set up over there. And... I don't know how he found her, but he found a translator, and uh, her name was Julia. So this was nothing about romance. This was something where he just needed a translator for this charity project, and Julia really was doing the work. There was no scam at this point. He was visiting Odessa in the Ukraine. You may know of Odessa, Texas. This is Odessa, Ukraine. So he was going back and forth between the UK and Odessa. This was not part of his official job. He was helping this friend with their charity. This is a separate project. And he was going to Odessa back and forth a lot. And he got to meet Julia. Julia was a fairly attractive, uh, fairly young woman. Looks like early 30s. I see a picture of her here. But uh, Julia was not the one who directly scammed him. 
Julia just initiated the scam. So after he got to know Julia, I don't know how close he got to her, but Julia realized she had a mark. So Julia suggested that maybe he'd like to go on a date with one of her friends. She said she had a friend named Irina. Irina was 32 years old. She was from one of these cities that was occupied by uh, Russian-backed fighters in eastern Ukraine, and that she had fled there, and she was now living in Odessa, which was a lot safer. And they said that she really wanted to marry a nice man, that she had been married two previous times, and that these were terrible marriages, these guys were abusive, she's just done with Ukrainian men, she wants a foreign man, she doesn't mind if the guy's older, and that uh, Julie had gotten to know James, and Julia claimed that uh, she had told Irina about James and that he might be a good potential partner for her. So this all sounded great to James, and Julia showed him pictures of Irina, and she was pretty. So sounded good to James. You had this uh, 32-year-old pretty woman who fled a war-torn area of the Ukraine and had two bad marriages with abusive Ukrainian men and just wanted to settle down with a nice guy from a different country who would treat her well. So James was all for it. He said, oh, yes, yes, yes. And let's, let's go ahead with it. Um, yes, I'll, I'll treat her like um, she's the queen. I'll treat her like absolute royalty. I'll never take for granted the joy that uh, she brings me. So the date was on. What James did not realize is that he was being set up for a major scam. So he met Irina. Unlike these other romance scams where the person is just using a fake picture from the internet, Irina was real. Her picture was real, and she did know Julia, and Irina was brought to meet James. And they would go to dinner, and they would talk. And James said that even though they were 20 years apart in age, that we got along like a house on fire. This is actual words. Well, I think James was exaggerating, because there's a big problem. Irina did not speak English. I don't mean her English was bad. She did not speak English. So how could they get along like a house on fire if they could not communicate? Well, they had a solution. See, remember Julia? A translator. Uh-huh-huh. So Julia came along on their dates as a very awkward third wheel to actually translate what the two of them were saying to one another. <laughs> so can you imagine James says to Irina oh you look very nice tonight and then the translator Julia then says something in Ukraine blah, 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 blah. and then uh, Irina responds back blah, 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 blah. oh she says thank you <laughs> how do you have a conversation like that I guess it's okay for business purposes but how do you establish a romantic relationship with a translator sitting at the dinner table translating everything you say back and forth. I would have an incredibly hard time getting that going. In fact, really the only I would get it going is just like not even speak. Just try to hang out and hold hands and uh, just try to do activities that don't really require talking. 
and hope that maybe some kind of connection could get going there. But I mean, a translator, that, that couldn't be less romantic. But still, James said he had fun. He said, it was a bit weird having someone repeating what was ever being said, but uh, there was chemistry between us. Now, I think the chemistry was in his head. Well, it clearly was because it was a scam, but I, I don't even think there was real chemistry that even appeared to be chemistry. I, I think he just wanted it to be because she was 30, 20 years younger than him and fairly pretty. Now, when they were not together, they were using the app called Viber, which is a messaging app, and it had a translation function. So when they were flirting back and forth on the app, it was much easier because Irina was able to write to him directly. He was able to write to her directly, and it would just translate back and forth between uh, English and and Ukrainian. Uh, James once received a message from her saying, uh, you gave me a real fairy tale, and thanks so much for that. I believe in you. Just you can give me this happiness. I love you. Now, he was seeing her. This wasn't just over the internet after that one message. He was coming back to Odessa. I don't know how often, but he was coming back uh, probably once a month or so. And he would take her out to expensive meals. He took her to the opera. And guess who always came along? Yes, Julia. Every single date, without exception, Julia was right there to translate. Julie was brought to the opera. Julie was brought to dinner. James paid for everything. You may think, well, was that the scam? Did the guy just take these women out to expensive stuff and never had any desire to actually do anything with him? No, 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 no. It goes way, way, way deeper than that. Now, even though James was getting to feel increasingly close to Julia, and even though they were sending these very uh, flirty and romantic text messages back and forth through the Viber app. For some reason, whenever he would see Irina in person, there would be no physical intimacy. She would not even kiss him. And Julia told him that the reason there was no kissing or anything intimate was that uh, Irina did not believe in any sex before marriage. (laughs) How did he fall for that? I mean... Sex and kissing are tremendously different. There are many people who don't have sex before marriage. I mean, it's not the majority anymore, anywhere close to the majority, but there are people out there who don't have sex before marriage, but they kiss. They'll do other things. They just won't have sex. Can you imagine she wouldn't kiss him because she didn't want sex before marriage and the dummy believed it? He thought, well, that's a very high moral standard. She'd obviously been brought up very well. Yeah, brought up very well to scam gullible charity workers for the UK. So he just believed that Irina was a prude because she was just very moral, but that she was really in love with him. And she said so on the Vibe app, so it had to be true. Even though he'd never been alone with her. it's always been with Julia. I mean, this wouldn't be that bad of a deal if at least he had like a threesome with her and Julia, but no, 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 not even kissing. Well... He decided that he was uh, falling more and more for her. The problem was that uh, he still wasn't that comfortable with the fact that he never had any time alone with her, that there was no kissing. But he talked a lot with both her and Julia through the app. And both of them were really 
pressuring him to take the relationship to the next level. See, he fell in love with Irina, but the problem was that he was a little suspicious that she was not really in love with him, but rather was just interested in him because he provided her a way out of the Ukraine. He said, she felt so trapped in her country. She was obviously intelligent and wanted to create another future outside Ukraine. The connection was sort of a shared interest. Now, shared interest, what he meant, was unfortunately what a lot of these uh, old perverts mean who get mail-order brides. Now, she wasn't a mail-order bride. He met her through Julia. But a lot of times, old perverts in the U.S., the U.K., and other Western countries will take in these mail-order brides who are much younger believing that they have the same, quote, shared interest, for basically they know the women aren't that attracted to them, they know that they don't have a lot in common, but the women want a way out of their country and want a way out of poverty, and they want to be with a young, pretty girl, and in their country it's not really possible to do. So uh, they're kind of both serving a need for one another. And the problem with this is that a lot of times someone is being used here. And often it's the dude. Often the uh, as soon as the woman gets herself established in the new country, she will leave the guy and go be with someone she really wants to be with that's closer to her own age. Sometimes the whole thing is planned in the first place to do this. And even if that's not the case, a lot of times the marriage just doesn't work because they are decades apart and from different cultures and have nothing in common and have trouble communicating. So these are not good situations. Anyway, he started paying for Irina to have English lessons. And he was hoping that once she learned enough English, that he could just take her back to the UK. And she seemed to be all for that. She says, yeah, I'd like to learn English. And yeah, let's, let's go back to the UK and live together. So he, he thought this is on the way. However, he went down to the UK embassy in the Ukraine. And he said... Uh, all right, so uh, I've got this bird here who's rather interested in me, and I'm interested in her, and um, we're in love, and I, I wish to bring her back to um, the UK with me and uh, start a life with her. Uh, so all we need is her to be able to um, leave the country and come into the uh, UK with um, and, and stay with me there. So um, why don't we do that? And uh, how, how do we get this uh, whole thing going? And then the officials at the UK embassy said... Uh, well, it's, it's going to take several years to make that happen. And he says, have you gone mad? Several years? I mean, this is a woman I wish to take back to, to be my wife. Oh, yes, but um, it, it's not quite so simple here. There's a lot of uh, bureaucratic obstacles that uh, get to bring people from the Ukraine over to the UK. There's a lot who want to leave the Ukraine, and uh, it's just not very easy to do in any kind of um, reasonable amount of time. So... He was very frustrated. So, after a lot of pressure, since it was not going to be easy to bring her into the UK, even if he did marry her in the Ukraine, it was just going to be very hard to get her out of Ukraine. After a lot of prodding from both Julia and Irina, he decided to move to Ukraine and live there with Irina. So, he, saw, he quit his job in the UK, no longer a charity worker. He sold his house and they began looking for a new place to live together in Odessa. Now she was insisting that he buy a house there. 
she didn't want him renting a nice place. She told him that she wants the feeling that it's a permanent relationship. She told him, presumably through the translator, maybe through the app, that if he just rented a place, it would look like he's not serious about her. That it looks like a permanent relationship when they get a place of their own that uh, that he buys. So James said, my friends in the UK thought it was a big step, but they were happy for me that I had a future. His friends in the UK are idiots to not raise a huge red flag about this. If one of my friends came to me and said this, I'd say, ah, 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 you're being scammed here. I, I don't know what the angle is yet here, but this looks like a big scam. No. Well, here was the problem. Um, it's not easy to get money from the UK to Ukraine because there are so many scams in the Ukraine that the UK, they have low limits regarding the amount of money that can be transferred between the countries. James was having a lot of issues with transferring money over to the Ukraine. So um, here was the suggestion that was made from Irina to James. And that was, uh, they buy an apartment there. I guess you can buy apartments. It's kind of like buying condos in the U.S., but you can buy apartments there. And Irina claimed that she found a nice uh, $200,000 apartment for them to live in. But the problem is that it was going to be too hard to transfer money to individuals in the Ukraine to buy it, and that James would not be able to bring that money himself, not being a resident of the Ukraine. So they said the only way he could transfer money from the UK to the Ukraine was to transfer the money into a company account in the Ukraine. So there was a woman named Christina, also attractive, also around the same age, early 30s. Christina worked as a wedding planner. And Christina was a friend of Irina. And Christina agreed to help the two of them get the money into the country because Christina had a wedding planning company and it was told to James that if he were to simply transfer the money to that company rather than to personal accounts for uh, wedding planning, that they'd be able to do it and that this would get by any kind of restrictions. So James is like, oh, I don't know about this. I don't want to wire large sum of money over to this stranger, I don't know. And Irina said, oh, don't you trust me? Come on. You know, I've known Christina for a long time. She's not going to cheat us. Just transfer the money to her company. And then once she gets it, then she will transfer it to me and we'll buy the apartment. So what happened was that even though James was getting a little suspicious, this is kind of weird, he sent $200,000 to Christina a woman he barely knew. I bet you're thinking that Christina just ran off with the money. You would be wrong. That's not what happened. Because they needed to add some layers of complexity here. So if James were to go to the police in Odessa, that it wouldn't be so obvious the money was stolen. So he transferred the money Christina received it, and to his pleasant surprise, no one ran off with it. However, Irina brought some bad news to him. She said the bank said that they're only going to release the money to Christina if she's his wife, that 
due to all the scams, the bank does not want to release the money to her, even though it's a company account. So it's stuck in the bank. So Irina came up with a plan. She said, how about you just temporarily marry Christina? Then once the money's released and we get the apartment, then you can divorce Christina and you can marry me and it'll all be fine. Well, they had a wedding planned already. When I say they, I don't mean Christina and James. James and Irina had a wedding planned. Remember, he was moving to Ukraine. He was buying a house or an apartment, I guess, and they were going to get married. And it was only a few days before this wedding was to take place that Irina dropped the bomb on him that it would not be released unless he quickly married Christina and then they got it released and then he quickly divorced Christina and married Irina as the whole thing was planned in the first place. So Irina was telling him that she was not going to marry him unless the money was released and they had a home to move into. She wrote in a Viber message, I'm in complete disarray. You want me to look like a prostitute in the eyes of my relatives. She she thought it was going to look terrible if there had not been a place that was actually bought for them to live. It's going to look like that uh, he's just an older dude coming to the Ukraine, renting some place and banging her. And uh, there's no permanent residence. She, she said it's going to look terrible to her relatives and she's not going to marry him under these circumstances. Then she started to threaten him, not directly, but was saying that uh, there's 60 guests coming to this wedding, including her family, and that there were some men that would be really pissed if he screwed her over this way and didn't take this last step to get the money released and broke her heart like this, and that uh, some of these men might hurt him. So now there started to become a threat of violence here, that these men in her family were so protective of her that if he screwed her over this way that he may get the crap beat out of him. And he said, I was told that divorcing Christina and then remarrying Irina would be the easy thing to do. So on July 10th, 2017, James married Christina. He really did marry her. And it was a legal marriage in Ukraine. And that afternoon, the money was released. And then Christina and Irina announced that, yes, the apartment has been bought and that they had to spend the entire 200000 on it. That's what it cost. And uh, that they now own the apartment. So, yeah, that was a little bit unnerving, but at least they seem to have done what they said. They got the money out. They bought the apartment. And uh, the plan was to divorce Christina from that sham marriage and quickly marry Irina. And unlike in the U.S., where divorce takes a long time, it's very quick in the Ukraine. So great. The next day the actual wedding reception was to take place. Now, he hadn't divorced Christina yet because they didn't quite have time to do this. But they were going to have the wedding reception where James is marrying Irina while he's still technically married to Christina, but nobody knows that. And then very shortly after the wedding, they were going to divorce Christina and then sign the legal paperwork to make Irina his wife. And they didn't tell anyone at the ceremony that, but uh, they were going to go ahead with the wedding ceremony and just deal with the legal formalities right after that. So first, 
he was asked to send $20,000 to Christina for the wedding planning, for the whole wedding bill. And it was itemized as this. Wedding quick cake, 1200 Renting a restaurant, 2000 The food for each, people, for each person, $100 per person, $6,000. Alcohol, $25 per person, which comes out to $1,500. Gifts for the guests, $20 per person, $1,200. Decor for the room, $1,500. Leading to the wedding registration, I don't know what that means, $800. Musician, $1,200. Wedding photos, projector... Cracker for newlyweds first dance, $1,200. Photographer, $1,500. Videographer for $1,800. And uh, a wedding limo, $120 for one hour, which is actually the best buy of this whole thing. So he sent uh, $20,000 for this. I think this was actually sent in pounds, not dollars. But it, it added up to about 20000 bucks, 14,000 pounds. And he sent this to Christina for the expensive wedding they were going to have which you may say 20k that's not an expensive wedding well in ukraine it is everything's cheap in ukraine so this, this stuff shouldn't have cost this type of money you shouldn't have to pay a hundred dollars per person to eat at the we- at the wedding to cater a wedding in ukraine in the u.s that's fine but in, in uh, ukraine it should not be like that this is all inflated but anyway you may think okay well i bet they had some sort of total crap wedding and they just ran off with most of the money. No, they had a wedding that actually was pretty decent. In fact, the wedding part of the whole thing looked pretty nice. So James showed up at the wedding, and as soon as he got out, the li- got out of the limo, all 60 people at the wedding stood up and applauded. Everybody looked very happy. There he was, the groom that was going to make Irina happy. These were all guests of Irina's. These were not, no one he knew was at the wedding. The crowd stood up and applauded the man that was making Irina's dreams come true. And it looked like a very nice wedding, and it looked exactly as described. And for the moment, he felt okay. This was all a little bit weird, but it's all kind of paying off. You know, it's all as expected. It's all as they claimed it would be. The wedding went forth. They said their vows. And the legal paperwork was not done, but aside from that, he is now married to Irina. The happy couple was finally together, and there is no reason why that night he couldn't finally make love to his bride. Remember, she was only waiting for marriage. She wasn't a cold fish, you see. She was just waiting for marriage. So did she really sleep with him that night? Well, something unfortunate happened. James was being given drinks by Irina's mother. Drink after drink. Oh, have another drink. Oh, have another drink. I want the groom to have another drink. He kept having drinks, and all of a sudden, he felt violently ill. And he ended up in the hospital. Irina would not visit him in the hospital, saying that she was not allowed to be there because she was not his legal wife. Remember, he was still technically married to Christina. He now believes that his drink was spiked with some sort of poison to temporarily incapacitate him and send him to the hospital. Not kill him, but just pretty much end the day there. 
and send him to the hospital. So Iterino would not have to have sex with him because this whole thing was a scam. But what was the scam? The apartment was really bought. The wedding really took place. There was some expense to it. So what was the scam? Well, this is a very complex scheme. And it was a complex scheme on purpose so they could get away with it. James, referring to what happened to him with the drink, said about Irina's mother, She was plying me with drinks, and I'm now sure it was spiked. I started violently shaking and had to be taken out. Irina also was mad at him, saying that he humiliated her in front of her family by getting too drunk. So she was also mad at him, in addition to not being his official wife and couldn't visit him in the hospital. She also claimed that she had medical costs. I don't know what illness she claimed to have, but she, while he was in the hospital, she was saying that uh, she was having medical issues and needed uh, $12,000 for that, so he sent her 12000 more. He did get the divorce from Christina, but then he started finding some things out. There was some person in the Ukraine who took pity on him. I don't know who this person was. I don't know what their relationship was to him or to Irina and Christina and Julia there, but someone who was aware of this whole thing took him aside and told him the truth. They said, first of all, you've got an issue here with this apartment. You know how you were told it was uh, $200,000? In reality, the apartment was bought for $63,000. So where's the other 140000 It looks like someone kept it. So even though the apartment was uh, really bought, the price of it was greatly inflated. So that's the first problem. The other problem, he was told the entire thing was a scam. He was told the entire thing was set up to separate him from his money. That all these stories about Christina and about the medical expenses and about Julia referring him to Irina in the first place, the whole thing was a big setup. James said, My heart fell into my boots. It goes beyond the level of human understanding that these people would behave like this and think nothing of it. It doesn't go beyond my human understanding. The... Ukraine is one of the poorest countries in Europe and even in the world, and uh, there's a lot of people who will do anything for money. And it's learned there by a lot of people that scamming is your way out of the poorhouse. And it's normalized, and a lot of people there just don't mind doing it and don't mind saying or doing whatever they can to get ahead. It's, it's a very cutthroat world over there, and a lot of them grow up believing this and learning this and to them, that's just normal life. I mean, they know they're breaking someone's heart. They know they're ripping off somebody. They know they're uh, doing a lot of bad things, but they kind of learn that sometimes you got to do bad things to get ahead. I'm not making excuses for them. They're still pieces of shit. But they learn that it's that type of world. It's eat or be eaten, and you've got to fuck some people over if you want to get ahead. And that's just the way it is over there. It's not look down upon over there to scam like it is here. So you get a lot of people who do things like that and who are accomplices to such scams. So James knew that he had been had. And he decided to try to get the money back. 
He said, I had all the bank documents for the transfers and the Viber messages between us. I, I th was sure it'd be sorted. Well, not quite. As you can imagine, the police department in Odessa, Ukraine, isn't exactly the best. And every time he came in there, quote, at times they laughed in my face. So they really didn't want to do very much about it. Or they claimed they're going to do something and, according to him, quote, didn't move. And there's so much crime in Ukraine that even though they're aware there's a lot of marriage scams there, they really just don't care that much. So he was told by someone, I don't know who, but someone told him that the only way you're going to get the police interested in such a case is to bribe one of the detectives there to take an interest, to move it up the priority list. And he says, have you gone mad? I'm, I'm not going to bribe the police. That's insane. I'm not, they, they need to do their job and investigate crime. They're not supposed to demand money from me to get back the money that was already stolen from me. So he wouldn't do it, which was a mistake. You've got to operate within the confines of the system there. And while it's shitty, you have to do this. I would much rather give a little bit of money to the police to get them interested in the case than let these piece of shit scammers get away with what they did. So he was not willing to bribe them. The police did take in Irina and Christina for questioning, but no charges were brought against them and the police would not explain what conclusion they came to, even though these documents were all right there plain as day. That pretty much proved what happened. James did uh, commence uh, some legal proceedings and that uh, after he got the original marriage just completely annulled, he was named the sole owner of the apartment that was worth $63,000. So they took Christina's name off of it, saying that it was not uh, something bought during the marriage because that she couldn't just take because she bought this while married to him. So it was technically community property. So even though uh, they divorced, she still had a claim on it. But uh, the court ruled that the marriage was bogus and that he did have that apartment. However, what is he going to do with it? He's not going to go live in Ukraine. And he's actually not even selling it because he's hoping maybe the value will go up once uh, COVID is over, which is kind of a wish on his part that's not going to come true. Now, what was the true story with Irina, Christina, and Julia, aside from this whole thing being a calculated scam to get money out of this guy? Well, Christina was actually married. She was married to a man named Dennis, D-E-N-Y-S. And Dennis, knowing the riches that would come from this, actually divorced Christina so she could legally marry James and then planned to remarry Christina once James divorced her in this sham marriage, and that's exactly what he did. So Dennis divorced Christina, Christina married James, and then Dennis married her again. It turned out that Irina was also married the entire time. And that would explain why she would not touch him because her husband gave her permission to do all this, but uh, at the same time, he didn't want his wife kissing James or having sex with him or doing anything intimate with him. So he made sure that uh, Julie was there the entire time. They never had any kind of uh, romance and that the farthest they would ever go would be just flirting back and forth in Viber messages. 
So she was never even divorced. And what about that wedding? Well, it was a sham. Remember, they didn't sign any legal paperwork, so it was just a ceremony. But wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the 60 people who applauded when James showed up to the wedding? Were there really 60 people who really believed that Irina was marrying James and somehow didn't know she was already married? No, of course not. These were hired actors that you can hire very cheaply in Ukraine to pretend to be friends and relatives of Irina. What about the mother? Did Irina's elderly mom really drug James through alcohol? Well, not quite. See, there was an older woman who was saying she was Irina's mom and Irina was identifying as her mom and was giving James these drinks that ended up poisoning him. But she was actually the mom of Julia, the original translator. So Julia's mom was in on this. Apparently, Irina's real mom either wasn't around or didn't want to get involved in this. So Irina's mom was actually Julia's mom. So the whole thing was fake. The whole thing was completely staged, and they had a completely staged wedding with people pretending to be excited about this marriage who were all actors. The only person at that whole wedding who didn't know it was fake was James. Can you imagine? <laughs> imagine being at a wedding with 60 attendees and the only person at that entire wedding who doesn't realize it's a scam is you. Everybody else is acting. It's almost like the Truman Show. That is crazy. So he was very frustrated that the most he was able to do was become the sole owner of that $63,000 apartment, but that he was still out almost 200 k from everything else. And the cops weren't going to do anything. They did some weak initial investigation and then dropped it, and that was that. So he decided that he's got to do something else. Enter Robert Papinian. Robert Papinian fancies himself the Sherlock Holmes of the Ukraine. In fact, the he has a silhouette of Sherlock Holmes in front of the gate, like attached to the gate of his office. However, that's about where the similarities end between Robert Papinian and Sherlock Holmes. See, while Robert Papinian and his associates do investigations, they don't exactly accomplish it by proving a crime occurred and then presenting to the police. No, 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 no. What they do is they investigate the situation and then try to intimidate these scammers into returning the money. So he's a former policeman, and he said, we don't work with the police. We use psychological methods. And then he laughs. This money was taken illegally, so we have to use some kind of illegal ways of getting it back. Hmm. So he's basically hiring a detective agency of thugs who go and scare these scammers into returning the money. Now, what does he charge for this service? $3,000 up front plus 30% of whatever is recovered. James knew he wasn't getting everything back, but he also knew that it's a lot better to get 70% compared to nothing, and he'd much rather pay 30% to this PI than let the scammers keep 100%. So he hired him. 
Well, as promised, Robert Papinian went to work. And he started having these big dudes, these big scary dudes who worked for him, follow Irina and Christina all around town and follow their husbands. They started getting rattled by this. They were saying that uh, Robert, Robert Papinian and his men are extortionists. Irina's actual husband, whose name is Andri, replied to the BBC reporter's questions and said there's a mix-up. But he did acknowledge that Mr. Papinian's men were following them and trying to extort money from them. The BBC found that even after all this, Irina still has a dating profile up online. It says she's a divorced babysitter and promises my heart will belong to one man and only one. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's true because she's staying with her husband, Andri, and will not even cheat on him for the purpose of a scam. So I guess her heart really does belong to one man and only one. I guess that's not a lie. So at the moment, they were not able to get uh, the money back, but the scammers are getting pretty rattled. Mr. Papinian said, my guys were in the city of Chernomorsk near Odessa. We found Irina near the house. We gave her till June 20th to resolve the issue of debt repayment. This article was written shortly after that. So we don't know if anything was paid by June 20th. But basically, it's an exercise of how scary can Robert Papinian be to the scammers to where they're going to eventually panic and give the money back, or at least give some of it back. And Mr. Papinian's motivation is that he gets 30% of whatever's recovered. Now, who knows if he's going to accurately state what he recovered, but I have to admit that if that's your only option, it's worth taking. I would do the same thing in that spot. I would never get into this situation. But if I did, I would be glad to hire someone like Mr. Papinian to intimidate the scammers. In fact, I wouldn't even care if they beat up the scammers at that point. Like, really, I, I, I wouldn't care. There's some people who say, no, 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 I'm not going to stoop to that level. And I say, bullshit. If you fail every other way, and you know you were scammed. You know criminals actually scammed you. I'm not talking about some kind of legal dispute where you think you're in the right, they think they're in the right. When you were actually scammed by someone who actually set out to scam you, and you know it 100%, as in this case, and the police just are too corrupt or too lazy and won't help you, if you can hire people to get the money back through illegal means and you won't get in trouble for it, then great, do it. Scammers deserve it. So I don't know how far Robert Papinian and his big men take this. I don't know if they actually beat anybody up. I don't know if they actually do anything other than try to scare people. But they might once they don't scare them into giving the money back. Maybe they do start escalating what they're doing until the money comes back. But that's the way it works in Ukraine. He does have some hope that he'll get some back. In the meantime, he's taken another job. James says he hasn't admitted this to his family, what happened. He said, I haven't told my family what happened either. It would just upset them. And uh, they'd say to me, what a fool, and they'd be right. <laughs> yeah. 
See, he still has this uh, apartment that he owns in Ukraine. He can sell it at any time. He's just waiting. But that's all he has right now. And he's out about, uh, I think, 190K at the moment since he got that apartment back. But what a complex scheme. The Odessa police would not give any comment to the BBC. And nobody would give any comment to the BBC of all the scammers except for Irina's husband, who just claims it was a mix-up and that this PI is an extortionist. That's all they'd say. So you see what happened. He was kind of uh, roped into this where a little bit more kept happening every time they kept leaving him on the hook. And that's exactly what these online scammers do, except this was a lot more complex and it happened in person and it involved real people. And it actually happened in that country where usually these romance scams occur via the internet. And that's a lot of times the problem in the few cases where someone does go to the country to meet someone that's scamming them. Usually intimidation ends up as part of it too, where they're threatened they're going to be beaten up or killed, and it's easy to believe it can happen in a place like that. So that is a wild story. I find it pretty amazing that anyone would ever propose to a woman they never kissed and they never spent any alone time with. But he did. In general, whenever there's somebody from another country that purports to have an interest in you and they're from a country where they really want to get out of it, it's not like you're in the U.S. and they're in the U.K. I mean, a country that has a lot of problems where a lot of people want to escape, you always have to question their motives and you have to be really, really careful about any kind of demands or requests for money. Even things that seem like they're dire emergencies. You have to get really, really, really suspicious. It's better to just steer clear of all that. Some guys believe that this sort of relationship is the key to happiness. They think to themselves, okay, I'm an older guy and pretty young females are just not going to be into me anymore. And yeah, if I was mega rich, sure. But, you know, I I have, uh, like this guy claimed he had about 350K to his name total. So he chunked off 250 of it on this whole thing. So if you have 350K to your name total, that's fine. But you're not going to attract much younger women in the U.S. based on you having 350K. That's not that exciting to them. They can get a lot richer guys than you. So guys like that, They think, okay, I'm not rich enough to get an attractive woman in the U.S., even one trying to use me for money. I just, I'm not rich enough to get one like that to marry me. So how am I going to do it? I'm not going to do it based upon my own youth or looks, which don't exist anymore and never will exist again. And I'm not going to do it based upon the money I have because I'm not that rich. But what about in a place like the Ukraine or Russia, where people are very poor and they're desperate to get out and the women there will see what I have as a lot of money compared to what is typical where they live and they'll be thrilled just to get out of the country so yeah this is an ideal situation they think but it never works out that way it's very rare that one of these type of relationships work now if it just so happens you get to know a woman online that doesn't originate under shady circumstances and you spend time with her and there's nothing that appears like it's a gold digging job or a scam job, 
or a mail order bride job. I mean, yeah, but you got to be real careful. And I've said this before. Remember, there was a story about a poker player in the UK who was murdered after a much younger woman feigned interest in him and then let in her two friends, including her actual boyfriend, and they beat him to death after robbing him. Remember that terrible story? I said when I was reporting that story, and I'll say that here, that you have to look at what does the woman really see in you? You have to be honest with yourself. What is appealing about you to her? And if you can't really answer that, then you should not marry her and you should not be with her. Because often the motives are not very pure. Furthermore, if somebody wants to marry you to get out of the country where they're living, you shouldn't do that either because they don't love you and it'll be very, very easy for them to leave you. It's one thing if you have just a sexual transaction. You know, you get a prostitute or a, you, you, you go out with a girl and spend a lot of money on her and it's implied she's going to have sex with you and she does and, and you know, you're both happy at the end. That's a different story because both people kind of know why they're doing it and in the short term, what each person's getting out of it. But there's a big difference between that and the long term. So you're not going to have a woman marrying you to get out of the country and then who ends up loving you. She's going to leave you is what's going to happen. She's going to cheat on you and or leave you. So if you're going to marry someone or have a long-term relationship with someone, you need to know that they love you. It's not enough that you just love them or that you're attracted to them. They have to love you. And if you can't figure out why they actually love you, then you should not be with them. And you can't delude yourself. You can't say, oh, uh, she thinks I'm smart. She thinks I'm uh, funny. She thinks that I'm entertaining. She thinks I'm sweet. That's what they'll say, but you can tell if it's true or not. And even James here, despite how gullible he was, was aware that for Irina, this was a marriage of utility. He thought at best she was using him to get out of the country. He didn't know the whole thing was a scam, but he thought she was using him to get out of the country. He was okay with that. The funny thing is, I have a feeling if James was just interested in dating women his own age in the UK, he probably wouldn't have had a problem. You know, the guy was employed. He had 350K to his name. He had a house there. So I, I'm sure there are plenty of women around 50, even ones a little bit younger than 50, 45, whatever, who would have dated him. And I can't see his picture, but I can see his body. His face is blocked out in these pictures because he doesn't want his identity known and be humiliated in the UK. But I see the pictures of his body and his body looks normal. Like It's not like he's 600 pounds. You know, he just looks like a, a normal older guy. And I can't see his face, but I have to imagine he kind of just looks like an average dude in his early 50s. So if he was with an average woman around 50, I think she would have been happy to be with him. But he, I think he wanted to do better than that. He wanted to be with a hot, younger woman. You saw where that got him. It's interesting how far some of these scammers will go. I'll give them credit. This is a creative and complex scam. I imagine showing up to a wedding. <laughs> There's 60 actors there. How often do you see that? How often do you see where a 
places purchased and actually purchased in your name as part of the scam. So it's all kind of unfolded in slow motion to eventually relieve him of his money. And the reason they didn't run off with it, as I mentioned before, was because if they just took the money and ran, then he could have gone to the police and they may have taken more interest. But because this had his whole level of complication of the marriage and the, and the sham marriage and the sham divorce and, and, and this apartment that was bought that was still in his name, like the whole thing was kind of too convoluted. And I think the police weren't that interested unless he bribed them. So at least they, they had some plausible deniability because they can craft a story around that. I've never seen anything like this before. Most complex romance scheme ever. Let's talk about something close to home. A lot closer to home than Ukraine. WSOP Pennsylvania and their bracelet events. I was asked during the Poker Fraud Alert video show that Brandon ran on July 24th when I was on vacation. I was asked during my five-minute appearance on that broadcast what I thought of the WSOP Pennsylvania. And my answer was, it's stupid. And I still believe it's stupid. WSOP Pennsylvania, I'm talking about the bracelet events, not the existence of the site. The existence of the site is fine. But to actually have bracelet events for Pennsylvania only is insane. Now, some people countered who are pro these events, they said, what's wrong with that? WSOP Nevada has bracelet events. They've had online bracelet events for years now. So why Nevada and not Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania even has a bigger population, they say. And my response is that the online bracelet events were originally aimed at people who were in Las Vegas who were playing the WSOP at the same time. This was not a separate thing. Now, this year they separated it, which is stupid, but they claim that's because of COVID that they had to move the series to the fall. And same with last year's online events. There was no live events. That's all they had. But typically the online events were supposed to complement the live events. It's something that you do while you're in Vegas anyway, so you don't necessarily live in Nevada if you're playing in these, that you're probably in town anyway for WSOP live events. Now, I never liked the online bracelet. I have a lot of problems with online bracelets being considered bracelets. I think it should be a totally separate thing, much like the circuit rings are different than WSOP bracelets and considered a little bit inferior, even though they're both tournaments run by the World Series. Now, I'd like to win a WSOP ring. In fact, I came in 10th place in one of the few events I played, but... A WSOP ring is not a WSOP bracelet, and no one equates the two. And same with these online bracelets. They should make something else that's not called a bracelet. They could be an online ring, whatever it is. But the bracelet should only be for the WSOP live events in Las Vegas. I don't even like the WSOP Europe and those bracelets being considered equivalent. I think there should be one WSOP in Vegas in the summer or whenever they hold it. And that should be the only bracelets they give out. And that's the way it was for a very long time. But if we're going to accept that the online bracelets are real bracelets, you can't have separate bracelet events in every state. Because let's pretend that all 50 states have a WSOP.com, which, by the way, WSOP.com would love. They can't do it. It's not legal. But if it was legal, they would have a WSOP.com in all 50 states. 
would that mean all 50 states could hold bracelet events? That's crazy. Like I'm talking about for that state only. So you should not have a situation where you have to travel from state to state to play bracelet events. Now you may say, well, there's tournaments all over the place. People are constantly traveling. Look at uh, Ari Angle. And I say, yeah, but that's for regular tournaments. I'm talking about bracelet events should not be all over the country where you have to play, you have to travel to this place to play online. It, It doesn't make any sense. It isn't compatible with what bracelets always were. So I don't like that in order to win these Pennsylvania bracelets, you have to travel to Pennsylvania and play online in Pennsylvania. That's completely different than what was conceived in the first place with the WSOP online bracelets that took place during the WSOP Live World Series in Vegas. But anyway, these took place, and not surprisingly, they were a disaster. So the first issue that was called out involved the $3,200 No Limit Hold'em High Roller event. So a player named Brandon Hall tweeted, if the Pennsylvania 3200 bracelet event gets to 61 runners, are we really going to pay out 36 spots? Now, what did he mean by that? Well, if you took a look at the screenshot that Brandon Hall posted, it showed that they're going to play, they're going to pay nine places if there's one to 60 players, which is weird. How are you going to pay nine places if there's one player? If there's one player, that he, I guess he wins the bracelet automatically. So that's a weird thing to write. But ignoring that, they're not going to get one player. So if it's up to 60 players that get nine places paid, so if you finish in 10th year on the bubble, but if it's 61 to 250 players, then they pay 36 spots. <laughs> so how does that work? So you have 60 players in the event, and they're paying nine spots, which is fine. But then... The second a 61st person enters, all of a sudden there's 27 more spots to pay? They quadruple what's being paid if there's one more player? When I say what's being paid, I mean the number of spots, not the total, obviously. The total is based on the prize pool, which is going to be very similar. So that basically cuts the whole prize pool uh, to where – or the prize pool is the same, but it basically cuts what the average player is getting by four if there's one more player who registers and – as pointed out by Brandon Hall, 36 out of 61 players would get paid. What? Now, what's especially absurd about this is this is all being done through software. So it's not even like, well, we've got to make it easy for the tournament staff to prepare for these different payout structures. This is a computer which should be able to do it on the fly. So they actually programmed the computer to jump from 9 to 36 spots being paid when they get a 61st registrant. So what did they end up getting? Because there were uh, 37 registrants when he posted this. Well, what ended up happening is they got 86 players. So 36 out of 86 players got paid. (laughs) (laughs) Got to be kidding me. But that's actually what happened. Not quite as bad as 36 of 61, but 36 out of 86 is pretty bad too. But how do they do this? How do you pay 36 out of 86 people if the prize pool only has so much money? In fact, in this prize pool, there was $261,440. Well, the way they did it 
was they paid only a little bit more than $1,800 for those who min-cashed, even though the buy-in was (laughs) $3,200. So, according to the payout structure that was posted here, that uh, places 28 through 36 got $1,830, 19th through 27th got 2,091. 16th through 18th got 24.57. Still less than the buy-in. 13th through 15th got 29.54. Still less than the buy-in. Once you get to 12th place, congratulations, you've made money. 36.34. So you've made a 434 profit at that point for finishing 10th through 12th place. But 13th through 36th, you cash but lose money. What the hell? Top prize, by the way, is... 66,641. So how did they let this happen? Who programmed it to be like this? And why was there no human oversight? This is a bracelet event. If you want it to be a bracelet event, it needs at least one human being to look at these things and correct it if something weird like this happens. Because the computer can't think to itself. The computer can't say, hmm, this is pretty absurd. We're paying 36 out of 61 spots and then 36 out of 86 spots. And for a lot of these people, they're not going to get back what the buy-in was. So that's kind of crazy that someone will cash and actually lose money. So maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we shouldn't pay almost half the field. Maybe in some cases, if we only got 61 entrants or somewhere near there, we shouldn't pay more than half the field. Maybe this is kind of insane. Maybe we should change this. So instead of having someone around to stop it and manually change it, it just went forward. That, That was the way it paid out. (laughs) So there was a lot of anger about this. A lot of players were saying on Twitter that this is just further cheapening the brand, that all they do every year is further cheapen the bracelets and further cheapen the brand. And I have to agree. How do you not have somebody in charge that stands up and says, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense? Why don't you have somebody, one human being, overseeing these bracelet events online? If you can't have that, don't hold them. Really. If you can't have one human being Watching over a bracelet event, it should not be a bracelet event. Norman Chad also complained about a different event where the second place finisher had entered nine times. He said the WSOP is the most prestigious series in poker. In a bracelet event today, the runner-up re-entered eight times. That means he had nine tickets or nine lives, while most of the field had one ticket or one life. Most games compete on a level playing field. Poker chooses not to. So he was claiming that on this, whatever this event was, that a lot of people were not uh, re-entering and that one guy who was depocketed uh, entered nine times and ended up finishing second. Norman Chad has been a longtime critic of these re-entry events, and you know what? I agree. I think it perverts the entire concept of tournaments. A tournament is not a cash game. A tournament is not supposed to be where you can reach back into your wallet and buy in after you take a risk and it doesn't work out for you. And it should also mean that if somebody good busts out, then they're gone. You don't have to deal with them. The fact that they have these unlimited re-entry events is very bad. Now, some tournament pros will counter, we don't want to travel all the way to play tournaments just to take a bad beat in the first level and be out. And then the whole purpose for being here is gone. So I think a good compromise would be a one re-entry event where you get one additional side and that's it. I'd be willing to be okay with that. 
I also would like to see some freeze-outs where there's no re-entry, but one re-entry isn't outrageous. One re-entry is hard to criticize, but unlimited. That just lets people with deep pockets buy titles. And that's basically what you could do. If you can just keep buying in over and over and over again every time you bust and you can just take crazy chances if you don't care about the money, then you can eventually buy titles. You're going to lose money in the process, but you're going to be buying titles and it makes the titles not worth as much. And you may say, well, that injects money in the prize pool, so that's good for everybody. If the guy is, auto, if the guy is overall losing, great. The problem is this doesn't, it, it doesn't just apply to fish. So yeah, if a fish is doing this, and then occasionally he luck boxes into a win because of all the money he sunk into it, fine, but at least a lot of money gets injected. But what about good players who do this? What about deep-pocketed good players who are very difficult to deal with? If they don't run well and they bust, you have to keep dealing with them over and over and over again. It's, a, it's like many versions of, of themselves entering. So picture some of the great poker players out there who play tournaments and instead of having to play against one of them, picture that the person steps into a cloning machine and 10 of them show up and sit down. Would you like that? No, it makes the tournament a lot harder. So this is not actually good for the field if people who are positive expectation against the field can re-enter. That's the problem. Even if sometimes they end up shooting off money doing this, you're also making the average player in the field tougher because you're multiplying single players who are positive expectation against the field, you're multiplying their presence is what you're doing. Now, it's not quite like cloning 10 of them because you couldn't have like all 10 of them at the final table. You're only going to have one of them that gets to the point where they cash. But still, it really raises the chance that you're going to be dealing with this person late in the tournament. So that got its usual criticism. A woman who posts on Twitter is L. Sriracha, E-L-L-E-S-R-I-R-A-C-H, L. Sriracha. She posted a screenshot, a very bizarre screenshot, also from WSOP Pennsylvania. It was not a bracelet event. It was a lower buy-in event, but it was a tournament. It was the PKO Tournament Series, event number two, whatever that is. But the title on the screen is... MTT, meaning multi-table tournament, NLH, meaning No Limit Hold'em, $25, $5,000 PLO. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Let's break this down. MTT, fine, it's multi-table tournament. No Limit Hold'em, fine. $25, fine, I guess that's the buy-in. 5000 what? I thought it was just twenty-five. Now 5000 okay, it's probably the guarantee. PLO? What? How can it be No Limit Hold'em PLO? You ever played that game? No Limit Hold'em PLO? There's such as such thing as No Limit Omaha. Nobody plays it, but you could have it. But how can you have No Limit Hold'em PLO? This wasn't No Limit Hold'em and PLO. This is No Limit Hold'em PLO. So not only was there something wrong with the title, but you may say, who cares about the title? Well, it was actually a PLO tournament and in the middle of the tournament, it dealt two cards, and that was it. <laughs> so I guess it lived up to its name, because it dealt two cards and just stopped. <laughs> and then action was on under the gun, so it's not even like it just froze, but it was trying to deal the third card. 
it dealt two cards to everybody and then it's like okay under the gun what do you want to do bet raise or fold <laughs> and she showed a screenshot of this showed her there with jack seven offsuit in a plo event it's supposed to have four cards they only have two cards so i guess the tournament took itself seriously it was a no limit hold and plo event by the way, you may think, well, maybe this is an event that was switching between No Limit Hold'em and PLO. Apparently not, because it said that the next level was starting in uh, 8 minutes and 53 seconds. So that would imply they're in the middle of a level here. So some, some glitch just happened to make this occur. All right, so we, we had some fail there in Pennsylvania. Who do you complain to? Who's in charge? Who do we... Bring this to their attention. Which person needs to look into this? Who are they tweeting to? They're all tweeting to at WSOPcom, which is the official Twitter account of the World Series of Poker. Why are we not tweeting to a manager of the WSOP.com? Who is the manager? Who is the visible manager? Will the real person in charge of WSOP.com please stand up? Please stand up. Where are they? I guess it might be that Danielle Burreal, but she sure doesn't want that role. So where are they? Seriously. I want to know where is a visible manager of WSOP.com, which is now running bracelet events in multiple states. Why are we not getting that information? Why do we not have a human being, a visible manager, who says, I am in charge, I am the manager, come to me with your problems? Why don't we get that? Why? Because Danielle Burreal is shy? She doesn't really want that type of job? Okay, fine. Fine, Danielle. Why don't you work behind the scenes like you, do, you used to do? Maybe you did a good job behind the scenes. Go back to that. I mean, not everybody wants to be front and center, of these type of controversy. I get that. You may not have that personality type. You may be shy. You may not like where people complain to you. You may not like where people say that the software sucks and the events suck and there's all kinds of bugs and there's all kinds of problems and the payout structures suck and this is embarrassing the brand. I know it sucks when you're the guy or girl, I guess in this case, in charge and people are throwing this all in your face. And you know who else couldn't handle this was Bill Reaney the only visible manager it ever had, and he hid from everyone and everything, and he blocked people, and he made his Twitter private. So he didn't want to deal with it. He didn't have the personality type to deal with it. He wasn't really shy. He just couldn't handle criticism and took it all personally and freaked out. So he would hide, and it looks like Danielle Burreal, if she is the one in charge, is just kind of shy and, and does not want to deal with this type of criticism. So... There's nobody to talk to. There's just nobody to reach. There's nobody to go to and say, hey, what's going on with all this? Why was there this type of payout structure with 36 out of 86 spots paying and 36 out of 61 paying from 9 out of 60 prior to that? And why are a bunch of people being paid less than the buy-in? Is this, is this really good? Is this what you want for a bracelet event? And why are there events where... One guy is buying in way more than everybody else. Maybe you should rethink that. Like, why is there not someone to talk to about this? At the regular World Series, we have that. We have Ty Stewart. We have Jack Effel. We used to have Seth Polanski before he left. So we have some people at the regular World Series to go to about this stuff. Why is WCB.com, which is awarding bracelets, not have that? Why? 
Why don't we know who to ask? Why don't we know who to complain to or to give constructive criticism? Why are we talking out into a void of a Twitter account called WSBCOM and that's it? How come? And I don't know the answer. But this is sheer incompetence. Not just the mistakes, not just the lack of oversight, but the lack of availability of customer service. By the way, I cannot reach people at WCB.com when I email them because I have an issue that I won't get into. It's a small issue, but I have a small issue with WCB.com and I emailed them and it took two weeks for them to get back to me. I emailed them back. I asked, can you please respond faster? Because the initial automated response said it would be one to three days. Here it took 14 days. And it's been less than two weeks, but I have not gotten a response yet. So I bet it'll be two weeks again. Can you believe that? A two-week turnaround time for email support? So who's in charge? Who answers you? How do you get attention of anyone in customer service other than the useless phone number where they just direct you to email them? It's a freaking disaster area. It's an embarrassment. And they need to fix it or shut it down. Or at least stop doing anything significant there. If you cannot staff it with people who can answer quickly in customer service, if you do not have anyone willing to stand up and be a visible manager, then shut it down or at least don't run bracelet events on there. It's that simple. How can you have bracelet events on WCB.com without any kind of visible manager? Explain it to me. Explain what the rationale would be. So I think what's really happening is that WCB.com is probably losing money and they don't want to invest any more into it and they just don't really have the budget to hire enough people at third world customer service to answer questions and they don't have anybody in-house that really wants to be the visible manager and probably Bill Reaney filled the office with horror stories of how badly people on Twitter treated him, which they didn't, by the way. They only they treated him like the way he deserved. He was doing a crappy job. He was being passive-aggressive. He was hiding from people. He was ignoring people. And people were frustrated. So, I mean, he deserved the criticism he got. But he probably filled the office with horror stories about trolls on Twitter that can never be satisfied and insult him and probably scared them all stiff to where they're terrified to be the next Bill Reaney on there. You know what? WSOP, I volunteer. Give me the job. I would have to work remotely, but that would be a hell of a lot better than anything you presently have going on. But seriously, I'll take the job. I'll take the criticism. I'll take the abuse. Do it. Or give it to somebody else who is willing to do this. There's a lot of people out there that would be willing to take that job. But I don't think they want to hire anyone new. I think they don't feel they have the budget to do that, so they're just using whatever they have in-house. And since nobody really wants that visible position, which gets all the criticism, they just kind of don't have it. I never would have guessed that when Bill Reaney left that they were actually going to have a less visible and less accessible person in charge after him. I was sure it was only going to go up from there. It actually went down. We actually have a worse situation than the Bill Reaney run WSP.com. That is hard to do. It's actually hard to do a worse job than Bill Reaney running a poker site. But whoever's in charge is managing that right now. Unbelievable. 
if you guys are listening to WSB.com, I'm not looking to be a hater or someone who is just trying to criticize the brand because I like trashing it. I actually like the World Series. I have a World Series bracelet. I want good things for the World Series. I want to see the World Series get better. But seriously, contact me if you are with WSB.com and explain to me what's happening here. How about the guy we had on here, who is the current player of the year leader, he was then, he still is now, the guy who plays under Brock Lesnar, how come he was banned for suspicion of money laundering and he was banned from all Caesars properties and you guys would not help him get unbanned once you realized he was not money laundering? How come when you realize he was falsely accused, instead of apologizing to him and working your asses off to get him unbanned as fast as possible, you left him out in the cold and he was still banned from all Caesars properties, even while he could play on WCB.com? This is your player of the year leader at the moment. And back then, you're treating your player of the year this way. Explain that one to me. Explain how this is not gross mismanagement where your player of the year is coming on shows like these to say that he is being treated like crap by your company. Explain this to me. I'd love to hear it. I want to be fair. I know there's people out there who bash the brand for the sake of bashing the brand or because they're just assholes. I'm not one of them. I'm being fair here. So explain to me why this is happening. Explain to me how this does not indicate extreme incompetence on the part of people at WSB.com. How come I'm still getting automated emails saying that it's going to be a one to three day turnaround time and it's taking two weeks? Why don't you change that message saying we're taking two weeks? Why take two weeks? You shouldn't be operating for takes two weeks to answer. Really? This is insane. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. I mean, ask the average poker player what they think of WSB.com right now. It's not going to get very good responses. Ask anyone if they think it's managed well or if it's easy to contact somebody who's in charge there. Everybody will say no. Everybody will. It's a disaster. In fact, I'll tell you, if I, I'm probably not going to go to the World Series this year because of the mask mandate and all that crap that I don't want to deal with, but if I do end up going to the World Series this year, play events, I may actually stroll in to talk to Ty Stewart or Jack and I may just have a sit down with them and say, look, I, I just want to present to you a real concern that this, this site is a disaster. I understand that it's not making the money you hoped it would. I understand you have a limited budget, but there's some managerial level mistakes there that don't really have to do with money. And you just have people in charge who don't know what they're doing. And can you explain to me what's going on here? Why did your player of the year have to come on this show? and shame you guys into getting him unbanned when he was banned for a false suspicion of money laundering. Like, what? why were you not helping him with this once he was cleared? Why is there not a single human being watching the bracelet events? Why is there nobody visible to contact? Why does it take 14 days to get an answer from support? And don't hide behind COVID. We've had COVID for a year and a half now. By now, you should have that all squared away. Okay, I'm going to move on here. Poker After Dark, which is owned by Poker Go, they are um, making some interesting moves here and getting some interesting lineups. But even for Poker After Dark, which has done a pretty good job of getting interesting lineups going, 
even this surprised me, what they got going this time. Phil Helmuth has been compared to Ted Cruz. Some people say that Phil Helmuth looks like Ted Cruz, sounds like Ted Cruz, has a similar demeanor to Ted Cruz. So some have said that uh, Ted Cruz is like alternate reality Phil Helmuth. But as far as I knew, Ted Cruz was not a poker player. So I didn't think I'd actually see Ted Cruz at a poker table with Phil Helmuth. Well, apparently we are going to see that because Phil Helmuth just played poker with Ted Cruz on Poker After Dark. Phil Helmuth tweeted about, or he tweeted a picture of himself with Ted Cruz standing outside of the Poker Go Studios, which are right by the Aria. And it was really him standing next to Ted Cruz. (laughs) Clear as day. He and Ted Cruz standing together. Helmuth wrote, filmed Poker After Dark with Senator Cruz, Mr. Beast, we'll explain in a second, and legend Doyle Brunson today, hashtag positivity. And Helmuth has his arm extended with a big smile on his face, and Ted Cruz is standing next to him with his hands in his pockets in front of the Poker Go studio, which you can see, you just can, uh, if you just walk from the Aria, you can walk right by the Poker Go studio. So I've walked by it before myself. I've never been in there. A person named Kunal Patel tweeted out, didn't think it was possible to want to slow roll two people more than Helmuth at a six-handed table, but here we are. Now, I'm not sure who the two are, but for sure one of them is uh, Ted Cruz. Maybe he's referring to the other one being this Mr. Beast guy. That'll explain in a second. But yeah, he tweeted out this uh, six-handed table picture and you, there's a girl in seat one. I don't know who it is. You can only see her back, but it's, it's definitely a, a young female. Then Helmuth seat two. Doyle is in seat three. I don't know the person in seat four. Seat five is this Mr. Beast guy. And seat six is Ted Cruz. Now, Mr. Beast is a very popular YouTube. Being an old guy, I don't really follow popular YouTubers. I should have asked Benjamin if he knows who Mr. Beast is. Benjamin knows about that whole world, but that's because Benjamin is a kid and I'm pretty far from a kid. So I don't really follow who these YouTube personalities are, but this guy apparently is pretty huge. His real name is Jimmy Donaldson. He's only 23 years old. He's from Kansas and he has 66.3 million subscribers on his main channel. And he has 113.4 million subscribers combined on all of his channels. So apparently this guy is a huge deal in the YouTube world. And he must make a ton of money because these super popular YouTubers really make a ton of cash. I've never heard of Mr. Beast before. I just don't pay attention to that world, nor was I aware of him being in poker, and he may not even play much, but they got him in the game, and they got 
Ted Cruz in the game, and they're sitting next to each other. And it's an interesting combo because you have this 23-year-old who appeals to all the young people, and then you have uh, Ted Cruz who appeals more to the older crowd, or at least to the conservative older crowd. But I even think that the liberal older crowd, while they probably dislike Ted Cruz, would probably be interested to see him play poker, much like how I am a conservative, but I would be interested to see a well-known Democratic politician playing poker. Like, for example, I think that I would want to see AOC playing poker. I don't like AOC. I don't agree with her politics. But if someone said she's coming on to play poker, I'd want to watch it because she's a very notable and controversial politician, just like Ted Cruz is on the other side in a different way. Uh, Now, here's somebody who's not controversial. Trader Ruski, welcome to the show. What's happening, Josh? So did you see this thing about Ted Cruz being on Poker After Dark? I sure did. Unreal. Yeah, it's crazy. Now, I wonder if Helmuth knew him. I don't wonder if Helmuth is the one who facilitated this or or what. I Helmuth does have access to some famous people because he is one of the most famous poker players out there. So if anyone has even a little bit of poker fandom in them, then Helmuth is kind of a guy they're going to want to meet and talk to. So you could see how somebody who's famous themselves might want to make contact with Helmuth, and they probably can because they're famous themselves, so Helmuth probably wants to talk to them. And that's how these type of things happen. So I wonder if Ted Cruz just likes poker and he made contact with Helmuth in some way, or maybe even Helmuth just had the idea of inviting him. I would think that Helmuth personally inviting some of these people would probably carry more weight than like just some producer on Poker After Dark who nobody knows. But whatever it is, he got them both on there, and they just finished taping it. You may wonder, how did Doyle do? Did Doyle crush this field that appears to be him, Helmuth, and four unknowns, or at least unknowns to the poker world, maybe not unknowns to the general world, like Mr. Beats and uh, Ted Cruz definitely aren't unknowns, but uh, in poker, obviously, they're not uh, stars of the game. Well, no, Doyle said that he actually lost in the game when someone asked him how he did there. I don't know when this is going to air, but this happened, and Helmuth is, is very proud of it. <laughs> Happily tweeted that picture of himself and the very controversial Ted Cruz. So, I mean, I guess good for Poker After Dark, keeping it fresh and getting on some new faces. I mean, there's only so much you can see. There's only so much you want to see with the big names playing with each other. So to bring in people who outside of poker who are very well known is pretty interesting. Negranu made a joke referring to how Helmuth and Cruz have been compared. He said, this is like the before and after pick where you aren't really sure who's the before and who's the after. Uh, Some people were very critical of both Helmuth and uh, Ted Cruz, like uh, Dolly Man, who is once a pretty well-known online player, but uh, now is kind of just more of a Twitter figure. He said, uh, two of the most cringeworthy people on the planet referring to Cruz and Helmuth. Phil Helmuth said he lost to Mr. Beast. He said, I lost 40000 to this beginner, Mr. Beast. Sigh and quit, sigh. Never had this much fun losing before. Am I feeling okay? Hashtag positivity. So I guess Mr. Beast uh, beat Helmuth. They posted another clip of Mr. Beast getting it all in with 6-9 offsuit against Helmuth Ace King. And, of course, 
you know which hand went here with six nine offsuit versus ace king. Of course, it was a six nine offsuit. <laughs> Here's the clip of it. Let, let's hear if uh, Helmuth was a jerk about it. I have a feeling Helmuth was nice in this one because he's probably he probably doesn't want to drive away the celebrities appearing on this, even if they're just YouTube celebrities. Let's listen to this. This is the sixth time you got him. Okay, all in. He moved all in. I called with Ace King, the luckiest guy. Like he's going to be the youngest billionaire in history. So the mass does him two to one favorite. Give us the flop for all the money. (laughs) I told you, you can't. This is not. This is not even. We're not even making the show. The the fly is like it's like six nine four. You, dude, I knew it. An ace, a king, or a four? No. Yeah, he got uh, a king on the turn. Now giving him some outs. But didn't do it. I'll take these. So, anyway, uh, someone took this as a cell phone video at the table. I don't know if it was Helmuth. Someone took this at the table. This wasn't part of the official Poker Go broadcast. That's why the audio didn't sound that good. But, yeah. Uh, this. Now, I think this may not have been part of the Poker Go broadcast. It's hard to tell. This may have just been separate from that. But, yeah. Helmuth got it all in ace king against six nine. The truth is, uh, if you have six nine, you're all in. You're happy to see ace king. You just don't want to be up against uh, nines, tens, or something like that, or even uh, eights or sevens. You want either twos through fives or just uh, two random cards that aren't a six or a nine. So I guess he got that, and he was able to uh, win that one. So I'm not sure when this is going to air. I do have some issue with Poker Go's content because they have been very aggressive, and I mentioned this on a recent show. They've been very aggressive with copyright violations, where someone pl- posts a small clip, a small interesting clip of the show, and boy, do they get aggressive with threatening people to take it down. And I don't think that's good for the game. And I fully support them forcing YouTube channels down that are posting large portions of the episode, saying, look, we're in business here. We're trying to – we have to make money. We have to have an income. And if people can watch this stuff for free, no one's going to subscribe. I I understand that. So I'm not one of these people thinking that we deserve everything for free. I'm saying that a small clip that's posted either to YouTube or to Twitter, they shouldn't worry about it. In fact, they should encourage it and see it as free advertising. Because I would think that if you see a clip that's interesting, but you only get to watch a short clip, then you'll think, oh, wow, look what I'm missing by not subscribing to Poker Go, and you'll subscribe. So I think this is like free advertising when people post this. But the way Poker Go sees it is that this is giving away their best stuff for free. And I, I don't agree. So it's their right to do this, but I think it's crappy, and I think it's something that is hurting poker. I think it would really help to have this stuff out there. And anybody who ever plays with Carrie Katz, he's the owner of Poker Go, uh, I would try to say something about it at some point. Not right away the first time you have a word with him, but uh, if you're at the table for a while with him for whatever reason and you develop a good rapport with him, I, I would say something because I would think that he might be able to be convinced because he really loves poker. So someone who really loves poker and and can be convinced that this happening hurts poker, he may change his mind. But he's been convinced by somebody that this is the right thing for them to do. 
Nothing to do with this Helmet and Ted Cruz story. Just a side story here. Uh, should people be angry that Ted Cruz is on there if they don't like his politics? No. I, I don't think anyone should be angry that a politician they don't like is on there. I think you should uh, find it interesting and want to watch how this politician plays. If you want to make fun of Ted Cruz for being a donkey, if he is, then by all means do it. Or even if you want to say bad things about Ted Cruz because you don't like him, fine. But I don't think that means they shouldn't be on shows like this. So if you're interested, you can watch it. I'm not a Poker Go subscriber, so I guess I won't be seeing it, but whatever. Well, Trader Risky, I hate to tell you, but you came at the very end, so uh, we're up to our final topic, and that is about the third shot for the coronavirus. Trader Ruski, are you planning to get the third coronavirus vaccine shot when it becomes available for you? I am. I am too. But I have questions. And unlike Radio Shack, I have questions, but I don't have answers. I'll ask you if you know anything about this stuff. Do you have any idea what side effects people are getting who got the third shot? Um, I had one friend just sleep a little longer. She said she felt good. Did she have any problem with the second shot? I don't recall. I'll find out, though. That's a good question. Another good question to anyone who got the third shot is, did you have COVID already? Because I want to talk to people like myself that haven't had COVID and that didn't have a very good experience with the second shot. There are some people who did not have a problem with the second shot and it was just a minor inconvenience, like some minor arm pain or a little bit tired or whatever. But yeah, I had the whole thing with the fever and, uh, and the fatigue Fortunately, I only had a little bit of nausea and I didn't throw up and it was only brief. But this lasted for a lot longer than it did for most people. I had uh, two and a half days worth of uh, major symptoms and then another few days of minor symptoms. So the whole thing kind of sucked, as I've explained on this show before. So I'm not looking forward to having that again or maybe a worse version of it, but it may not be a worse version. In fact, it may be a better version if maybe... Since I have immunity now, or at least some immunity to COVID, maybe my body will handle it better and not react like this. So I guess I would have to see. I know it'll vary from person to person. The only person I've spoken to who got the third shot both had COVID previously and didn't have a hard time with the second shot. So that doesn't tell me much. They didn't have a hard time at all for the third shot, but they didn't have much from the second shot either. So I want to speak to someone who had a hard time with the second shot and didn't have COVID before. So if you're like that and you have the third shot already, please text me at 775-372-8355 whenever you hear this and let me know. I'm just curious. But I will get it. However, I do have some questions beyond just how will you feel. I have questions about how useful it is. They say you should get it And it definitely will increase the number of antibodies you have. But is that the whole story? Because there's what's known as memory cells to where your body can quickly produce the proper antibodies to fight something it's familiar with. To where having the antibodies right there 
aren't necessarily necessary. And that perhaps artificially boosting the number of antibodies is not really going to help you very much. So it may be a question of, does your body know how to fight it, not does it have the antibodies ready to fight it? And if the antibodies that are created, if they are not going to work against the current variant, then they're not going to work, even if they're right there. So is this booster shot really useful? And I have not seen data stating that it significantly helps. It seems like we're just kind of not seeing what it's really doing, and it seems like maybe it's not even known, that there may be just some theory that the shot wears off and that you need another shot as a booster, but maybe you don't. Maybe it's really not helping you. So it would kind of suck to have to go through shitty side effects, and then it's really not helping you. It would also suck to get this and believe you're more protected than you really are. There have been a lot of concerns about the Pfizer shot, that the Pfizer vaccine is no longer that protective if you got it a number of months ago. There have been some studies that show that the Pfizer vaccine falls to 40% protective after six months. That the Moderna one does better, perhaps because it's a higher dose in the first place. There's, There's more of the vaccine injected into you. But for whatever the reason, the Moderna one seems to be doing better against Delta than the Pfizer is, especially if it's been a number of months since you got it. So I don't know how helpful this third shot is going to be. As I said, I'm still planning upon getting it when it becomes available to me. But I do wonder if this is doing any good or if I'm just going to needlessly get sick where I can't even take medication during it. But by the way, if you get the third shot, I really suggest you don't take Advil, you don't take Tylenol, you don't take aspirin, you just put up with it. And believe me, I am someone who is very quick to go take these things if I'm feeling uncomfortable from a headache, from a fever, whatever. This is the one case where I won't. So I just dealt with it. And it sucked because mine lasted for a while and I didn't know when it was going to be over. And I sat and sat and waited. But I committed myself not to take anything for it. And I stuck to that. Which one did you get, Truff, again? I got the Pfizer. And okay. I had this fever for two and a half days. I had a an indirect headache. I call it indirect because it wasn't caused by the vaccine, but it was caused by all the time I spent in bed and I got a tension headache from it. And then I also had a lot of fatigue, hence all the time I spent in bed. And I even had some nausea kind of near the end of the whole thing, which uh, I was able to ward off of all things by using a handheld fan, which I, a trick I learned a long time ago, at least it works for me, that if I start getting nauseous, not just from a vaccine, that's the first time a vaccine ever made me nauseous, but if I get nauseous, if I can blow air on myself, it can sometimes bring down the nausea. So I started getting nauseous and I started getting really nauseous and I told Benjamin's mom, quick, go up and get this handheld fan in such and such place. So she ran up and got the fan and it worked. It, it actually brought down the nausea to where I didn't throw up because I was like a, a ver- on the verge of throwing up, but I was able to hold it off and then the fan kind of brought it down and then the nausea went away. So fortunately, I, I didn't have much of that. But boy, that fever was persistent. It did not go down and I, I didn't take anything for it. And the fatigue and the general sick feeling and... It's not something I'm looking forward to repeating. 
And then I had kind of a weird after effect to the whole thing. Like even once I seemed to get better, then I, I still had like a recurring fatigue thing and I even felt a little congested. I had like cold-like symptoms afterwards. It went from flu-like symptoms to cold-like symptoms. But I didn't catch a cold. I wasn't going anywhere. It was it was all related to the vaccine. Now, once it passed, I was fine. So I don't want to scare anybody. Like uh, once all that was like a week after, even like six days after, there was no trace that I ever had these problems other than my memory of them. So it did not appear to cause me any long or medium-term problems, which is good. But I did have an unpleasant time for those first two and a half days and even uh, the uh, up to the six-day mark, I had some issues. But I'm not sure how much good it's going to do. And the question is, how many times are we going to have to keep doing this? And at what point are they going to say, this just isn't working, that there's too many variants and there's no way to stop it? And they may have to then progress to trying to develop a good treatment and then just vaccinating you once a year to hold back whatever the uh, most severe symptoms are, hopefully, and just making do with that. I don't know. When I Google the third dose, Pfizer is claiming that this is 86% effective in preventing infection among those 60 and over. That was actually, uh, well, Pfizer announced it, but uh, this is a study out of Israel. And it said that uh, 37 people out of 149,000, which is 0.02%, tested uh, positive for COVID-19 compared to 1,064 of those who got the second dose in January or February. So this is a study out of Israel. It didn't specify the severity of the breakthrough infections, but uh, these doses would suggest that uh, this does make a big improvement. The claim out of Israel in this uh, same study claims that uh, if you got it in January, that if you're over age 65, you only have about a 55% level of protection. They said that it brings up antibody levels that significantly exceed those seen in people who receive the dose within 6 to 12 months. Dr. Anat Eka Zohar in Israel said the triple dose is the solution to curbing the current infection outbreak. U.S. officials announced plans to offer the booster shots starting the week of September 20th to those who received Pfizer or Moderna vaccines at least eight months prior. However, they are presently available, and I mean right now, to anybody who has immunocompromised issues. So if you are especially in danger, then they will give it to you. And they determine this by you simply telling them that you're immunocompromised and they give you the shot. So according to Pfizer's own trials, they claimed that the efficacy goes from uh, 96% to 84% after six months. But the Israel study says otherwise, that it's 55%, at least for older people. Now, I had a talk with somebody about the eight-month thing. 
And this person was a bit confused. And the reason I'm telling you about this is I don't want you to be confused. They are not saying that if it's been eight months, that that's when you should take it. And if you take it sooner than eight months, that uh, something bad is going to happen or it's not going to work as well. That's not at all what they're saying. They're saying that we've determined that eight months is the time you should do it because that's the time we think that the current two-dose vaccine is not going to be effective enough for our liking. That's basically what the U.S. government is saying to you. So what about at the seven-month mark? What about at the seven-and-a-half-month mark? What about the six- or six-and-a-half-month mark? Well, the truth is, if what they're saying out of this Israeli study is correct, that getting a third dose will be helpful and will improve your efficacy by a good deal if you get that shot then. So why are they saying eight in the U.S.? I think they don't want a big run on the third shot, which I'm not sure if there will be. Well, I want to get it, and while Troy Daruski wants to get it, there will be a lot of people who got the two shots, especially some of those who had bad reactions to the second shot, who are going to say, you know what, enough is enough. This is too soon. I, I just did that earlier this year. So what, I got to do it again now? F this, I'm not doing it. I, I'm not doing it this often. Even if it is eight months, I don't think they're going to say, you know what, it's been eight months, no problem. Like That's it, going to seem too soon to them. People are going to get vaccine fatigue, especially because this vaccine has immediate side effects. If it's one you just get a shot and maybe your arm hurts a bit and you forget about it, no problem. If you remember getting sick from it, you're not going to look forward to doing that again. And if, if you have to face the prospect of this every eight months, you may say, forget it. This, this is just too much trouble. Now, I'm not going to say forget it, but a lot of people I think will. So I think there's going to be a lot less enthusiasm for this third shot than there was for the initial vaccination where it was very tough to get an appointment initially. So I don't think there will be this rush that they believe there will, but maybe at the beginning. Anyway, the eight-month thing is a public policy decision, not a medical decision. And what I, see, what I mean by public policy is when you're making public policy, you want to make it to where everybody who needs the vaccine, who needs it the most, can get it. And the people who don't quite need it the most, they'd be, they benefit from it, but they don't need it the most, that they have to wait till later. And that's the way they originally rolled it out. Now, they also did it stupidly and let some people get it who really didn't need it right away, like uh, healthy 25-year-old grocery store workers were the same priority group as uh, people who were 65 and older, which is crazy. But uh, putting that aside, it is true that the elderly people were able to get it before I was. So that's an example of where I would have benefited from getting it. And I definitely have some COVID danger at my age but not nearly as much as somebody who's 70. So the person who was 70 had priority over me. Again, not because it wouldn't help me, but because it would help them more. So they're looking at it the same way with the third shot. So it's not that you need to wait eight months. It's that they're saying eight months this way, everybody has time to go through the third one. So this way, the initial people who got it, the old people from back in January and February and the healthcare workers, everybody in priority one, they can get it while everybody else can't. And then the next group, then the next group, then the next group, basically the same priority level based upon when people actually got the first two shots. So it's not that you can't or it won't be helpful. They're just saying this to prevent 
the whole crowd from getting it up front. That's why they are doing that. So I don't know the way they're going to deal with this. I don't know if they're just recommending this or if uh, they're only going to allow people to do it who have had it for eight months. But if they do allow you to do it earlier, then I would suggest doing it. And if they allow me to do it earlier than eight months, I will do it earlier than eight months. Mine has been about four months. But I would like to get another dose. I think after four months, I think it would be helpful. I asked a doctor about this. Not my doctor, but a doctor I know. And I was told by this doctor that it isn't known for sure how helpful it's going to be. But that there isn't that much of a downside to get it after six months, five months, whatever. If if it's available to you, there isn't much of a downside to do it because the risk seems low. You're probably going to have to do it anyway. And it seems like at worst, it's going to not help you, but not hurt you. So it almost seems like a free roll. So my advice to you is that when you qualify for it, whenever that might be, if your eight months are coming up soon, then you will qualify soon. If you're immunocompromised, you can do it right now. And if they start letting people do it earlier because there isn't much demand for it, then maybe you can do it before eight months. Don't wait for eight months because eight months, there's nothing magical about eight months. That's a public policy decision. There's no harm in doing it earlier from what they can see. And it makes sense there'd be no harm. It's the same shot. It's not like you're introducing something new that may really screw you this time. You've had that shot already twice and you're, you're still around, right? And you probably didn't have any terrible effects from it. Even I did not have a terrible effect from it. I just had a crappy week. But after that, I was fine. So I would recommend getting it. It it does look like that we're getting a lot of breakthrough cases with this Delta. And Delta has been dominating the other strains. It it has dominated the original strain. It has dominated the other uh, variants, including the Lambda. For whatever reason, the Delta is just a lot better at spreading than the others, so much that uh, it has taken over. And you may wonder how it can take over. It's pretty simple, that... uh, if people are transmitting Delta to one another, they can't also get the original COVID at the same time. So that actually starts to uh, drown out the other variants, including even newer ones than Delta. So Delta has just been doing the best at spreading and it's been kind of drowning out the others. So maybe after Delta, we won't see one like Delta, but there's a good chance we will. About 51% of the population has been fully vaccinated against COVID-19. That is uh, two shots. And that was as of August 18th. But that's not going to be enough for herd immunity against COVID, especially with Delta doing all the breaking through. I don't think we're ever going to get there as far as just stopping COVID. I think there's going to be too many variants. Even if the U.S. does a good job with vaccinating enough, there's going to be other countries that won't. So I don't think the world is going to do a good enough job vaccinating to stop COVID. 
And there's also a question if the vaccinating even can stop it from mutating. It would help, and it might, but it also might not. But I don't think we'll even get there. I don't think we'll ever find out. So COVID may just be around to stay. It's easy to get vaccine fatigue, and it's easy to get into the habit of feeling safe. So you probably felt safe after the vaccine. At least I hope you did after the initial vaccine before Delta showed up. And I hope when you walked around outside after being fully vaccinated, you felt pretty good, like you're not going to get COVID. And you probably didn't. Like I, I really personally knew nobody that got COVID through the vaccine for a while until Delta showed up. So people got used to that. And now a lot of them don't want to go back to the caution they showed before. Now, some of that is fine. Like you don't have to go back to the caution as far as touching things because it isn't spreading through surfaces. But there's a lot of people who now feel okay going into a big crowd indoors. Like, oh, I'm fully vaccinated. Yeah, I'm hearing about breakthroughs, but whatever. I I don't think that's the right approach. I think at the moment, at least as far as right now, when Delta is very active, you do have to worry about being indoors if you're fully vaccinated because of all the breakthrough cases. And I'm kind of worried about that. I'm not doing what I did before, but I am a little bit cautious now. I kind of think of it like the DEFCON level. Remember in war games, DEFCON 5 through 1? And DEFCON 5 being where everything's fine and DEFCON 1 being you're about to be in full nuclear war. So I have my COVID DEFCON levels. And I I just made this up for myself. So DEFCON 5 is basically just live life normally like there is no COVID. That's what I did in May and June. And then uh, DEFCON 1 is where you're so worried about COVID, you're just basically not going anywhere indoors unless absolutely positively necessary, that you find every way possible to not go indoors except in your own home. And you also don't see other people outside your own family. And that's kind of what I was doing in December and January. Uh, DEFCON 2 is where you are seeing people you're friends with and seeing people in your family that don't live with you but that you're not going to public places, that you're just kind of sticking to people you know personally, and other than that, not exposing yourself. Uh, DEFCON 3 is where you are not only seeing family and friends, but you're also going into some public places, like the grocery store, where you're not there too long, but you are willing to go there, and you're not... uh, afraid of going to places like that. DEFCON 4 means that uh, you're only staying away from the most dangerous-looking places, like, for example, the World Series of Poker or a very crowded nightclub. But other than that, you're behaving normally. So I'd say where I am right now is kind of between uh, DEFCON 3 and 4. I was at DEFCON 5. I'm not there anymore. I was at DEFCON 1 at one point. I'm not there anymore. I am seeing friends and family. I am still walking into the grocery store. I still am walking into other businesses. I am not figuring masks into this. I don't put on a mask unless I'm required to. I have not bought any N95s yet. If I get an N95, that may change things because I think that actually is useful. And if I have an N95, then I'll probably wear that. But I still won't enjoy it. Like I won't want to be anywhere for any length of time with an N95 on. And I'm not going to be fanatical with it. I'm not going to wear it like when I'm visiting friends or family. 
But yeah, you know, like to put it on for being at the grocery store twenty minutes, I'll, I'll I would do that. But I, I'm I'm not a big person who would want to do it just for the performance of it. I'll give you an example. Benjamin started school again, and on the first day, even though they said the parents can't come on campus, all the parents came on campus and nobody cared. So I at first was going to follow the rule and not come on campus, but like every parent's going on campus and walking right in front of all the school administrators. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll come in with him too and help him find his classroom. So I walked with him on campus as well. What I noticed was just about every single parent had a mask on, yet we were not indoors. It's not like we're going in the class or anything. We're, we're walking around outdoors on a big, spacious campus, finding the classroom and then directing the kid to go in there. And we, don't, we never sit foot indoors at all. And that's not just me. Like, no parent was setting foot indoors. So why were they all wearing masks over there when it's all outdoors and nobody's all that close to each other? It's useless. Like, even if you want to say the mask is preventing transmission, that's, that's pretty useless. Now, maybe if it's like Lollapalooza, like we saw in those pictures recently, where you have 60,000 people all shoulder to shoulder, all crammed in together. Yeah, I can understand why you'd say you want to wear a mask there. But they're at a school campus. I was shocked at how many people were wearing it. I wasn't mad. There's some people who get offended when they see others wearing masks. I wasn't offended. I'm just kind of perplexed going, why? <laughs> why do they think this is helping? So I wouldn't do it. And... There's a few other parents that weren't also, so I was glad I wasn't alone. But like 95% of the parents, they were wearing masks, and I just felt it was useless. I, I never set foot indoors, and I knew I was not going to, and none of them were. In fact, I, I don't think we were allowed to go indoors. The kids are required to wear masks. Ben has been wearing a mask all day, and I know he doesn't like it, but uh, he hasn't complained. So <laughs> I don't even want to ask him how he feels about it because I'm afraid it's going to just erupt him into complaining about it. So if I don't hear any complaints, I'm not going to make him think about complaining. But he used to always complain being in masks for the time he had to wear them, like on the airplane, and even we take him somewhere indoors, he has to wear a KN95 mask for a little time because he's not vaccinated, and he would get frustrated. So I'm like, oh boy, how's he going to get through an entire school day with a mask on? But uh, he's been doing it. The problem is, I think it's just a matter of time till he catches the Delta variant, unless that kind of goes away. Because he's in the classroom with like 30 students or 25 students, whatever it is, and they're there all day with each other, indoors. So if one has COVID, it's going to spread around. And then wearing masks is not going to stop that. So what I'm kind of worried about is that he's going to pick up COVID at school. And then he's going to bring it home to us. And then I will catch it from him. His mom will catch it from him. And then it may break through, you know, and, and uh, we might get sick, especially with it being four months since we got vaccinated. So I feel a lot less out of the woods with this th th compared to what I felt in May and June. Especially with Ben back in regular school. Now, at the same time, I'm happy he's back in regular school. I know it's not good for him not to be in regular school. I know the Zoom school is not the same thing. The social interaction is important at that age. He had some online, but it's not the same as in person. And there is harm to the kids not being in physical school. And that can't be forgotten. So 
in that way, I'm happy he's back. But I am concerned that he's going to get COVID and then bring it home to us. I'm actually more concerned for me than I am for him because of the differing likely COVID outcomes for our age groups. Normally, I'd be more concerned for him than for myself. But when he's in an age group that barely has a problem with it, and I'm in an age group where people die, well, I'm more more worried for myself in that case. For someone his age without major pre-existing conditions to die from COVID is really a fluke. For someone of my age to die of COVID who doesn't have pre-existing conditions is not a fluke. It's not really common, but it's not a fluke. And for someone my age to get something like permanent lung damage, uh, that's especially not a fluke. Now, it is true that the vaccine is important to have to prevent severe outcomes. So I'm glad for that reason I have it, and that's why I'm at kind of DEFCON 3.5 compared to DEFCON 1. Otherwise, I would be staying away from everything again. But at least I know the severe outcomes, there's a much lesser chance. And I, I know this just from looking at the data. Because the people dying of COVID-19, almost all of them are unvaccinated. The people who are on ventilators, almost all of them are unvaccinated. And it's not a coincidence. So if you're an anti-vax person, you have to look at that. So either you're being completely 100% lied to with this data, and there's a big conspiracy to falsify the data, or it is much more dangerous to get COVID-19 as an unvaccinated person. And I am of the strong belief that it's the latter, that it is much more dangerous to get COVID as an unvaccinated person. I do believe there's much less of a gap now between people catching COVID who are vaccinated and unvaccinated, but I think that the way your body will be able to handle it is tremendously different between the vaccinated and unvaccinated people. So keep that in mind too. Just look at the numbers. That's why I I always encourage people to look at the true numbers, not the numbers given to you by CNN, not the numbers given to you by right-wing media, but the numbers that are actually provided, the raw numbers provided by the government, and then come to your own conclusions. So when you see 350 kids have died out of 80 million in the country, you can say, I don't care what CNN's saying. Obviously, this is not a crisis for kids. When you look and see that uh, five point something percent of the deaths are people who are around 50 years old, well, then you say, okay, I kind of do have a realistic chance of a bad outcome from this. But then when you go ahead and look and see that almost all of them are unvaccinated, you go, okay, wow, that's, that's a pretty big difference. That, that kind of means that if I got fully vaccinated, I'm not going to die from this unless I'm super, super, super unlucky. Whereas if I'm unvaccinated, I'm, I'm rolling the dice. So I, I think it's a no-brainer at an age like that to get the vaccine. And I don't understand why people are making excuses not to take it when they're 50 years old. It doesn't make any sense to me. There is an unknown to it. I will admit that, but a much bigger unknown to COVID, much bigger known danger to COVID at this age. It is not the flu. It does not behave like the flu. It is not age dependent like the flu is in the same way. The flu is not nearly as dangerous for you at age 50 as COVID is. In fact, that's where the biggest gap exists between the flu danger and COVID danger. That's a trivia question almost everybody would get wrong. If you ask someone, what is the age where 
there's the biggest gap between COVID danger and flu danger, where one danger compared to the other, where's the biggest gap where COVID's the most dangerous compared to the flu? And almost everybody will say, oh, it's like when you're super old, right? No one would ever guess it's like 52 years old, but that's where it is. Because at that age, you're not in much danger from the flu and you're already in substantial danger from COVID. When you get very old, you're vulnerable to both. And when you're very young, then you're vulnerable more to the flu. So these are things you should know. And you, these are things you can deduce yourself from looking at raw data. And that's what's important to do when the media is not honest with you. And even when the alternative media on the right is also dishonest with you. So don't trust either one. I don't trust either one. I see a lot of right-wing COVID articles out there. You know what I do with them? Ignore them. I don't even click on them because most of them are crap. I see a lot of left-wing COVID articles out there. I either ignore them or I click on them and go, I bet this is going to be shit. I click and I go, yep, it's shit. So... Uh, and when I say left-wing, I even mean like the mainstream media. Like I read a lot of things that I go, wow, this article's shit. Like most articles I've seen written about COVID are complete shit. The ones you can trust the most are actually kind of by the centrists or the media skeptical liberals are actually the ones who are putting out the most reliable articles, believe it or not. Because there are some liberals I know, and I mean li- real liberals, not not conservatives who still pretend they're liberal to, to win an argument. I'm talking about real liberals who voted for Biden, who hate Trump, who have a lot of traditional liberal values that really do not like the way the mainstream media and the left is handling COVID. And they put out uh, their own articles, and I found those to be the most accurate. If you want to read like no articles or not trust any articles and just look at the data yourself, that is fine too. Now, articles actually quoting data, like the one I just read to you that was from Forbes about the Israeli study, those are fine. Anything kind of like quoting raw data, well, it's better to see the data yourself. As long as you trust the data they're quoting, that's fine. You just got to be careful about conclusions being drawn. So like the conclusions that are being drawn from a lot of younger people being in the hospital with Delta. Such and such high percentage of, of COVID patients in the hospital are young. You go, whoa, what's this about? And they go, wait a minute. Who's unvaccinated in this country? Oh, mostly young people. So then who probably is getting COVID a lot more and getting bad outcomes from COVID uh, at a higher rate than compared to before when nobody was vaccinated? Oh, young people. So it all starts to make sense who's going out a lot more and exposing themselves to COVID a lot more, young people. So if they're exposing themselves more to it, and if a lot of older people are vaccinated and not getting the bad outcomes they once were, then of course there's going to be younger people at a higher percentage than there used to be going into the ER. And if something's just generally more contagious, like the Delta is, you're going to get more kids in the ER simply because more kids are getting COVID than they were before. But if the rate of kids that are getting hospitalized from COVID is the same as it was before. There's just more kids getting COVID overall. It's no more dangerous than before. But the media doesn't tell you these things. They just come to their own sensational headlines and hope you don't ask any questions. So it's sad that you have to go through this process to get the truth. 
but you need to really determine your own truth and not uh, count on organizations that have a bias to tell it to you. And notice I said organizations with a bias, not left-wing organizations with a bias or right-wing organizations with a bias. I said any organization with a bias. Do not let them give you COVID news because you will not get accurate COVID news. And it's important to know what you're really dealing with because you're always having to balance risk with inconvenience. There are some people with a school of thought that anything safe we can do is better. I'll give you an example. Trader Risky, did you know that LAUSD is requiring, I'm talking about LA Unified School District, they're requiring weekly COVID tests for all students and staff right now? Did you know about this? All that aren't vaccinated? No. Or all periods? Everybody. Everybody. And do they pay for it? Yes, they're paying for it, but uh, boy, is it a clusterfuck. So in addition to the inconvenience of this whole thing, and by the way, the middle school students and high school students actually have to take that painful COVID taste that goes way, way, way up your nose. The elementary school ones can take the easier one, but they have off-site, off-site uh, COVID testing uh, locations. So you don't do this in school, but there's locations set up outside of campus by the school that you go and get tested. But you have to do this every week, and then there's an app where you have to show them like a, a code that they scan that will show whether you're negative or positive and you have to get a negative result to enter the school. Well, guess what happened on the first day? The app was crashing. Uh, there were gigantic lines to get in. They didn't put enough people at the gates to scan these, so it was very slow. People were super, super late for the first day of school. And even the subsequent days, there were big lines to get in. And they're going to have to go through this every week. And the app actually had a message up there saying that uh, it's too busy right now. Uh, please be patient and wait uh, for the app to go back up. Like they actually had those messages there. This is a tremendous burden. This is terrible. There's going to be these huge lines to get into school every day. And guess what? Despite all this, there's been plenty of positive COVID tests found that uh, were taken in... Uh, subsequent days or, or students that felt sick and got a positive COVID test despite all this because the COVID test, even the best ones, are not all that accurate in the early stages. So there's going to be a lot of false negatives. So people get false negative. They go to school. Turns out they have COVID and just haven't shown symptoms yet. A few days later, they have symptoms. And uh, what do you know? They've been in class with everybody. And even though they had a negative test when the week began. Now, does this prevent some people that are positive for COVID and showing up positive from getting into school that don't have symptoms yet or maybe have symptoms that just aren't telling anyone? Yeah, it probably is. But at the cost of this tremendous inconvenience, having to take this painful COVID test every week, having to stand on these tremendous lines, having the app crash and fail. So I like to compare this to what I always like to say about driving risk. If we mandated that all cars were manufactured to go no faster than 15 miles per hour and you just couldn't make the car go faster than 15 no matter what, we would have almost no automobile deaths in a year. None. And we have a lot of automobile deaths every year here in the U.S. We'd have just about none. We have a lot of lives saved. Why don't we do it? Because it would be super inconvenient and terrible. 
Everyone would hate it. That's why you don't do it. But you can't make public policy around saving every life. So similar situation here. You can't make public policy in the school around preventing every single COVID infection, which you're not going to be able to do anyway. So if there's tremendous inconvenience for only a little gain, you don't bother. But there's some who are of the belief anything we can do to lower the chance of people getting COVID, we need to do, no matter what side effects it has that are bad. Even if the side effects are worse than the COVID. So you, you can't take that attitude. So you can't take the attitude of, we don't care, we're going to be reckless, we'll do what we want, people get sick, they get sick. You can't take that attitude. You also can't take the attitude of, I don't care what the cost, I don't care what the inconvenience, I don't care how many other things it messes up, we're going to do every little thing possible to prevent COVID. There's got to be a middle ground that makes sense. And that's why you have to rethink lockdowns. That's why you have to rethink uh, mask mandates. That's why you have to rethink a lot of this stuff that becomes law or becomes rules. How much are we gaining from it versus the inconvenience and damage to the economy? And what might some side effects be from this inconvenience besides just inconvenience itself? like to the kids. So these things all need to be considered. And in many cases, they're not. Thankfully, Benjamin does not go to one of these schools that does this. He's not in LAUSD. So fortunately, I do not have to deal with this, but I know people who do. And I think it's outrageous. I would be pissed if I were a teenager and I had to take that painful COVID test every week. I've been avoiding that test like the plague. I, I haven't taken it yet. I've, all the tests I've taken have been the easy one. Have you ever taken that uh, terrible one way up your nose, Trader Risky? I have not. <laughs> have you been trying to avoid it? Like, have, have you taken any COVID tests? No. Oh, you haven't, haven't taken really any. Okay. I the situation and need it. I, I've taken a few. The first one I took was actually before my colonoscopy was required, and I went through great lengths to avoid that terrible test they wanted me to take. And I took the easier one. And then I've also taken two tests since then, just because uh, one time uh, I felt some virus-like symptoms. Another one, my girlfriend had virus-like symptoms and I had very light ones. So I didn't think I had COVID, but I just wanted to make sure. And since it was free, I did it, but I was not going to do that awful one. In fact, I, I had a test booked, and then at the last second, I called up there and go, hey, hey, um, one question. Is that the one we put way up your nose? Well, we wouldn't say way up, but yeah, we do put it in there. We, we, we try to be quick. I go, okay, yeah, you can cancel it. I'm not doing that one. I've seen video of it. It looks terrible. And it's not even one of these things that looks bad and actually doesn't bother you because I've spoken to others who've gotten it. <laughs> they, said, they said it feels like the Q-tips in their brain. I, I just, I don't want that thing. And it's not even that much better than the one that's easier. It's a little better, but it, both of them aren't particularly good. Both of them have a lot of false negatives. So I might as well take the one that isn't tough. Anyway, get your third dose when available. I think it's a good idea. If you haven't gotten vaccinated at all, go do so. I would not tell you to do so if I didn't really think it was a good idea. And as you guys know, I'm not on the same political side as most of the people screaming about how hey, you should get vaccinated. So that should tell you something. If I'm not on, if I'm not on their political side, and I'm telling you the same thing as them, that would say that 
I believe it's really the right thing to do. And I'm not just saying it to go along with what people on my political side of the aisle are saying and that I haven't been brainwashed by CNN or anything like that. That it's, it, it really is the right thing to do for yourself and secondarily for the population at large. And I will not lecture you on the reasons you've chosen not to yet. Just think about it and do it. That is my advice. We're about done, but here's a text from the 505 area. The way to fix WSOP.com management is to let KevMath run it. You know, I think I mostly agree with that. I'm not sure if KevMath wants the role of everyone bitching to him and saying how awful it is. and Like, KevMath puts himself out there and he disseminates information. In fact, he's disseminated way more information about WSOP.com than WSOP.com has. But I'm not sure if he wants to be in the firing line there. It's going to be a question for him. He's someone who isn't ever controversial. He's very uh, demure. He's someone who doesn't enter controversy. He's someone who doesn't state strong opinions on Twitter. He kind of just puts the info out there and lets you react. You can sometimes infer his opinion, but this is not someone who really comes at anyone or wants his opinions known. So while this makes him a very good person to to disseminate information for the World Series, because he is not someone who uh, is going to get personally insulted or rattled by people who are unhappy... Um, I'm not sure if he wants to like have the role of calming people down who are pissed off. But I will say that I would have faith in him to run this a lot better. Like I, I couldn't see KevMath running a tournament where 36 out of 61 people get paid. I couldn't see him doing that. And I would think he's smart enough to make sure at least one human being is watching every bracelet event. And you don't just trust the computer to set all the pay tables. So I would think he would make decisions that are a lot better than what we're seeing. But really, they just need someone in the front who is not afraid of criticism, who won't get pissed off when people are in a bad mood about issues in the site. They won't take it personally. And they will be proactive to fix things. There'll be someone you can go to with suggestions and complaints. And there'll be someone who delegates others below them to make sure everything is running well. Instead, it looks like we have people who just hide the background, set things up, and just let it go. Kind of like set it and forget it. You know, with Popeil, who recently passed away. Ron Popeil. It looks like WSOP sets it and forgets it. And that's not good. It might be good for a turkey you put in a little uh, device you buy that's sold on TV, but not good for World Series events to set it and forget it. But that looks like what they're doing. And it ain't good. It's not good for poker. You want people liking the World Series. You want people enjoying the events. You want minimal criticism. You want the bracelet to be seen as prestigious and meaning something. You don't want to dilute it for short-term profit. You don't want to have too many events in too many venues that are bracelet events. And you definitely don't want uh, ridiculous things happening during bracelet events 
such as the pay table I described. But we've already discussed that. Okay, so today, as I speak, is uh, August 22nd, the morning of August 22nd. So when's the next show? Right now, Sunday, August 22nd in the morning. The last show ended on Monday, August 16th. So we did the show six days after the previous one. I'm hoping we can get back to Friday. I'm hoping we can have another show six days later. So that's my initial plan to have the show on August 27th, the night of August 27th, Friday. And then hopefully we can stick to Friday for a while. But who knows? I'll try, but I will make no guarantees. Trader Ruski, I'm glad we had you this time. Thanks, brother. It's hard for me to hear. I was about to say, I, I, couldn't, I don't know if you could hear me there, but okay. Thank you for joining us for uh, the time we had you here. And are you doing your NFL show tomorrow? Well, tomorrow is now today, and I'm, I'm not sure. We'll send out a tweet. I okay. think, uh, <laughs> you know, we're probably about 60-40 to do it, but we'll see. Okay, so uh, for those listening live... Probably by the time this is in the archives, it'll be after your NFL show if it takes place. But for those listening live, there may or may not be an NFL show today. Otherwise, uh, what, you think maybe it'll be next week? Yeah, I think if not next week, for sure. Okay. And that would uh, involve Brandon. And uh, maybe various others, including Trader Ruski. I don't know if I'll be part of it. I don't have much to add. I'm not an NFL person. But maybe I'll pop in. But uh, check PokerFraudAlert.com's forum... It'll be there if it takes place. And if not, uh, just expect this show next week, probably on Friday, maybe Saturday. And that's it. I'll give you updates on all this stuff next week. If we learn anything more about Kristen Bicknell's departure, which we probably won't. See if Mason Malmuth writes anything stupid, he probably will. If Resorts World can finally get some decent prices for the room during the week, they probably won't. If people fall for more Ukraine romance scams, they probably will. If WSOP Pennsylvania does stupid things that you can't reach anyone, probably. And if any more politicians appear in Poker After Dark, I wouldn't be surprised. I think I've covered most of it. I always try to update things that we kind of leave up in the air. So if you're wondering like what happens, what outcomes there are from stories that we leave off with, hey, we'll tell you what occurs in the future. If we don't tell you, then I'm kind of leaving you hanging. And I don't like to do that. All right. I'll slap this up in the archives when I have a chance a little bit later on. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, whether it's live or in the archives. I appreciate Anyone who listens, 775-372-8355 is the number to reach me anytime by text. And I will probably answer you. Good morning. And shalom. <laughs>